everyone. Welcome to Trinity Sheets, episode number 422. I'm your host, Chris joined as always by my co-host, David Biggs, band. And Biggs, we got a show this week where one of the main stories of the show is uh, a promoter facing a possible mutiny from his wrestlers. Yes, a promotion that airs on TBS. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Absolutely. But, uh, yes, this is uh, quite the show this week, folks, as uh, we got a lot of World Championship Wrestling here in this in this show. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. As we go to the week of September the 6th through the 12th of 1992 and begin with World Championship Wrestling and Dave Meltzer. The tension at World Championship Wrestling has reached unheard of levels over the past few days. And it doesn't appear to be any sign of relief in sight. Unless some kind of a cure for these ills are found in a hurry, there will be some sort of explosion from one side or another. That much is certainty. The only question is, what debris will remain when it's over? You could just substitute World Championship Wrestling with All Elite Wrestling and you had the last week before, as we record the show. <laughs> Holy shit. What a paragraph. <laughs> For those of you that are listening to this in the future, uh, CM Punk was fired the weekend over the before. weekend. Yes, before we recorded this, we're recording we're recording this segment at least the day after All Out. Uh, we're recording on Labor Day. Yes. So, uh, yeah, just a little funny synergy here. Now, as we discussed last week, Cowboy Bill Watts was larger brawl than WCW and made and proved the bottom line. The company had been bled ready for nearly four years, and the men in charge, Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, had decided the inevitable day of reckoning had come. Clearly, in the current economic climate, with all aspects of wrestling interest and income on decline, the best one can hope for is to tread water or slightly increase the total revenue for the company. For the short term, which is this quarter's balance sheets, a substantial rise in revenue wasn't going to happen. Building for the future seemingly isn't the prime goal as much as a less devastating quarterly balance in order to break even if that's even a possibility, or at the very least, make a substantial cut into the losses. It will require cutting back on spending. Every cut, no matter how frivolous it might seem to one person, is going to make someone in the company bleed, figuratively. Longer drives instead of shorter flights is going to be more taxing on the wrestlers. Limiting road expenses of execs is going to be an added inconvenience. Being asked to take salary cuts is basically going to infuriate any employee, particularly if they had shown long-term dedication to the company where they're on the road as a wrestler or in the office. As the word gets around of what's being asked, attention builds. The villain in all cases, of course, is going to be Bill Watts. It's largely his decisions where the cuts are going to be made. And every cut is going to hurt someone. This is only compounded by rumors that he is receiving a percentage as a bonus of everything he cuts. It's something believed by most wrestlers, although it's been denied as well. And there's no evidence offered either way. The timing of his hiring, the timing of hiring his son as a wrestler wasn't the greatest either. More on that later. So everyone was miserable and scared, perhaps some out of paranoia, probably most out of the legitimate reality of the situation. As this was going on in the world of WCW, into Bill Watts' office stepped Brian Pillman. Earlier this year, Pillman had signed a two-year contract with Kip Fry. Fry, if you recall, was a major proponent of the heavyweight division. Pillman, if you recall, had just come off a series of matches with Houston Liger that was arguably the best series of matches in North America since 1989. 
future matches between those two promised to only get better and add a new dimension to U.S. wrestling. Bilba's prospects looked bright at that point. He seemed the clear choice to be the flagship of the light heavyweight division in WCW, quite possibly for years to come. His series with Liger was hot, even but with both his baby faces. Liger's basically unknown to the casual audience, and with no angle supporting him. Presumably it would have been even hotter when the storyline was added, perhaps with Pillman as a heel. And Liger received exposure to the casual audience. Throwing in a few other talented guys in the mix, the possibility for Pillman were seemingly endless. The chances of his programs getting stale for a long time based on the quality of his own work combined with the talent of Liger and others were minimal. It could go back and forth with matches not only in the United States but in Japan as well, with the two trading a true international defendant belt back and forth and each becoming stars in another country and building a legitimate international feud in which angles and storylines could be shared and peak interest in two promotions simultaneously. Another dimension for the business, Pillman's contract called for roughly $425,000 in base pay over the two years, an estimated two hundred and two twenty-five. And a series of incentive bonuses that depend upon him being put in main events on major shows could net him in the range of 35000 to 70000 more each year. Fry saw Pillman as a major player for the future. The focal point in the new division, in the new dimension, and based on his work against Liger, a proven commodity who was still a few years away from hitting his prime in his business. Pillman had an option with Fry. If he didn't make him what he considered a fair offer, Titan Sports, the contract with, upon was more than good enough for him to give up that option for two years. Then came a management change. Obviously, as the events of the past week have shown, and hindsight shows even more clearly, Watts thought the deal was exorbitant. He's pretty much admitted not following the business in 1987. More likely than not, in his mind, the Liger matches never existed. No doubt upon seeing the deal, he immediately dismissed it as the work of a previous executive who knew nothing and paid someone far more than what they were worth. But it was a two-year deal signed, sealed on the books through the spring of 1994. Instead, the result of the new contract being what both Pillman and Fry would have figured, with the company having such a strong financial commitment to Pillman for two years, that would do its best to put him in position to warrant that money, the deal worked in reverse. Pillman quickly lost the title and started doing one TV job after another, no doubt to weaken his bargaining position and perhaps take down his ego before the move would be made. He was losing most of his matches in the arenas, often even in the opener against the likes of Greg Valentine, and to make matters worse, the Chicago opener went national on WGN. It actually bored on Comic-Con's career fortunes reversed for a short period of time, for reasons that were seemingly illogical to all but a few. Quite frankly, he was the highest-paid opening match loser probably in the history of the business. He had a chance to become the first person to be both a jobber and win match of the year during the same year. And then came a heel turn on the clash, with none of the storyline backing it up, no deep long-term thoughts or planning attached to it, and making no sense whatsoever. Ironically enough, it still would have probably worked. He had potential to be a good heel, position a company like Def in, a good performer, and with the turn, it somewhat erased the stigma of all the TV jobs. Spin the wheel or keep the deal? The deal is, Pillman was asked to give up all of his incentive bonuses. Ironically, the guy who, was, who publicly was so against guaranteed income because he felt it ruined Russell's incentives was going after the part of the contract that built the incentive. But to once, the contract was simply too large. There's definitely a valid defense for Watts' thoughts in regards to the contract, although Dave's not sure there's a defense for the position he put Pillman in. Pillman's contract called for him to earn incentives based on his push. If he isn't pushed, there are less incentives to pay. And someone else, with no incentives in their contract, can be put in the same spot, and it would, in the simplest of terms, cost the company less money. Simplistically speaking, that is. For a relatively small amount of money, difference one way or the other, which is also actually could cost the company more, the decision was made not to put, in football vernacular, the best player at the position on the field. 
they still have to pay Pillman's base, whether they push them or not. They only save on the incentives. If they put someone else in the spot Pillman would have had, and they work on a per night deal, it actually costs the company more money. If there would be someone better for the spot, then Pillman hardly deserves preferential treatment because the company signed him to a good contract. If there was someone equal, said money is a legitimate determining factor for a spot. Although that's no justification for a burial. But in this case, by the promise of a push, if you spin the wheel, it was acknowledged his ability warranted the push. By the threat of a burial, if he kept his deal, it was an acknowledgement that putting the best team on the field, giving the fans the best product, based on the current available roster, wasn't the goal. It also put a deal in the very questionable legal waters. What exactly constitutes career blackmail? Two men go to the office, spin the wheel. Would he really be pushed? Or was it a swerve simply to sign away would have been agreed to in good faith negotiations? Would backing down leave him? And other wrestlers open the future meetings, sign away even more guarantees for another chance to spin the wheel? The people watching weren't a bunch of actors dressed as if they just got out of jail cells and midgets dressed like Parata Morgan. They're everyone in the company, wrestlers in office. Everyone by the middle of this past week knew the story. The peer pressure was strong on Pillman. Not to back down. The feeling was if Watson was successful, he'd hardly stop there. Everyone else with a contract that doesn't inspire over the next few months could also be invited to the office to spin the wheel. But if he didn't back down, one person himself leaves the office as a wrestling non-entity. What's the deal, Brian? Alright, we'll stop here. Uh, so, Dave talks about the, the contract that he gets from Kip Fry. Yes. And how he's going to, you know, Kip Fry has all these you know, thoughts about how he's going to be in a division, you know, centerpiece, blah, 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 blah. And then they sign this deal and it doesn't go through, as Dave mentions. Pillman loses the title on June 20th at Beach Blast, which by that time, uh, Bill Watts is in charge. Yes. And then it's just like Dave says, he just becomes a glorified job guy up until, you know, where we're about at now, where the clash had just happened a week ago and he does the turn on Brad Armstrong. Yes. Um, I mean, something that's jumping out to me though, because this is a well-known story, just not usually told in the detail was the week it went down. Isn't this story always told as Watts saying he would job Brian out if he didn't agree to take a new contract in terms of the base pay? Isn't that always how the story has been told subsequently? <clears throat> um, this is the first I time right. I ever remember yeah. hearing the incentives. Yeah, this, I mean, ba- what people thought, I guess, was the base, but it's actually incentives. So here's the thing. I'm going to assume this is true, even if it's weird that Dave subsequently didn't tell the whole story in, you know, retrospectives. Why not just keep the light heavyweight division and keep him there and just not put him in main events? You give him what he was expecting other than the incentive pay in the main events, which was not a guarantee anyway. Like, how is that not the obvious solution here? If you want to make sure he does not get paid the incentives. Watts wants to send a message. Um, and we got more to come on that, but he wants to send a message out to the other talent. I, uh, listen, these, these contracts that they gave you, 
is too much. There's a new boss in town. We have a new directive here. We got to cut the fat. But why is Pillman the person to send that message? Because Pillman is not a Bill Watts guy. He doesn't, which is interesting to say that because Pillman played football. You know, he was a football player. He was, you know, all American. You would think that Bill Watts would, would be in the Brian Pillman, but that's also what Dave also said. Bill Watts has not been following the business since 1987. When Bill Watts got out of the business, Brian Pillman was in Calgary just starting to make a name for himself. So this is what happens when you put somebody in charge that's quote-unquote out of touch. Or even if I mean, you hire a top star who has been out of touch because he's not been in the business for seven years. I mean, you, you just look at... You look at, I mean, they went through, the, th the thing is, this company went through this three years earlier with George Scott. What, I mean, the thing is, it just makes no sense. I mean, it makes no sense to bring somebody in like this. And we did the Kiff Fry show on patreon.com slash twin sheets. We talked about all that stuff. But, I mean, the Watts hiring was something that the newsletters have been you know, preaching for years, we got, they got to hire Bill Watts, got to hire Bill, Bill Watts, got to hire Bill Watts. And then you hire Bill Watts and it's like, uh-oh, you know, I mean, it's like, what did you expect? Did you expect Bill Watts to come in and make everything like Mid-South 1984 again? I mean, obviously they did. The problem was Bill Watts was in the business you know, eating, sleeping, breathing the business in 1984. In 1992, he's been out of the business since 87, and he didn't really pay attention to nothing. And times have changed. I mean, a five-year, you know, gap. I mean, it's really it's, more than that because he, I mean, he's not in the business as of April 87. He's basically done with actively being involved in the business, really, at the end of 86, beginning of 87. But, but he does do commentary work on television. So he's, he's, he's there. He's, he's doing there, but he's not doing anything in the office because he's trying he's to deal with his office, divorce. But he's yeah. not office, but he's, he's involved. Yes. But he's not the boss, basically, so to speak. Yeah, Jim Ross is basically – Jim Ross as him, the Bill. executive in charge. and Yeah, him and Joel to a degree. And then all, and then Eddie Gilbert is the booker, or who Kim, are in charge. No, Kim Mantel. When does Eddie actually replace Kim Mantel? Kim Mantel's there until just, the, I mean, basically the end. Okay. You mean the same? Yeah. 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 So. Is it possible he's still in the office and just not the booker? Um. Watch the TVs, the last UWF TVs. Uh, the right before the sale and you it's Kim Mantel. Mm -hmm. It's Kim Mantel. But anyway. Andy's uh, probably oh Andy's probably got some stuff going on, absolutely. But Kim it's basically probably you know what it's probably like a world class when Hayes and Garvin were doing stuff, but Mantel was the head booker. Of 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 note. You know the official booker is Ken Mantel, but Eddie is steering a lot of the stuff. Eddie's yes, but Ken's got Ken's the he's like Vince, right? It's not just Eddie's own programs, but he is not the booker. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like Vince in a way. It, it, you know, when Vince had had but, that role in WWE. I mean, here's the thing, too. I, th- I think probably why people expected things one way and they turned out another. Besides that he specifically had the edict to cut costs. And besides that he hadn't been paying attention to anything. During the period they're all longing for, he had other people serving as checks and balances. He had the meeting with Lawler and Jared where they <coughs> suggested how to change the territory. He had Bill Dundee. He had people who had very different ideas who he had been convinced he needed to listen to, here in WCW, he's being brought back because, oh, we need someone like Bill Watts. And Dusty's his booker. And Dusty's open to whatever, but Dusty's also going to do what his boss wants him to do. Yeah. All right, so when does Pillman get that uh, contract? I want to say April-ish, maybe? Well, actually, no, 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 well, yeah, April, 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 because that's that's when his deal ends up being up in 96. Uh, he's hurt. When he signs the contract, he's injured. Hmm. Pillman, Pillman does not wrestle. His last date of note was March 25th at the Georgia Mountain Center, and then he doesn't work again until... May 10th at the Omni. Hmm. Where he goes to a 10-minute draw with Greg Valentine. And what day did Watts start? Not after that. Watts is after that. Huh. And he is the light heavyweight champion. Pillman beats Zink at Russell War the, the week later. So there is that. He re- retains the title. And he starts uh, doing house show deal with Scotty Flamingo. He beats Valentine on TV by DQ. Well, also, isn't aren't the house shows being booked by Magnum? Yes. So he's being he's being Scotty Flamingo. I mean, he's still winning. I mean, he's he's winning he's winning his matches as we go through May against Scotty Flamingo. Um. All right. So Pillman the 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 top rope DQ starts in June. So he starts getting DQ'd in matches because the top rope DQ. He loses stuff like that. Mm. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you see, you can see, uh, I mean, him and Liger team up at the, uh, you know, in the NWA tag title tournament. Yeah, which is under NWA rules, so top rope moves are legal. All right, so he loses at Beach Blast on June the 20th. That's when he loses uh, the title to Scotty, yes. Yeah, so then him and Zeke... Uh, so he starts losing on TV. He's lost to Austin. Him and Zink lose to Slater and Valentine. Uh, Doc and Gordy. Valentine's beating him in house shows in, at the end of June. Yeah, Chicago, June 28. Um, so he's he's losing. But he lost in the tournament. Him and Liger lost to Steamboat Nikita. In the second round, yeah. But... Uh, he's losing to people like Austin. Um, but him and Zink start beating Slater and Valentine. Uh, it's not as bad as Dave is putting it out as I go through August. But he is and being used as a prelim. He's mid-card. He's mid-card. There you are. He, now we're in August. He's losing. He, he loses to Jake in Sarasota on August 13th. 
loses the Barbarian, the 15th in Jacksonville. He loses the Barbarian, the opener in Little Rock on August 19th. Yeah, he's losing the Barbarian around the horn. So he's beating Super Invader, but he's losing the Barbarian at, at all the house shows that him and Barbarian are matched up at. So, again, the light heavyweight division is on the ropes right now because of Watts. Yes. So, and, and, and again, you know, we're going to, we'll talk about this later, but the optics of bringing in your, your son and going to push him hard, that's well, going to be a major problem. Well, not his son per se, his son who just started. Still, yeah, but it, it would have been bad enough as his son. But oh, son the newsletter the would have been. But I'm saying, if he has a son at this point who's as good, maybe not even as good as Dustin Rhodes, but at least is a solid mid-card wrestler, I don't think it would be as big a deal. It's the fact that Eric Watts has literally just started and is so green that he has no business being on national television. Yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, promoter sons, no matter what, unless... You know they're mega 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 stars, but yeah, to be a promo- promoter's son who is just now starting wrestling in the business. Like I said, we're going to get into that in a minute, a little bit. We got we got a uh, clip to play. All right, so let's get back to Pillman. Pillman was hardly the only wrestler who was talking about contracts. Dave didn't believe he was the only ten- Barry because Fry had signed into a contract. Watts thought it was out of that. Watts thought it was out of line, out of line based on what? Based on the live gates and by the old standards, the entire salary structure is totally out of line. Based on the current profit loss ratio of the company, it's probably still be out of line. Based on wanting to get guys put their name on paper and agree not to go to Japan or Titan Sports for a period of seven years, several years in the business where they have a limited amount of years they're going to earn money, well, it isn't probably all that far out of line at all. Others have apparently been asked to change the deal, but apparently without the threat of spinning the wheel. At least one other performer whose situation is so touchy that nobody wants to talk about it, apparently it's even more of a delicate situation than Pillman was. You probably guess who we're about to talk about right now. <laughs> Ravishing Rick Rude, whose guaranteed money contract as far as early 1995 was reportedly given a proposal by Watts. Reportedly by who? That he'd give him a large cash payment now. Apparently far less money than Rude would earn on his current deal, even throwing in the $1,000 per night of the new deal he signed. Plus, he'd be signing away his financial insurance in case of a major injury, which that will loom large later. If Rude was signing away his current contract and instead going the per-night deal listed in last week's issue for $1,000 per night, but reportedly with no guarantee of a number of dates. It also should be noted that reportedly new deals also include a clause that the wrestlers can be asked to relocate their home base. In other words, they can be sent to another territory provided that another territory picks up the $1,000 or whatever per-night deal. On the surface, it doesn't sound bad, but on a worst-case scenario, you could see someone transferred to Puerto Rico. They don't think anyone can deny Watts has the perfect right to propose and negotiate something. In theory, Rude should be happy. Instead of just one option of getting money, his current deal, he's given the second, and he can pick which one he likes the best. What's so bad about that? All sources indicated that, unlike Pillman, Rude wasn't threatened in regards to his push, depending upon his choice. Gee, I wonder why. So why was virtually everyone so mad about the proposal? If it was a business deal, he was given a choice, and had the option of saying no, which one would figure he would under those circumstances. What's so bad about that? If Watts decided he had to get rid of all long-term contracts, he'd go to Rude and ask him to sit down and negotiate a buyout price. That is, if the contract has a buyout provision, and it may not. 
if they came in the equitable deal and they released Rude and enabled him to work elsewhere, that's also not necessarily unfair to Rude, as long as he had the other option of keeping the current deal. Unless, of course, there was pressure put on him to where he had to give up his current deal. At that point, it becomes a different ballgame. The only conclusion Dave can draw is that there is more to this than simply, Rick, here are two business options. Pick the one you like the best. We'll be happy with either one, and none of this discussion will affect how we handle your career. So now we're going to Rick Rude. So this is a different ball game. Rude is, you know, had been your top singles heel until Jake Snake come in. Rude had been the, you know, one of the faces of the company through the whole year. And now you're going after his contract. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right, the whole taking away injury protection thing was not just for Ruth. I think that was with everyone that he was trying to do that. And that doesn't get talked about enough here. Yeah, like I said, that would loom large later. Yeah, and that I mean, honestly, that might be the that's the worst part of all this. It's like it's a corporation. You can't like. Not that the way it was in the old business was good, but you can't just try to bring it back to that. The thing is on this, do you think Watts is acting alone in this, or or is he having someone advise him? He has to have someone advise him, I would think, because Watts never dealt with contracts in Mid-South. Well, yes, he did. Not like this. He gave people guaranteed contracts. Yeah, but not like this. Not to this degree, but when he was expanding, he gave a ton of people guaranteed contracts. That's what, yeah, that, yeah, that's one thing. But this is corporate, Vix. Sure. This is a corporate contract. A whole lot more going on here yes. well, than Mid-South Sports. Well, you know, as far as someone advising him, let's go to the next part, because that seems to inform that it's not just Watts. Barry Wyndham, who just turned 32 on July the 4th, was reportedly asked to retire in January and work in the office. Sounds like Jim Hurd. In lieu of the remainder of his salary, room to be in the $300,000 annual range, he'd be paid out the money due him under his contract prorated over 15 or 20 years. The explanation for all this is for non-wrestling-related reasons. Wyndham may want to retire anyway. So why is everyone so unhappy about Wyndham still being offered a business proposal? So someone, Jim Hurd or whoever, and I mean, it's January, so it could be him or someone else, but still, the implication here... Is that he? Someone went up to win and was like, "Yo, your girlfriend's fucking loaded, right? How about taking a pay cut?" <laughs> I mean, that's sure what it sounds like to me. Maybe, but it could be the point where somebody may have thought because when this is the time where Wyndham has been out injured, he's just now getting ready to start to come back full time from the broken wrist or hand or whatever. Yes. Yeah. They may be using that as a reason to get him out of there. But why? Contract. And why? But why before Watts, too? I don't know. Okay, so who's... Hurd's there for the first... What is it, two weeks? Three weeks? Two weeks of January. And then Fry takes over. And it's unlikely this would be Fry... So it's either Hurd or someone underneath. I mean, or or it's Jack Petrick. I'm. Almost, I mean, but why would Jack Petrick be zeroing in on Barry Windham? Especially since, as we'll talk about later, I don't know if Jack Petrick really was really doing much day to day in the first place. But 
I just the only thing I can think of here is that there's some weird Jim Barnett thing going on. It's possible because he's just around, and this isn't going to be Dusty's idea. So it's a Jim Crockett. Uh, is Jim Crockett actively doing anything still in January? Yes. Remember, Jim Crockett's there at the Clash as one of the uh, figureheads with Giff Rye. Oh, right, and he's let go, or sent home, or whatever it is, in February, is it? Yeah. 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 So this is what, Jim Crockett being bitter about something? Possibly. So I, I gotta think, though, the reasons having nothing to do with wrestling thing has to be a reference to the rich girlfriend. I guess. It's possible. I'm not gonna say it's not. At least in 1992, you know, as opposed to anything to do with his brother or his father. It's possible. So, th- there's clearly someone helping guide this with Watts. The question is who. Sting was scheduled to be fucking with this week, so now we're going to the guy. Nobody knows for sure if it's about his contract, which is also in effect until early 95. As of the weekend, most run the assumption if he's given a series of options with no pressure to give up what he's already signed for, only newer, more options is only to his benefit, right? So here's Sting. <laughs> You're the franchise of the company. Who's so, making 750 I'm, grand. So this is a this is a message being sent to everybody. He's probably on a no-cut contract. He probably has no termination cycles, and they probably can't renegotiate him unless they can somehow convince him of something. You know? Something major's going on here. Obviously. Yeah, okay, I'm curious about something, now. And and maybe this is Bill Shaw and Bob Do that's telling Watts all this shit, you know? I mean, how again, who would be involved to that level of granularity, though? And by the way, just for perspective, you know, there's a contract that was signed at some point earlier, but, you know, the 750 a year that Sting is making, uh, adjusted for inflation, that's over $1.6 a year. Yeah. So Pillman's two hundred would be over four thirty-two. And we did we get a number for Rude? No. Okay. I mean, it's WCW though. I mean, this is not just limited to these individuals. Is the thing too? Yeah. Anyway, let's continue. There's a lot to go. On September 11, Pillman chose not to spin the wheel. That night in Chicago, his wrestling future all changed. Instead of being Brad Armstrong, as he did on television Wednesday, at the house show the previous night, the finish was changed. Russian leg sweep. One, two, three. Wait, 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 wait. So did Brad Armstrong ever actually have a knee injury? A real one? Uh, no. So that was entirely an angle to get rid of the light heavyweight title? Yeah. And turn bright. Okay, just wanted to make sure. I had forgotten that. It said that he suffered the injury in Sapporo, Japan, against the great Muta. All right. Um, Which I know didn't happen, but. All right, so let me, let me, let's see here. So let's see. All right. So Brad. My Brad's working. Uh, all right, Brad. Brad doesn't work for a minute. Um, Brad works. Here's the funny part about the whole thing, though, Bix. Brad's last house show date that he worked was August the 14th in Fort Myers. The next match he works is September the 8th 
at center stage for WCW Saturday night on September the 12th. Clash of the Champions aired on September the 2nd. So six, six days later, he's working the taping. So he was injured, just not anymore by the time of the Clash. But thing is, though, he's working six days later. TV airing ten days later. When he was and actually, that might be an air date that's mislabeled, because Cage Match has nothing for him between the new... Okay, so he did have a New Japan tour, and his last match on the tour was with Muto in a six-man. So the, that might actually be true. September the 8th, he works with Scotty Flamingo. No, 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 you said something but in August, that's why. No, house show. That was a house show match. Okay, because that's only on Wrestling Data. That's not on Cage Match for some reason. But it's only one... Well, I'm not Is surprised. that the only thing listed between the New Japan show and the 8th, though? Let me look and see. Okay, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a listed match. There's no result. Okay, so he's probably the last the last result for Brad is the new Japan date, July 11th in Richmond. Oh, you mean WCW? Okay, uh, uh, going to a draw with Liger. Yes, and then he goes on the New Japan tour, which it's not a long tour; it's summer struggle. But I think he's there for the whole thing, or at least until. But it seems like he does get hurt then. It's just he's not hurt anymore. And he did get hurt in a match with Great Muda. It's just he's not hurt anymore by the time of the clash. Yes. That's the thing. They're shooting the angle and he's working just days later. Okay. Yes. Yes, I know. And he beats Pillman. Our weekends here, he beats Pillman on the 12th in Cleveland, the 13th in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, yeah. So he beats him all weekend. Now, this is what Dave says. The rest of the weekend, same story. Brian is now Jimmy Jam Garvin, only a nearly 10 years younger version. The first, the example, and that in a nutshell is why everyone is so unhappy. Let's go to Wade Keller's version of this now. Now, there's going to be a little bit overlapping here, but we get some fresh information as well. Two meetings, several moves, Cut Spencer became topics of the conversation W seven Wrestle Circles during the last week. The means were Brian Pillman and Rick Rude. Both meetings were efforts by WCW's Vice President in charge of Russell Operations, Bill Watts, to cut expenses at WCW. Watts asked both Pillman and Rude to consider restructuring their current deals, which both wrestlers turned down. In Pillman's case, Watts wanted to eliminate Pillman's bonuses above his guaranteed annual base salary, between to be $150,000 to $250,000. In exchange, Pillman would be given a lump sum substantially below what he was giving up, and he was told no uncertain terms he would receive a bigger push if he accepted However, there would be no guarantees of what that push was or if that push could be pulled any time. So it's the end of his current contract in order to take leverage away from him just in time to renegotiate. If he did not accept the deal, Pillman was told he'd be relegated to a much lower position in WCW. A move justified by Watts because Pillman's current contract forces WCW to pay Pillman bonuses the more they push him. So he's receiving title shots. Since Pillman turned Watts' offer down, it's suspended his television exposure will be limited to doing jobs. Unless a compromise can be made or one side gives in. <laughs> so there's a little different, you know, jive there to what Dave was saying. A little bit more blunt, so to speak. But he does also say it's the incentives. Yes. So that appears to be, you know, the story. Even though later it turns into more of a generalized pay cut, which... I'm guessing is not actually what happened. It's just the story getting simplified. Um, well, here we go. All right. So, although Watts did comment on what he was asked for of Pillman, to Wade Keller 
in the Torch Talk that was after our week, but I will read it a little bit of it. Well, you'll read the detailed. part that's included here, but we're not including the whole Torch Talk because it's after. Right. Well, here's what uh, here's what here's what Wade and Bill said. Uh, uh, Wade asked him first question of the whole thing. There's quite a bit of criticism within the wrestling business of what is an unclear situation regarding you allegedly attempting to renegotiate several wrestlers' contracts. And Bill's answer with Brian Pillman, he was told that he was part of a it was part he was at a part of his career that could go either way. Therefore, he has a contract that pays a huge amount of money that's guaranteed. I have no problem with that. Then he has some bonus clauses in there. All I did was offer him some money versus those bonus clauses and what I thought was a fair offer. Then I said it would be a simple thing. You give us some consideration with your bonus clauses, then we can position then we can position you possibly better and take the time to develop you. If you don't, what is our motivation to put in the time and cost in developing you? But he gets everything that's in his contract. We haven't asked anybody to get what's not in the contract. Then Wade follows up. Is there a clause in Russell's contract that says promoters will push them to the best of their ability? If that clause isn't in, is in there, would it be legal to bargain a push versus giving up bonuses? Bill said, I don't think that clause is in there. That sounds like a far-fetched clause because who would determine what's in whose best ability? Wade knows that's tough to gauge. Bill says, would you see so much of that shit you got? It's like in your deal in last week's torch about me bankrupting WCW and taking the talent and starting up my own deal again. What a fucking ridiculous concept that is. Let me ask you this. Where the hell do you think Sting or Rick Rude are going to go to make the kind of money they're making here? Those guys are phenomenal athletes. They're great cornerstones. And I don't know neither one of them are pissed off. They sure haven't told me that. Then it goes into Rick Rude. Did you meet with Rick Rude to talk about the contract? The deal with Rick Rude, again, that's in the personal finances. I just offered him a deal that he may or may not want, but I told him it was completely up to his option. No strings attached. It was just as if it would benefit him. It was a private matter between he and I, but I haven't asked him to do a damn thing, and I haven't threatened him to do a damn thing. I told him, if this would help you, and you would like to do something like this, it may be an opportune time. Surely you don't do anything that's not in your best interest. Then Wade follows up. Was that the same attitude presented to someone who was on the lesser, lesser side of the scale, such as Brian Pillman? Bill comes back. The only place people are created equal is in the Constitution. Not in life or in business. Everybody's not the same. Pillman's not Rick Rude. Pillman's not Sting. Just like Deion Sanders can play two sports and hold up two organizations, while another quarterback may be lucky to be there. Business is not a democracy. People are a commodity, and they have value. We have just so many positions that we can push actively. Sometimes you may have to have some consideration in order to be in the picture. We got a lot of guys. Brian Pullman's a fine young athlete, but he's not a proven commodity in any way, shape, or form as far as drawing money. And then Wade comes back. So if there was an agreed upon situation, then Bill says, if Lee Coco walked into Chrysler and said, I need this group, this group and this group, I got to negotiate, I got to cut corners, I got to save money. Well, that's a tough-ass pill to swallow. A lot of people accepted a lot of bitter pills, and companies still in the business. Companies like Eastern Airlines, TWA, the ones that didn't do it, they're no longer in business. So what I'm saying to you is we may have approached some people and say, man, some of the things in your contract, we feel a little bit exorbitant. We'd like to talk to you about it. If they don't, they're not going to get out of their contract. It's up to them. We're going to live up to our end. They can live up to their end. How many times we use them is up to us. And, uh, you know, I mean, it just, and real, and I'll close with this one. 
ways. One of the criticisms that has come out of this is that Bill Watts is asking people to take less money to help save the company money, but also because he gets a certain amount of money from what he saves TBS. That is something you talked about. Bill says, that's a crock of shit. <laughs> and, that, well, and there's a little bit more. Uh, when you first got hired, you said that your contract was still being worked out. Are you on a base salary? Or do you have incentives worked in? Bill said, I'm signed. Wade says, a guarantee? Is it based on incentives? That's a key thing. Bill said, I don't think that's anybody's business but mine, the guy I worked it out with. But it's a crock of shit that I get a bonus bringing out money I've saved TBS. That's bullshit. Wade says, but you won't say whether it's a base salary or whether there are incentives built in? Bill said, I don't think that's anybody's business but mine. Wade said, that's fine. That's your prerogative. Well, I'm just telling you, your, your, your point, the point you ask is bullshit. And we keep going. This is getting better. Well, he said, it's out there. So I just wanted to make sure you had a chance to respond. Well, so I don't, Bill said, I don't give a shit. There's a lot of shit out there. Earlier, we know everything that's bullshit that's out there. Generally, most wrestlers are knee jerkers, and they don't know anything about the overall concept. They have all these ways they can solve the business overnight. They haven't sat down to know where the money's made or what departments you have to work with or how it's done. Instead of concentrating on the positives, how fortunate they are to be making the money they are, because they sure as hell couldn't make it doing anything else. They couldn't do it teaching school. They couldn't make it being a coach. They couldn't make it pumping gas. They need to concentrate how lucky they are to be there. Now, the fact is, a company wants to tighten this belt, like most companies are doing in the United States today. A lot of corporations are doing that, asking people to take cuts or to do this or do that to help the company. You better concentrate on helping the company. We'll be here. We'll go through this. Everything's going to be go just fine. We put our business plan together. Now that we've decided to talk to some people that we believe may be a little bit out of line on certain things, we're going to offer them certain deals. If they don't do it, the only thing is we might not invest quite as much as because the gesture we have to do may not be worth the return. We'll certainly make sure they'll make the money they're signed for. you got to understand the mentality of most wrestlers. First of all, they don't believe the operating conditions are what they are. They think the TBS is making a fortune off this show. That's step one. Step two, most of them have forgotten where they came from. It's skewed out there a little. I understand Brian Pillman. Hell, he got a hell of a deal with a guy, Kit Fry, who in my personal opinion didn't know a damn thing about what he was doing in a few short months, gave contracts out with a bunch of guaranteed bonuses that are ridiculous. So we're trying to come to people and negotiate. Some of those bonuses aren't the base pay or people that we can't use. Let's say there's a guy we don't need. Let's say he's got a contract for the year. Now, you see, if I was in that position where I wasn't needed and the company came to me and said, look, we'll give you X amount of dollars for the manager of your contract and a lump sum. All right. If we do that, you're released and we go on. To me, I look at it as a double advantage. I got the money up front instead of uh, over a year and a half payout. Whatever the deal. Let's say it was discounted 40%, 30%, 25%, whatever. It's discounted. I got that money as cash in hand. And I could take that money and go make another deal with someone else and go to work. So anything I pick up is a plus. Plus, how often do you get to accumulate large amounts of cash in one payment? You could maybe buy a hunk of land, pay your house off, or buy a business. See what I mean? So to me, it makes sense. It's just negotiation. If they don't want to do it, they're still going to get paid. Nobody at TBS has said we're not going to honor their contract. Now then, we can only push so many people. Let me tell you something. Jimmy Garvin's paid his dues, too. Right now, we just don't have the place to fit him in. Michael Hayes is being used in the broadcast aspect. See what I mean? There are a lot of guys sitting out there. Brian Pillman was sitting on the bottom, not doing a damn thing, and we figured a way to pick him up and teach and develop him. With the time, track, it would punish us to do so. 
Therefore, we're willing to live up to everything he's got in his contract. I was asking him to take consideration where he had cash in his hand, a portion of it. It didn't affect anything else, and he's put in a position where he can learn and gain more experience and become a more valuable person. If that's a negative son of a bitch, I don't know. But let me tell you something. You need to go back to the first grade with a lot of these guys and get bored out and do the basic math because they don't understand it. I'm not upset about it. I'm just trying to take the time to teach them. The next time they understand it, and they say, okay, and you act on the verbal agreement, the handshake, whatever. And next day, they want to change their mind. So, I mean, basically speaking, we don't need to belabor this anymore. I want off this point. It's just nothing here we're going to do anybody out of. We're certainly going to try to negotiate a position with some people. That goes on in any major organization. And way continues. <laughs> the one point I'm unclear on is how is it detrimental to push, say, Brian I would Pillman? just like to point out for a second that Chris originally said we were not going to include any of the Storch talk in there. But it's but I'm listen to this shit. <laughs> no, we listen, had to, but it's it's but, well. The reason why I week, said that was you know it took place out of our week, but it covers our week. Yeah, I mean as I'm going this, the one point I'm unclear on right, is how it's, it's right. Been. Okay, yes, because it's all stuff really from our week is what it pertains. To. Yeah. Yes, by the way, the one point I'm unclear on is how is, is it, how it is how is it a detrimental push say Brian Pillman if he does not forgo his bonus clauses? Then you would have to look at what the bonuses were affecting, which is what Brian's business and my business. So weight comes back. So if you push Brian X amount of degrees, then could that increase his bonuses? Bill says, that's not hard to figure. That's basic. But you see to him, by gosh, I signed this thing. I got this thing. I don't want to keep it. Then I said, that's fine. Then keep it. I didn't tell you not to keep it. It's just that what it takes you to put to push a guy with the way his contract structure costs such a bunch more money. I mean, let me tell you something. He's not drawing the money that's configured to what he's being paid now because it was out of skewed where people didn't know what they were doing. If Brian Pillman's with his organization or not with his organization, he's not going to make a hill of beans. But if we want to build him into that kind of guy, all I want him to do is take that in consideration. Then we will take the time and invest in the building him. At the end of the time, it either be a better guy or it didn't work out. But basically speaking, Brian is not going to make or break this organization. But Stinger Rick Rude, they're a proven commodity. I've numbered the most respect for both of them, and their contracts are great. The point I was talking to Rick Root about was totally different. It had to do, nothing to do with Brian Pillman's situation in any shape or form. It was not controversial between he and I. It wasn't a threat between he and I. It was just a deal where I saw a way. If it was an advantage to him, it might be an advantage to us. If not, no problem. He certainly wasn't upset about it. I, I, he's, not ex, he's not giving any explanation that makes the stories as reported wrong, though. All of what he says dovetails just fine with what's been reported. Yeah. You know, he's not saying he gave this didn't give this ultimatum to Pillman <clears throat> because he never said he was forcing Pillman to not take the money on his contract. He just gave him uh, an option. Yeah, like Yeah. Um and the way he's phrasing it here is he's kind of he's pressuring these guys by saying, "Well, you don't have to take this option that we're offering you, but if you don't take it, then we're not going to push you. That's basically what he's telling them. Yeah, that's a nice push you have over there. It'd be a shame <laughs> if something happened to it. Now, he talked about Rick Rude, right, and how Rick Rude felt. Yeah. Well, however, according to sources within WCW, Rude was upset over what took place in the meeting with Watts. From information gathered, it appears Rue was offered a lump sum of money substantially below his guaranteed contract, and to believe it would be around $400,000 a year for approximately another two and a half years. 
Then you'd be put on a nightly deal, similar to what Watts have been offering other wrestlers, in which they're guaranteed a reported 350, 500, or 1,000 per night, depending on their position with the promotion. Presumably, Rude's offer was somewhere in the $1,000 range. Well, there's no confirmation, so it could be substantially different from that. Also, Rude would also have the opportunity to take a lump sum of money and still earn his nearly guaranteed money if he worked most dates during the year. It has not been indicated whether there was a guaranteed number of dates Rude would be used. All indications are that none of the new deals being offered include medical coverage or compensation for injury on the job. <laughs> oh. So we got differing stories there. Not completely differing. Not about Rude and Watts. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That's what I'm talking about. Watts, okay. oh, Rude's fine. <laughs> and then it's like, uh. None offering medical coverage or compensation for injury on the job. Again, this would be a hot button issue with Rick Rude coming up. So, I mean, it's obvious that Watts wants to go back to the territory system of paying per night. And where he doesn't have to pay for someone's, you know, medical care. And the best case scenario is something like the arrangement like it was in Crockett where everyone on the roster would give $25 a week to the injured wrestler and the company would match it. And, and you bring up the guaranteed contract thing. Vix, who said that was a Ken Mantell's idea? Perhaps. Because Ken Mantell was running the business side of it. Hmm. Going back to 85. So, yeah. All right. There was also word from WWE Source that Sting believed he was next in line for proposed negotiation. Watts well, said he did talk to Sting on the phone Monday. Everything's fine with him. Sting's most lucrative guaranteed contract at WCW, which did not expire until 1995. Certainly, since it appears one of Watts' main goals since entering WCW has been to cut expenses. Working a new deal with Sting would be another step in that direction. However, exposing him to being signed by WF is not on Watts' want list. As far as I'm concerned, Sting's most, probably the most proven cornerstone we have here, said Watts. With efforts to renegotiate contracts, bury those on guarantees, take away their leverage, create stricter rules, cut back on minor expenses to detriment wrestlers, such as eliminating the buffet of TV tapings, despite WCW requiring wrestlers to stay at tapings from mid-afternoon until the cards over late in the evening, continued load attendance, no medical benefits or injury compensation, and the general attitude wrestlers feel management has toward them has all led the record low morale on WCW. According to uh, those same sources, some wrestlers are probably talking about wanting to go to WF. Because working conditions at WCW have become so poor in their eyes. The office staff was not immune to cutbacks, so they were informed me that their salaries would be cut 10 to 20%. Meanwhile, the workload of office staff will increase in some cases. Watson been criticized by several people close to the situation for being heavy-handed in managerial tactics, often over petty things and for showing little respect towards the wrestlers. Watson defended his actions in this week's Torch Talch interview. Let's go to that, shall we? Wade Keller, obviously I expect you to represent your side the best you can. I expect the rest to represent their side the best they can. But the difference is I know both sides and they don't, Bill said. They only know one perspective and what they know. Then they hear from other guys who misrepresent. But when you hear about morale being low, Bill said, shit, morale's been up and down and sideways and the rest of the business this day I got in it. Most of it's due to the knee-jerk reactions and guys relying on the negatives instead of the positives. Next thing you know, morale's low for Vincent Mann. A guy's making $400,000 a year and the morale's low. They have to work for it, you hear? God, I'm traveling too much. You got guys who, after they work four times a week, they're tired. So when they tell me that, I say, shit, kid, you're spoiled. 
Morale's a factor that changes daily or weekly. Two weeks ago, their morale was great. This week, their morale's down because they got all, all in one thing or another. That is as changeable in the rest of the business as anything. Most of the time, when morale's down, it's cause somebody, because of a misunderstanding or because somebody's misrepresenting what is being said to them, and they misperceive it as a threat all to them. Then Wade comes back. If morale was low, not necessarily rightfully low, but still low, is that something you want to try to address? Would you try to raise morale? The impression I guess a lot of managerial tactics used by promoters like yourself is confrontational. Maybe that's the way wrestlers have to be treated. But how do you dress morale if it's low? Bill said, you take the issues. First of all, that are being misrepresented, and you try to tell them the truth about the issue. And oftentimes you don't see them every day or even every week. So you figure that if something really is bad out there before they get all blown out of shape, that they'll at least call you and say they want to come in and talk to you. But instead, they go out and talk to everybody else. That's just indicative of sports today. I think any manager team, whether it's football or anything else, has to enforce rules and regulations and discipline. And they also have to deal with guys on an individual basis. Certainly, the same guy doesn't get the same deal as Neon Dion. The same guy doesn't get the same deal as Mark Rippon, who by this time was the quarterback on the Super Bowl champion Washington at that time, Redskins. It's disruptive and everything else, but that's just part of what goes into it. But certainly if morale's bad, first of all, I want to know if it's something that's bad based on something that's real or based on something that's perceived. Yeah, we'll address it. We always do. We've addressed it as we went on, and just sometimes you may be out of the sink the day you catch them with it because all of a sudden they've been on the road and nobody's been there to hold their hand. Wade said, would you say sometimes when morale's low, which wrestlers perceive as a good reason, and you perceive it's a bad reason, maybe you don't handle it as well as you should? Bill said, I never said I was infallible. I've never said that. And Wade comes back, didn't you try and correct your in- infallibilities? Yeah, everything is different. Again, I see the business from one perspective, and they see it from another. They think maybe the way I see it is different on one issue, since they don't know how, how the overall picture, and they don't, they don't always have the answer to it on a simplistic basis, but it's not that simple anymore. I didn't say that I've ever done everything right. It's a continuous situation. And certainly, too, if I'm wrong, I'll admit it. I have admitted it. I admit I was wrong on the top rope rule. What we're saying is, by gosh, the fans reacted, and we're going to take that into consideration. And that's the end of that part. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean Bill is he's he's trying to run this like I said like it you know like the old days and there's still a lot of those guys still in the business but times are changing. Yes. And he doesn't know how to adapt to the changing times. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean it's just that simple. We, I mean, this has happened in sports. And by the way, this uh-huh. is a single part torch talk. This is the whole torch talk. Oh, it is the whole talk. Well, there you go. All right. So this, this, this thing has happened in sports in the past where they'll, you know, a team will bring back this great coach from years gone by. And it's been a while since he coached and he comes back in and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, and sometimes it takes the coach a year or two to adjust, you know, Bill Watts, as we've said on this show, seemed like he was adjusting right before he got fired. You know, it seemed like he was starting to, to get something going a little bit, 
And then he got fired from all of his racial bullshit. Right. You look at who was getting signed, who was getting the pushes, <clears throat> the smoky deal. You know, it it seemed like he was getting it. You know, all of a sudden he's bringing... I mean, granted, Benoit he had been trying to bring in for months. It just took forever to get the visa. Good. Um, But Benoit, Scorpio... Van Dam, you know, bringing in the bodies and the rock and rolls. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting someone. Davy Boy. But at po- by that point in time, he'd been on the job for six months, you know? Mm-hmm. So he had time to get acclimated and start getting stuff down. He's only been on the job at this point for a little over two. Yeah, and he... He probably came to realize, now that he's more immersed in wrestling and maybe he's watching WWF and stuff, part of it was probably he came to realize that the light heavyweight division was a big differentiator for them. Yes. All right, Wade has this real quick. One scenario run by Wade speculated one possible reason wants to take up so many valuable guys off contracts and burying those who are still on contracts. The speculation said it's not just to say WCW money, but also sets a backup plan so it, that if he's fired from WCW for some reason, says early as December, then he could take all the guys he brought in who aren't under contract and restart the Mid-South Territory with guys already over due to the TBS exposure. If that's not his plan, in all fairness, it probably isn't. It sure sounds like an intriguing way to get leverage on TBS. And that's the thing from the previous week that Watts mentioned in the Torch Talk. Yes. That wouldn't have have happened. I mean, we saw what happened. I mean, Watts was not going to do that again. No. I mean, if nothing else, he's smart enough not to do that. But just it wasn't going to happen. He wasn't. He wasn't down for that life. Yeah. So. <laughs> wow. A lot of a lot of interesting stuff going on here with uh, the money situation in World Championship Wrestling. But you know, I mean, the thing that sticks out to me in his Brian Pillman discussion is the fact that. What money is he drawing? You know, and the thing is, he can use that rationale and to make his point because Pillman had never been put in a position to draw money. So that's a thing that can be used against guys like him. Because you notice he didn't say that against Sting and Rude. Right. What has he done to have this contract? What did he do to warrant this contract? And then, you know, it goes out to Kev Fry, talking about he didn't know what the hell he was doing. Right, especially since the incentives are for, and he has a point on this front at least, even if, yeah, it's agreed to in the contract, so you gotta go along with it, in good faith, is giving incentives just for being in main events and getting title shots without it being tied to what it draws or anything. I mean, that's a little... whatever. But I can see why he would object to that, at least. But, like, too bad. And again, he doesn't really deny that he offered him this choice, so... Well, do you think that... Do you think the Bill Wants is correct about Kip Fry? About what, specifically? You know what the hell he was doing? He was giving this money out willy-nilly. Here's the thing. Without knowing what people were making on average in WWF and how much it was shifting with business... We don't have a good comparison point because this is the only company with these kind of guarantee contracts at this time. So, like, in the grand scheme of what they've drawn, 
it's also, again, it's how you weigh WCW financially, too, in terms of they're not getting TV a TV rights fee, yet it's all really this vertical integration, even if TBS is not happy with it at the time. Like, it's just, it's hard to really pin down what a reasonable contract is, like, especially since wrestlers are underpaid anyway. So I don't know. Like, if you're saying relative to the pay scale of WCW at the time, I don't think Pillman is overpaid. Obviously, Watts did. <laughs> but relative to who was on a full-time deal, I don't think he was overpaid. What the thing is, though, is Watts is looking at this from a perspective of positioning of the of the talent rather than what they're doing inside the rink. Sure. And I know that wasn't exactly his version of the territory, but it is weird to see him reacting this way to, like, given what territory he grew up in and broke in with, to see how he treats the uh, light heavyweight division. All right, well, let's go to the TV that was taped on center stage on September 8th. Bill Watson announced that the top rope rule based on the fan response will be removed for the light heavyweight tournament and for that division starting with the tournament. That's because we care about what the fans think. Didn't the fans vote to eliminate the rule altogether, regardless of weight division? Uh, yes, they did. And they, that's what they made it, because there ends up not being a light heavyweight tournament anyway. Yeah. Shane Douglas debuted beating the Super Invader with a belly to belly. It was good how they put Douglas in exactly as, it, as every jobber would be, with no musical intro, big build-up, etc., making it like a typical squash, and then they put Shane over instead. Which, I mean... That's what they did, but Shane was a guy who people knew, so he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, this job guy coming out there, but it, it, Super Vader had been getting a kind of a little push on TV, so, I mean, it was kind of an upset. Yeah. And, you know. Now, I'm trying to remember, when did the Magnum TA video start? Is it this week or the week after? Because this is, uh, this is a report on the taping, not what aired. Well, this is his debut, and when that airs. Days after it's taped. Okay. But when do the Magnum TA is his new mentor videos start? Well, they they were doing the Magnum TA mentor thing in 88. No, but I mean, as far as the videos airing here, are they airing starting with... Not yet. Show? Okay. So it's... So, right. So he's a known quantity returning, but he is not Magnum TA's protege who's being gifted the belly-to-belly -belly yet, basically. Okay. Brian Pillman's told he'll did what appeared to have been a loaded boot gimmick to beat Marcus Bagwell. But Jim Ross never sold it clearly enough that if you didn't know what was supposed to be happening, you wouldn't have a clue what was going on. Pillman had another conversation, conversation with Brad Armstrong, which wound up with Sky Flamingo and Bagwell involved. Highlighted this coming Saturday show is Bobby Eaton and Arnold Anderson going to an off-air Tony. We gotta go. Draw with the Steiners. Now, a lot of wrestlers were impressed with Mark Canterbury. Who worked with Eric Watts all week and carrying decent matches. Unfortunately, Watts is in the worst possible position because he has little training and is in with a crew of mainly veterans and most the experienced and talented workers. Most of whom resent the current conditions, are afraid of their own job, and perceive Watts as being guaranteed money while never having worked a small territory and going over every night. Yes, indeed. And it's going to get worse. I mean, I think it's notable that he says minimal training, too, not just minimal experience. Yeah. That's not good. We'll have more on Air Watts later. Barry Winnen did clean jobs for the Barbarian on all but one night this week. Well, they got to build him up. 
Yeah, but Wyndham's name, you know, came up in that whole thing about the money. So, yeah. In fact, almost every match on the show, even when the heels win, in with clean finishes with the heel using his big move. Good. Jay Roberts suffered a concussion on September 6th, Locoba City. Missed both TV tapings, but was back on September 11th in Chicago. Oh, that's just great. All right, September 6th in Oklahoma City, the Myriad drew 1,000 fans. We have Tom Zinger over Sky Flamingo, Eric Watts over Mark Canterbury, Greg Valentine over Van Hammer, Dustin Rhodes over Marcus Bagwell, Vinny Vegas over Diamond Dallas Page, Barbarian over Barry Wyndham, Steiners over Arn and, B- and Eaton, Steamboat retaining TV title over Steve Austin, Rude and Jake over Sting and Nikita. Rude and Jake are the tag team that's funny to me. And then Ron Simmons retaining the WCW title beating Super Invader. Yes, your world title match. Then we go to the 11th for Chicago at USC Pavilion. No crowd number. On and eating over Van Hammer, Top Zeke. Eric Watson over Mike Graham. Dustin Rose over Bob Cook. The Barbarian over Barry Wyndham. Steiners over Greg Valentine and Dick Slater. Brad Armstrong over Brian Pillman. Steve retained TV title over Austin. Sticking the key over Jacob Super Invader. And then Ron Simmons retained the heavyweight title being Rick Rude. Better main event. Cactus Jack is suffering from, among many things, the badly torn groin muscles, moving very little at ring size. Manager Barbarian, he's not expected back in the ring until October. Which, if you want to know why Cactus wasn't wrestling a whole lot at this point in time, that's why. Yes, uh, I believe in his book he called it the most painful injury he ever suffered in wrestling. And that says a lot. Big Bambeda suffered a badly swollen wrist at the clash, but it wasn't broken. Ticket prices in both cities will be moved back, in, back up in October, with top price going from 12 to 15. Oh, this isn't going to please fans. Kiff Rice experiment of dropping ticket prices wound up having little, if any, positive effect on attendance and definitely had a negative effect on the gate income. So, yeah, now we have Kip, Kip Fry, you know, raising the salaries. But he's cutting the ticket prices, too. Yeah. If you're going to do that, you better have the crowd to uh, make up for it. They didn't. They were not doing it. Tex Salinger, whose re- reality is son of Ron Slinker, stepson, was given a try on September knife in Gainesville, at Georgia, and wasn't impressive. Shane Douglas and Pat Rose had a match. We saw Rose blow Douglas' belly belly finish so bad they had to retake it a few minutes later. Tex Salinger, you know who's friends with Tex Salinger, Biggs? That'd be Lance Russell. Lance Russell had a 900 number. Will retire on November the first. Russell's finally retiring just a few months later anyway, but they sped it up and pretty much are putting Jim Ross and Dennis Brent in charge of the 900 number. So now they don't pay per diem and travel costs for Russell. Wow. So they're forcing him to retire so they don't have to pay for his per diem and travel costs. Jesus. Lance Russell. Seems like he's heard enough. Well, <laughs> not have heard, though, but he's going to get in with Jim Hurd soon. With the real wrestling on. Yeah. yeah. But Lance Russell and his friend Ted's Tex Salinger. Pat, the shit's passed through tonight here. Yeah, and also it was the same week that Mark Canterbury's impressing everyone. Yeah. Eric wants to Shane Douglas to start as a tag team on September 23rd. That didn't last long. The Patriot was slated to come in, but that's how they've been canceled or delayed. Like two years delayed. Yeah. On Jim Ross's 100 line seven, we're going to the torch now. 
He said that critics of Paulie Dangerously are on WCW do not know what they're talking about because there's a plan for Dangerously which will surface down the line. Yes, there's a plan to uh, inspect the hell out of his travel reimbursement request <laughs> so Watts can fire him. That's the plan, yes. And tell him to call his fucking Jew lawyers about it. <laughs> yes. Patreon.com slash between the chickens. Um <sighs> And this is just bullshit. Uh, yes. WCW is now on WDIV in Detroit, which should help their reemergence in that market. In theory. It looks minor league to have Super Invader wrestling an outfit with tears all over it. Well, it looked minor league to have that fucking mask. Vinny Vegas was given his notice. That sounds wrong. <laughs> yeah, because he stays and gets kind of a little push. And then Wade has the last Russell thing over here, too. Bruno San Martino got a small part in Rob- the Robert De Niro movie, The Loft, where he'll play a tough pizzeria owner who talks to kids about staying up the drugs. Doggone it. Apparently, it was De Niro's idea to give San Martino a bit part as he was a big fan of San Martino's when he was younger. San Martino turned down Bill Watts' offer to become a Northeast representative to get in the new buildings for WCW, although he will appear in the Halloween Hemp Review in some capacity, probably as a commentator. You son of a gun. And I think this is just an episode of Tribeca. I don't think this is a Robert De Niro movie. Because he plays a pizzeria owner in an episode of Tribeca. Which is titled The Loft. I have a clip. Oh, we have the Bruno clip? Yes. Okay, I have never actually seen this before. I remember my dad watching Tribeca and telling me about it the next morning. So let's see what we got here. Of course, he's telling kids to stay off of drugs. <laughs> I'm shocked. I hope he mentioned steroids. And this airs in March, I think it said, right? 94. Oh, ni- no, 93. Nitro Rock. Second screen. Man. Hello? You ordered two pies? Yeah. Were you going to get them or what? A girl didn't pick them up. I'm calling to see if you like them. What do you think? I'm an idiot? I'd say you're borderline. What do you mean? You gonna come and pay for these spies, or am I gonna come over there and shove them down your throat? Shove this bonehead. <laughs> what will it be? Oh, a girl was supposed to pick up two pizzas here? You called me a bonehead. It wasn't personal. Borderline, I'll give you borderline. You owe me thirty-six forty. Okay, okay, Rocky, pay him. How much do you need for the extra pepperoni? Don't burn it. You didn't see a girl? Get out of here. Uh, my change, please. The part that Bruno was born to play. Well, at least we got a few drops out of it. <laughs> ah, what do you think? I'm an idiot. <laughs> How about I shove it down your throat? If only he would have said dog on it. Just, yes, just just like Vince had stuffed steroids down the throat of David. <laughs> the final show in WG in Chicago aired on September the 5th. 
No, WCW September 6th drew a 2.2 rating. That was Eaton and Anderson against Steiners. Main event on September 7th at a 1.7, which featured Dustin versus Katniss, Falls County Anywhere, I guess first week in NFL. And the all-new and improved Power Hour, the second or third week, fell to an all-new but non-improved 1.1 rating, one of its all-time lowest. Katniss had an unbelievable match with Dustin on main event on Sunday to Falls County Anywhere, which won with the elbow off the apron. However, Katniss's body will never hold up doing matches like that with all the hard bumps on concrete. You have to admire his guts and his dedication, and nobody works harder, but he's going to destroy himself if he doesn't calm the style down. It's 1992. Yes. Also, wait a second. Bruno didn't talk to the kids about staying off away from drugs. I guess they didn't make the cut. Jake is probably the best in the business on the stick right now, but in the ring, his main events are well below WWE standard main events. But at least they're better than Super Invaders' main events. Well, let's go to the uh, uh, September 12th episode of Worldwide, where Katniss Jack interviews Jake the Snake Roberts. You see W introducing a man who needs no introduction, but will get one from me anyhow. Jake Katniss the Snake Roberts, welcome to my little session here. I want to talk to you about a number of everyone's minds here. I'm guessing that the fan base at the time did not react as they react to this the way they reacted to Bailey in shorts over the weekend. <laughs> Or Jake, and Jake in his peace shirt. His peace sign shirt, yes. In World Championship Wrestling, the Stinger seems Wait, to just... Wait, this is courtesy of WCW Saturday Night. But it aired on Worldwide during our week. It's fine. It on, okay. Recently, the two of you had a meeting, and one of you came out a little bit the worse for wear. Would you like to explain why? Well, I've never liked Baltimore, and I've never liked Sting. You know that. Yeah. But I'll tell you something, Sting. It's not personal. You're the marquee player in WCW. That's what it's all about. When I came in, I was not under contract. No. No dues to be paid. All I'm saying was, I got to step up here and do something I feel like will reach out and grab everybody right by the throat and strangle them right down. That's what I done. Simple. In other words, when it comes to Sting, you don't really need a reason, just an opportunity. <laughs> the way I see it, now let's talk about another man, a man who's captured a lot of imaginations along the way to becoming the new world heavyweight champion, Ron Simmons. Where do you see yourself in relation to the champion, Ron Simmons? Everybody deserves a little. Ron Simmons, you deserve a lot. The athlete that you are, the man that you claim to be, or the man that you really are. That's what I want to know. Because you see, Ron Simmons, to achieve a goal is very simple. Every dog has a day, right? Every dog has a day. But to hold on, to keep it, that's the real test. And someday, you will be elected to be tested. If you don't mind me asking, Let's go on to a personal subject, one that's very dear to my pea-sized heart, and that's Dustin Rhodes, a young upstart, a coming superstar, the son I hear legend of, the legend in professional wrestling, Dusty Rhodes. He wrestled, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Didn't he? What do, you got in, what do you got in store for his little boy? Let me tell you something about the American dream. No doubt in anybody's mind, probably the most exciting man to ever step inside the ring up until I stepped inside that ring. But you, Dustin Rhodes, what part of the loin did you come from? Are you truly a chip off the old block or just a poor imitation? It was not my fault. It was not my intention to injure him. But my gosh, I'm walking down the aisle beyond you. This guy takes his head and runs it right into my chest. 
Now, I don't care who you are, how tough you are, but you stick your nose into my chest, then I've got to remove it. And that's simply all I've done. I didn't really abuse the kid. I mean, abusing children is not something I do, and he is a child, believe me, when it comes to a men's game like this. So, Dustin Rose, do yourself a favor, go back home and sit on Daddy's knee and keep away from people like Cactus Jack and myself. That's correct. That's a very good point, Jake. I like the way you're starting to sound. Let me ask you about another subject. What about Big Van Vader, the man who took Sting's crown? Where do you see his future in WCW? I don't know what it is about things that I shouldn't do, but it just seems like ever since I was a child, the things that I shouldn't do were always the most fun. Big Vader, there will be a time that I'll have to test you also. Because you see, if you're going to rule the roost, you got to not only knock on the left door and the right door, you have to knock on the middle door, you have to check the windows, you have to go down back, you've got to do it all. Now, I'll tell you something else about Sting. Let's get back to him. I mean, Vader was the man that, well, dethroned the champion. But how did Sting, where did it start with you? I mean, did it start with my little uh, bird dog here? Huh? You are my little doggy, aren't you? Do you have a position for a good hunting dog there, oh, Jake? brother, do we have a position for you? Look at you right now, all dressed up, man, doing this segment now. We don't need no Tony Schiavone. We got you out here. You're the superstar. But you're my good dog, man. Every dog needs an owner like me. And we're going to do what it takes. If it started at the box, it started at the box. Remember that sting? I remember boxes, Jake. Yeah. Well, remember this sting. We're still here. For WCW, this is Ben Cactus Jack. So there you hear that interview. You know, Shabani Cactus did that pretty good. Yeah. You might be out of a job soon. Yeah, he's pretty good at standing beside the snakes. Wouldn't you agree, fans? When we come back, world champ Ron Simmons in our main event on Worldwide Wrestling. Pause. I mean, Jake was awesome there. I mean, if you would have got that Jake... In uh, in everything other than the promos, good lord! And it's not like he had bad matches here, for the most part. <laughs> no, but he had good TV matches with when he had an opportunity. But man, I mean, just, just great stuff. Yes. All right, so let's go to WCW Saturday Night. Let's turn as well for Cowboy Bill Watt speaks about the top rope rule. Oh, is this the presentation where he explains what is it and isn't to DQ? I think so. Okay. Kind of Excellent. Boy, Bill Watts, the vice president of wrestling operations for World Championship Wrestling. And Bill, what are your thoughts regarding... I love that our vice president is nicknamed Cowboy. <laughs> also, yes. there's there's no uh, quotation marks, so he's just... It's his first name, Cowboy. Yes. Not only the Clash of Champions, but the, the voting of the fans. Oh, so we've got the Clash of Champions here, for the record. <laughs> yes. Not to be confused with Clash of the Champions or Clash, the Clash of, of Champions. champions. Clash, wait, the Clash of Champions, Clash of Champions, Clash of the Champions, the Clash of the Champions, <laughs> the Clash. <laughs> on the off-the-top rope rule, and of course, I'm sure all the fans are anxious to hear what the status is of the upcoming light heavyweight tournament. Well, you've asked three things there. First of all, in the clash, I was very excited. Like fucking Keller. <laughs> excited because that's a prime-time live broadcast, 
and the ratings were fabulous. It jumped over a rating point. That's heavy competition. That means the fans are interested in WCW, and we want to thank everybody that tuned in. It was sure great to see the stars from the past, the future stars of the present. I really enjoyed the evening. The vote, the 900-number vote, that was a way to let the fans voice their opinion. And we're sensitive to that. We wanted a consensus, and we've got it. Now, what we've done is, with the light heavyweight championship, which was a heart-rending situation with Bob there and his son Brad, and then the thing that happened with uh, Flying Brian, but we are going to set a tournament. We'll announce the, the details or more details about that tournament in two weeks. However, for the fans that voted against the top rope rule, when we have the light heavyweight tournament on that date, the top rope rule will be rescinded in the light heavyweight division. And we are studying it as far as the heavyweight division, but it's still in effect until the tournament and then the light heavyweight division, the top rope rule will be rescinded. And we want to thank everybody that took the time to tune in. And then we want to really thank the people that took the time to vote because that's what it's all about. The fans are number one, and I want to thank them. Bill, thank you very much. And we'll, uh, of course, ladies and gentlemen, talk more about that situation as the hour progresses. We're going to see two top light heavyweights in action right now. Let's go back up to Rhubarb. Oh, we're the two ladies top light Ladies and gentlemen, introducing first yeah, the one that gets at to the belt 229 pounds. From West Palm Beach, Florida, <laughs> Scotty Flamingo. And his opponent. And his opponent from Marietta, Georgia, at 232 pounds, Brad Armstrong. Two former light heavyweight champions getting it on here. Fans, let's take a. Oh, yeah, why is Brad a former champion? <laughs> Yes, you talk about this tournament we're going to have for this title that we took off Brad Armstrong, but here's Brad Armstrong. And we're talking about how great the clash <laughs> ratings are. We're talking about the, how great the clash ratings are because it was just a few days ago. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so that this was... did air the way Dave described it then. And this yes. is not the thing where they show the videos and stuff. That's later. Yes. So at this point, is he still is he actually planning a tournament? I guess so. It's being talked about. So is you it know, Go ahead. You know, the guy they just took the belt of is right there about to wrestle. Okay, so let's see if what he's saying is true about the ratings. January Clash did a 3-7. Uh, June Clash did a 2-8. And Clash 20 did a th was back to a 3-7. Okay, so basically a point up from the last Clash. So that's true enough. All right, well, let's go to Dustin Rhodes and one Eric Watts on W7 Saturday Night. I feel so bad for Dustin. Eric, too. No <laughs> fight association. Crowd here still buzzing on what we saw in those four. One thing to note on this episode of WCW Saturday Night that we're watching here on September 12th, just about every wrestler that is not wrestling on that show that's out there for a promo is wearing shirt and tie. Yes. They had not been doing that. Here's Dusty Rose, shirt and tie. Rick Rue was in a full suit. Gotta be professional, brother. So, so there's that. All right, let's go back to the clip. Light heavyweights, but it's always a pleasure to talk to the natural Dustin Rhodes. And Dustin, I know that you and Barry Wyndham at had great success in, in tag team wrestling. What are your future plans that as far as tag teams are concerned? Well, I've known Barry Wyndham a long time, and we work pretty good together. 
I've known him all my life, and he's taught me a whole lot in my professional wrestling career. And what we would like right now more than anything is to be the World Tag Team Champions. And that day will come. We're ready. It I does. Think Barry's ready. I know we're ready. Yeah. So when that day comes, whoever's the champions better watch out. Right now, of course, that's Dr. Ness, Steve Williams, and Terry Bam Bam Gordy. But looking at your individual career, what's on your mind as far as individual goals? Well, a lot of people want to conquer the world. I myself don't want to conquer the world just yet. I want to take each day step by step. And that step is around Ravishing Rick Rude's waist. That's the United States heavyweight title and belt. Ravishing Rick oh, Rude right now. Oh, hey, it's Eric Watts in the crowd. Mm-hmm, sure is. Oh, I'm going to go on record. I want your United States heavyweight title around my waist, and I'm initiating a challenge to you. It's very simple, Ravishing Rick Rude. I think I'm ready. I know I'm ready. I know my father thinks I'm ready. I know these fans know that I'm ready. And Ravishing Rick Rude, I'm challenging you right now. United States title. All right, Dustin, uh, I know you're ready as well, no doubt about that. We saw on the monitor a young man that's been training a great deal, a young man that was your host when you were on a recruiting trip at the University of Louisville, Eric Watts. How's his training going? Well, Eric's been training real hard. You know, I've worked with him. Barry's worked with him. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. He's doing real good. Hey, Eric, why don't you come on down here? Hey, me? Eric Watts over there in the uh, stands. Let's see if we can get him over here, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't had the opportunity here on WCW Saturday night to talk to Eric. Of course, the son of Cowboy Bill Watts, former quarterback for the University of Louisville. Well, Louisville tried it one more time against Ohio State. They came real close. I know you remember that game last year, but let's don't talk about football. Let's talk about how your training is going in wrestling. Watch bring it up, Jim. Being the most demanding sport I've ever played in, I've had to train double tough, but with people like Dustin, Barry Windham, and Steamboat, you know, my training's coming ahead of its time, and I'm ready to get in there, and like my father said, let's hook them up, you know? Aren't we taking up some valuable TV time? Well, it's, it's pretty valuable, Dustin. But Rook, let's get out of here. All right, he's taking the Rook with him, ladies and gentlemen. Dustin Rhodes and Eric Watts for the Outstanding Young Stars. We look forward to Eric's debut right here on the broadcast in the next few weeks. But right now, let's go back up to our good friend, Rhubarb Jones. Aren't we taking up valuable TV time? Yes. <laughs> How about that little tidbit there where Eric Watts was Dustin Rhodes' host on a recruiting trip to Louisville? That's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Huh. All right. Um, in the, I guess part of that Torch Talk deal, we get this, although it's not mentioned in Torch Talk. Bill Watts told Wade he liked the Jake Roberts sting skit. To remember how we have it, I did not think it was contradictory with the real deal message during the clash. I thought it was a lot of fun, said Watts. It was a mini movie. Yeah, and that's the beginning of the mini movies. Yeah, I guess he really liked it, huh? Mm-hmm. Good for him, I guess. Spin the wheel, make the deal. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a story on WCW's 20th anniversary clash with James, a large photo of Ron Simmons, Holding the WCW title belt. You must know where the comment by the writer Gene Sheely was calling Katniss Jack a hillbilly. <laughs> Am I the only one? This is Dave. Am I the only one that comes off as so out of place or at least terribly regional when Teddy Long plus his public appearances in elementary schools in suburban Atlanta on a national show? I guess with the Channel 69 block canceled, TBS is the only Atlanta outlet to plug his work, but it seems like wrestling from Atlanta rather than a national company when he does it. Yeah, <clears throat> but I mean, 
it's doing stuff for kids, Dave. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, I mean... Uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. All right, so now, something we don't normally do. We don't normally take a guest column from the torch, from one of their editorial columnists. But we got one here that uh, is definitely interesting, to yes. say the least. Yes, I noticed this, and it dovetails well with the rest of what's being talked about here, and it's stuff that's not normally talked about, so we figured it was worth including. Oh, by the way, real quick, what was that that uh, Dustin Rhodes called Eric Watts at the end of the segment there? Rook. Thank you. <clears throat> NBA Jam. Yes. From the 90s, yes. Alright, um, this is from We Own What? A Wrestling Group? By Eric Kroll, editorial columnist of The Torch. When dealing with the issues affecting professional wrestling, one tends to take certain maxims for granted. However, digging beneath the surface sometimes proves so-called conventional wisdom false. Take, for example, the premise that keeps many an informed wrestling fan from leaving the mat sport altogether. Namely, that one day, WCW will turn things around and become a profitable company under the Turner banner. This is obviously a covert hope harbored by almost everyone who loves the sport of wrestling and hates that it's become sports entertainment. More overtly, suggestions on how to improve WCW and criticism of angles and television programs fill publications like this one. What's this, about AEW again? <laughs> that sounds similar. Uh, even Bill Watts, in his infamous Lester Maddox audition for WCW, Hey, Ted Turner, Hire Me interview in last year's Pro Wrestling Torch Annual, said that, gosh darn it, he'd come in, kick tail, and made WCW a profitable wing of the Turner Empire. Well, Tony definitely didn't do any interviews <clears throat> about Lester Maddox, so there's that. <laughs> this conventional wisdom is a pipe dream. No, not because WCW would never be profitable, although that might, that might be true also, but because WCW does not mean a damn thing within the Turner Broadcasting System Corporation. I have viewed and read countless Ted Turner diatribes on how big the Turner Empire is. So being a wrestling fan, having a curious mind, I looked up TBS Inc. and Moody's Industrial Manual and Standard and Poor's Corporation Listing, the two Bibles for business types. As far as I can tell, WCW is part of either pay-per-view subsidiary Turner Home Entertainment, or the syndication company. At the time the index was published, Jack Peacher was still the president of WCW. In the TBS pecking order, he's listed as the vice president for syndication. So maybe WCW is lumped together with Captain Planet or whatever other programs TBS syndicates. Heck, WCW is not even lost in the shuffle because it's not even in the shuffle to begin with. WCW must be one of the far reaches of the Turner Empire. It's probably where young as heck is who screw up or sins. Like, kind of like Siberia. Kip Allen Fry must have really pissed somebody off, of course. WCW being another world of TBS. Probably doesn't do wonders for the suits that are sent to oversee the floundering wrestling promotion. They come in with bad patronizing wrestling as fake attitudes or probably do anything to be moved back into the TBS mainstream. The index also listed the major purchases by TBS. Well, TBS lists the formation of CNN, the purchase of NGM, the creation of TNT, among some important purchases. WCW is nowhere to be found. Even if Ted did spend $6.5 million on the company in late 1988, according to Standard & Poor's, this TBS had a sales of $806.3 million last year. So if Bill wants brass, he's going to come in and turn the company around and make it profitable. I believe his words were, there's no reason this company can't be prof a profitable one. It simply doesn't matter. Even if the company turned a profit of, say, $12 million a year, it wouldn't mean squatting the whole Turner empire. 
I don't think Turner would notice if Wants is making him money. This also explains why none of the neat tie-in ideas readers have suggested over the years have ever come to fruition. CNN does not have wrestlers on their programs. They move, which many have said is necessary to get mainstream publicity, to create new stars. Hey, it's likely that very few suits in CNN are even aware of wrestling companies under their umbrella, let alone there would be a conflict of interest. WCW is a forgotten child in TBS land. What does this mean for the average fan? Well, people should realize that when they fantasize about WCW, they're not seeing the forest for the trees. Before getting all self-righteous when a clash is moved, the brave announcers make fun of the wrestling shows, or Captain Planet preempts the first 20 minutes of WCW main event, remember, WCW means nothing. When analyzing WCW, you should always be kept in mind that TBS does not care about its wrestling company. WCW is kept around for cheap television programming, which draws decent ratings. Period. Some suit likely looks at the books at the annual TBS meeting every July, sees the ratings, glosses over the rating, and the company's allowed to continue production. It really surprises me that the plug wasn't pulling all the house shows a long time ago. After all, if just about each one of them is losing money, then what's the point of continuing them? Then again, WC is probably a good tax write off or a loss later, as has been dubbed in the past. So until WCW creates next Hulk Hogan or Rock and Wrestling Connection, selling all the WCW dolls, t shirts, condoms, and Lord knows what else, making 1.7 billion a year like Titan Sports, <laughs> as if, keep it all in perspective, folks. WCW is a pimple in the butt of Turner's broadcasting system. Let's hope no one pops it. I mean, he's on the money. A lot of this stuff, and that's something that really we don't talk about enough in all in, in regarding the history of WCW. I mean, WCW, to the people at Turner, was programming. It was content. At best. At best. They Even though they owned the company, it was content. That's all they called thought of it as. Mm-hmm. Why, should, why should we... You know, do anything to help us out. The, the only time that this that this thought of differently, NWO. Because you think about it, you know, I just watched this Nitro, uh, the day before we recorded this, the Nitro the Omni, the the famous one, the last Omni show. Oh, I the mean, one that we also talk about on the new Patreon show. Uh, yeah, Doctor Harvey Schiller is is there making an appearance? You know, I mean. When would you have ever thought you would see a, a Dr. Harvey Schiller type person on a wrestling show? They were so hot at the time that it made it easier for him to be on the show. Yeah, isn't it also amazing that that also happens to be White Knight? Even though Jacqueline's on the show, Bix. Oh, so Jacqueline is on the show. Jacqueline's on the show with a promo in front of the okay. live crowd. Okay, because yes. when we're doing the Patreon show, the stuff we found did not mention Jacqueline. And Jacqueline's says, on the show with Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart. They take up the announce desk. Jacqueline cuts this, this fiery promo, jumps at Kevin Sullivan's arms. Oh, does Kevin uh, have a match? No. Okay. He, he just stands like a statue. Jacqueline's the one that – it's Jimmy Hart and Jacqueline really cutting the promo. Sullivan does talk. But she is but the only black performer on the actual Nitro. And, and, yeah, and, but you have multiple Mexican performers, though. Yes, but also she she's the Booker's valet, so even if – even if Pez Watley did not remember her being on the show. Harlem Heat's on the show. I mean, that would be, I mean, the cat versus the dart match. Harlem Heat's on the show. I mean, that's your main black talent at the time, but, but yeah. But anyway, yes. But, but she's on the show. But still, but I'm saying, you wouldn't have saw that, you know, at this point in time at WCW. 
I mean, Ted Turner does make his appearances. But that does happen. But he's Ted Turner. He has an affinity for pro wrestling. Yeah. So there's that. But the rest of Turner Brass? Oh, no. No. And the CNN folks hated wrestling. That goes back to CNN being created. You ever heard Keith Oberman tell the stories about about uh, working at CNN with mm. the, the when they take the wrestling? Mm, I don't think so. All right. CNN at that time, their offices were under the studio. So on Saturday mornings when they're taping wrestling. So it was Techwood upstairs or <clears throat> CNN was in a basement? It was downstairs at the studio. It was it was downstairs in the studio. No, but I'm saying was the wrestling <clears throat> at Techwood in an upstairs studio? Yes. Or, okay. Yes, it was an upstairs studio. Okay. Um he said that when they were down there, you know, doing work, I mean, that's all you heard. I mean, there was the, the shaking and the the stuff like that, and it pissed everybody off that was down there. They couldn't stand it. They hated it. Because they can't get no work done because when they're doing stuff in the ring, you know, it's a you know, it's making noise and doing other stuff. So you had those people that were in CNN in that era. You know, that were probably now have, you know, when by the time they buy WCW or in higher positions and stuff like that, they are, they hate the wrestling already. So, yeah. I mean, there's so much that goes into all this, you know? Yes. Oh, and Chris, I just found something. Just I was pulling up the other newsletters real quick. Our week, uh, Wrestling Flyer, as part of an interview with Terry Taylor... Where he talks about what happened recently when his WCW contract went up under Bill Watts. Expired under Bill Watts. John Clark asks, what was happening recently when your contract came up? Well, what's so strange <coughs> is, I mean, I don't begrudge Bill because I know he's a businessman. And he's got to do what he's got to do. I called him once a month for the two years after the UWF folded. For the last two years, I've called him about once a month or once every six to eight weeks just to see how he's doing. Touch base with him. And he was doing that omnitrition, and he wanted me to sell it, and I didn't want to, which, you know, is no big deal. I appreciate his – he taught me stuff about business, and he was always kind of a teacher, one of those hard teachers, not the kind that would ever let you slide. Every time you did something, he really let you know about it. I mean, he was very hard-nosed and very opinionated. As I scroll up here, so John asks, but he had a belief in you, wanting to teach you, and uh, Paul Taylor says – so actually, I mean, he's okay. Actually, no, I was going to skip this, but it does. Talk, it is talking about ninety two. Uh, yeah, if he thought you did something wrong, he'll let you know. So a while ago, my wife said, "Bill's the new boss," and I said, "Well, this is going to be good. At least maybe now I would get a chance to do something." I really thought he would run with the guys that got him to the to the. I'm guessing this is supposed to say dance, but it's a typo. <clears throat> uh, go back to the old <clears throat> UWF thing when. He, and when he came in, he barely spoke to me and acted like we weren't really, you know, I guess, friends. And I said, oh, no, something's wrong. Politics is part of it, just like everything else. I just said, Bill, I'd like to get a meeting with you when you get a chance. I know you have to straighten all this other stuff out. My contract was up on August 9th, so they had to tell me something by July 9th. I got something July 8th saying they wanted to discuss my future. Well, nobody would meet with me. I mean, nobody would meet with me. So finally, June 23rd, I... I had to call the office at 5.30 at night, and Magnum finally told me they didn't renew me. I mean, none of them would tell me. I know it's not easy firing guys, but to them, it's another decision. To me, it was my life. 
Finally, a week later, I talked to Bill, and I just asked him, Bill, you never gave me a chance to do anything. I said, uh, you fired me before you even saw what I could do, and if anybody else knew what I could do, ooh, it's you. He said, the way you've been used on television, you've got to get out of here for a year. To be repackaged and used would not mean a damn thing. Get out of here for a while, and we'll go see what happens. I didn't agree with him, but what am I going to say? And then uh, John asked, it was printed in a recent edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter that you were offered to work $300 a night on an unspecified schedule. Is that true? That's not true. He never offered me anything. He just let me go. There was never a dollar figure, nothing. He just said, you've got to get out of here for a while. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, they talk more about loyalty and stuff, too, but... <sighs> huh. They were planning on releasing you and just nobody... Well, not releasing you. They were planning on letting your contract expire and just no one from uh, talent coordination or talent relations calls to say anything. What does that remind you of? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> huh. Does this make Christopher Daniels the new Magnum TA somehow? <clears throat> it's possible. I, I'm, not go, I'm not going to... Uh, affect, Say anything negative about Marco or Janelle or anyone like that by calling the new Terry Taylor. <laughs> I definitely would not say that about Sonny Kiss. That would be especially mean to call Sonny Kiss the new Terry Taylor. But anyway. So yeah, I feel like that uh, that was a good way to bookend things there. Alright, let's go to the land of the rising sun now in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Last tour ended on September 9th for Cell and Chiba. For the Akira Tawai Toshio Kawada singles match to determine who gets the shot of Mitsuharu Masao's Triple Crown on October 21st at Budokan. Kawada made Tawai submit in 1846 with a stretch plum. And the building went crazy since everyone wants to see the dream match of Masao versus Kawada. On the same card, Yoshinari Gawa beat Shoshikakuchi in a PWF Junior title match against Masafuchi at the Budokan, which is another dream battle of the usual tag partners. All right, results of the show. Mitsuharu Masao went away. Torosaka over Yumizumita, Giant Baba and Mighty Inoue over Matoshi Okuma and Haruka Egan, The Patriot and Jackie Fulton over Dan Crawford and Doug Furness, Ogawa over Kikuchi, Terry Gordy, Dr. Steve Williams, and Tommy Angel defeated Danny Spivey, Tommy Rogers, and Bobby Fulton. Mr. Amasan Kanakabashi over Jumbo Sharuda and Masafuchi, and then Kawada over Taue. See, here's the thing. If you're doing the cornet Johnny Angel thing for Tommy Angel, it's not Tommy Angel, it's Tommy Angel. Uh, yeah, but... Yeah, this sets up the first Masawa Kawada match in October. And I just watched this fairly recently. Um, good God. <laughs> uh, this, uh, yeah, the Kawada Tommy match is fantastic. The tag match before it, fantastic. Ogawa and Kikuchi, which what, what what aired, not complete, was a hell of a fucking match. So, uh, yeah, this is some good shit right here. And Kawana and Taue, their few singles feud doesn't get talked about enough, but they had some amazing matches. He, oh my god, especially there was one at Cork and the oh my god, that place is volcanic for that match. If people just don't forget it, just don't talk about it because they always talk about Kawada and Tawai's tag team. But they had a blood feud. I mean, a blood feud in uh, this this era right here. So, um, 
definitely, if you've never seen it, go go and watch some of those singles matches they had in this era because it's fantastic. Fantastic. Did you... Um, <coughs> I haven't seen the actual video, but did you see some of the tweets and stuff with going over yeah. the highlights of the Kawada Eddie Kingston thing? Yeah, nah, I mean, he's genuinely surprised that people watch his matches. Yes. Which, I, you know, don't surprise me. Yeah, it really about, does. And also the way he was like, and you can do it for free now? Yeah, <laughs> I mean... surprised it, it, that it's on you. so much of it is on YouTube and that Westerners are watching it, yeah. Yeah, so... And uh, also, it, he, he said I, something to the effect of, I appreciate that you love our style, but it also destroyed all of our bodies. He's not lying. Uh, Where's the lie in that? Look at him. Yeah, and he got out earlier than the others. So, all right, New Japan Pro Wrestling. They had a TVSI midnight television special on September 7th, got on the heels of the successful JWP special a few weeks back. The big news on the special was they had a taped interview with Tanuka Nichiro talking about one of the wrestlers, Ricky Choshu and Tanunoki. Sammy's tenure appearing at the January 4th uh, Tokyo Dome card is all but etched in stone. Ed Stone! Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, the war guys start coming in before 92's over with. And the JWP special is the one where uh, John Muse, Meltzer, and Sean Waltman are basically held captive for hours? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, but um, which by the way yeah. is a thing that happens in TV studios sometimes. Like, if they are shooting or live, they don't necessarily want people to leave. Like the one time I went to a sitcom taping, it was like, if you want to leave, once it was running late and long, it was like leave now, kind of thing, and then it would, they'd be back to setting up shots and stuff. But um. Yeah, I'm in the New Japan War feud era right now, really getting going. I'm in February 93, am I watching? And, uh, well, and War also just launched, too. <clears throat> yeah, so good stuff. I mean, solid stuff so far. All right, back to 92. The new tour opened with a sell at a 6350 at a soccer professional gym on September 10th. Man Vince saw NWA champion Masahiro Chono beat Kensuke Saki with STF submission in 30-39 and was said to have been a super match. And it was. Scott Norton beat IGB champion Keiji Muno in just 656 with a power slam, which no doubt will supplement a match in October. Which it did. Hiroshi Hase returned from shoulder separation, but was pinned by Shion Shimoda's running DDT in the other top singles match. He also ran an angle underneath with the new heel group of karate guys, Agato Saido and Masashi Oyangi, Kevin Kamura, and Shiro Koshinaka. I see it, Shingo. He started with the karate guys against Tetsumi Fujinami and Osama Kido. Fujinami caught Saito in a chicken wing crossface. Saito couldn't break the hole, but also wouldn't submit. So finally, the referee stopped the match rule, Saito unable to continue. Saito and Oyagi went nuts, refused to leave the ring area. Next match is going to be Kimura Kushinaka over, again, well, going against Choshu and Izuka. But Saito and Oyagi stayed out and joined with Kimura Kushinaka and attacked Choshu and Izuka until young wrestlers Hiroshi Yamamoto and Koji Kanemoto came in and the scheduled tag turned an eight man, with Izuka getting pinned by Kimura. All right, the results of this show. Hiroshi Yamamoto over Shinjiro Otani. Coach Komuro over Satoshi Kojima. Super Strong Machine over The Killer B. Brian Blair. El Samurai and Justin Oliga over Hiroshi Noyonaga. Masaido and Tony Hame over Great Kokina and Wild Samoan. Osama Kino and Tetsumi Fujinami over Saido Noyagi. Then we get the Ape Man. Hashimoto over Hase. Norton over Mudo. Chono over Kensuke. Some really solid stuff on this show. Really solid stuff. 
Dave knows Shoshu's really behind the karate angle, although there's disagreements as others in power don't want to push it. <clears throat> I mean, those guys are over. I mean, Koshinaka was an overdude. And it got Kimura over again. I mean, when it first got going, it was a hot angle. And it kept it going. I mean, God knows, it went for four years, basically. So it, it kept going for a long time. Yeah. And it eventually branched off into, you know, them promoting their own shows and this, that, and the other. So it was a good deal for New Japan. Absolutely. Yeah, and I feel like, I feel like people almost forget that Saito, even though he was part of Isaiah Gun, I feel like they forget that he's an Aoyagi student. He did not start New Japan. <laughs> and, and, and in all actuality, at this time, they're they're really not Isaiah Gun by name just yet. They're the Anti Players Association, mm. and they're the ones that start the feud with War because they're pissed off that War is getting involved in New Japan. So there's that too. Yeah. So okay, I. I'm looking at Ekatoshi Saito's cage match. So he has an FMW match, of course, and then his first match after that that's listed is it's and it's listed under freelance shows on cage matches. Saishin Kaiken special one night match the dog fight for a show that features so features women from JWP Features guys from Universal. It has a different style fight tournament where Brutal Bushwhacker beats Saito in the first round. (coughs) And Matsunaga beats Suter. And the main event is Matsunaga uh, winning the NAWF North American Heavyweight Different Style Fight title. Beating Brutal Bushwhacker. What the hell is this? I've never heard of this before. Have you? I have no idea. But anyway, Hisashi Shimba, who's Antonio Noki's personal business manager, held a press conference on September 10th and announced they're working on putting together a Noki versus Tenru match as a one match card at Tokyo Dome in March. They can't be serious about a one match Dome card. They weren't. Latest also, words. T- <sighs> is it possible he just didn't mean that literally either and it got lost in translation? It's possible. But there's no Dome show in March. Uh, latest word is that the tag tournament lineup in October is in jeopardy. Well, he means January because the previous Dome show was in March. There's no January. Oh, well, the, I mean, the one the year before was. But there's no January 4th tradition yet. 92 is the first year with January 4th. <laughs> latest word is tag team tournament lineup in October is in jeopardy. There are problems regarding Big Van Vader, who may or may not. Wait a minute. January, they ran January 4th for 92, Bigs. What are you talking no, about? No, I just said that. I said there's no tradition yet. I know that's the only one. Yeah. Last word is tournament lineup in October is in jeopardy. There are problems regarding Big Van Vader. May may not work for this group again. Vader and Bam and Bigelow, who were the top four team, are probably losing the finals. Also, Terry Taylor, who was a team with Tom Zink, apparently has canceled over money. Taylor was going to be given a chance to become a regular, asked for $5,000 a week, based on the fact that's the deal Jim Neidhart got. He was only offered $3,000 a week, and Hiro Matsuda wouldn't go any higher. So did they refuse to give him the tour when he was negotiating, when he negotiated, or did he cancel out of principle? <clears throat> Especially given that he needs a job. He canceled. <sighs> he, he stood firm on his money. You need it. Like, here's the thing, though. I get it. You're a better fit for, for New Japan than Jim Neidhart. 
Jim Neidhart is a much bigger star than you, Terry Taylor. And Jim Neidhart had a history in New Japan as well. Yes. There's that. Terry Taylor didn't. Terry Taylor had an All Japan tour, but Jim Neidhart had, I think, more than one New Japan tour. But, um, yeah, that would have been something. Terry Taylor in the mid-90s uh, New Japan. So when did but he, he goes actually... To, yeah. yeah, he goes to WWF with... Terrific Taylor. I forget. Did Cornette try to get him when he got... Uh, yes. But yes. then he got the WWF offer. Yes. I think we actually have that in the notes. Okay. <laughs> uh, the debut of Ron Powers in the Tasmaniac, originally during the September tour, was moved back to November. And that does happen. Yes. Which, does does Ron Powers work as Ron Powers, or does he use a different name? He works as Ron Powers, but he does the Brody stick. He does his Brody and, Powers. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he works as Brody Powers. And the crown is not sure what to think about that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, not enough time has passed to where it could be just like a fun thing like it was with Predator in Zero One. Yeah, they didn't know what to think of that. So, alright, let's Which, go to... I mean, in fairness, Ron Powers was friends with the guy. Yeah, but still. Let's go to War. They ran a uh, cheetah on November, November, September 11th. Drew a legit sell at 24.50 for a card headlined by King Haku and the Great Kabuki beating Road Warrior Animal and Tenru by count out when Kabuki blew Miss and Tenru's eyes in 2037 in what was surely a stiff match. The car was in Kabuki's hometown and his friends from junior high and high school legitimately packed the place. A lot of friends. Masao Hara debuted his new gimmick in the opener using the same ring name, but wearing a tiger mask in a 20-minute draw with Tutsumi Kitahara. Okay, there's clearly something lost in translation there, because I don't think that happened. Yeah. All right, uh, and the results have Kitahara beating Orihara. Now, uh, had had Orihara had the mohawk and stuff before this, though? Um, He was ball-headed. Okay. He was ball-headed at this time. So when does he, when does he grow the mohawk? Later on. Okay. Yeah, because he works the New Japan stuff, and so he's ball-headed. Okay. Uh, Chava Guerrero over Nobukazarai, Takashi Shikawa over Yoshirito, Samson Fuyuki over Paul Diamond, and Haku Kabuki over Animal and Tenru by count. Oh, we, get, we got a reprise of Japanese force versus American force seven years later. <clears throat> yes. With Fuyuki and Paul Diamond. What appears to be the biggest news came from a non-wrestling magazine interview with George and Shinji Takato this past week. The brothers said they were quitting now, never wrestling, and said that Hashiro Tanaka, the billionaire behind Now, War, and PWF. Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, he means. Yes, Pro Fujiwara Gumi, was growing tired of the wrestling business. They said the limit of his involvement is to give War $1.5 million to start up and now $480,000, but that would be the end of his financial involvement. Tanaka's groups, with the exception of PWG, have been huge money losers. Many feel it's simply a matter of time before both groups go through their allotment and that barring getting a new financier, they they both may be history at that point. Okay. This whole thing is so weird and confusing. So Tanaka starts SWS. He – when the UWF closes, I guess he's a UWF fan, so he helps start Fujiwara Gumi and is funding that. But also a bunch of guys fall out with Tenru. Because who was it? Takano's, Ishimriki, Manasuke Ueda, anyone else? But that crew. And he funds Network of Wrestling. He basically, oh yeah, here's something else comparable to now. Network of Wrestling basically becomes the AEW collision of SWS. 
Yeah. And then this happens. But the part I never really understood was why did they close SWS if he was at least involved in more to a degree? Was it more that it was just this startup capital thing, whereas SWS was like his company? But now was already his company. So what's the difference? Why let now keep going, but not SWS? It's strange, right? Who knows? Who knows? I have no idea. <clears throat> FMW. Washed up kickboxer Kasuji Ueda regained the AWA heavyweight title from Dr. Lucer with a third round knockout in the FMW. How show long has he been working there? Is he still Dr. Lucer in the newsletters? On to, oh, in total on September 7th. The men of saw Sushi Anita refused to even miss one house show team with Samba Osako, winning a barbed wire street fight, turning on a death match from Sabu and Tiger G. Singh. All right, results. Ricky Fuji over Koji Nakagawa. Big Titan over Amigo Ultra. Megumi Kudo, Combat Toyota, Miwasato over Erika Shishuya, Yoshika Meodamari, and Kubika Matsuda. Then you wait over Dr. Luther to win the title. Tarzan Goto and Gregory Verichev over the Merc- Mercenarios. And then no Rose Barwar Street Fight Death Match, Onita and Asako over Tiger G. Singh and Sabu. Okay, this is Lenny Sinclair's second uh, <clears throat> tour as Dr. Luther. So, there you go. It's a long tour, by the way. Or maybe not. Oh, no, it's his third tour. Sorry, I think I misread stuff. He had, he had, done, or he had done some stuff that wasn't full tours, but still. So he's been there for a while, and people st- in the U.S. still think he's Dr. Looser for some reason. Oriental Pro. They had a big success in a small town of Kofu on, on September 12th. Drawing a legit set of 3253. There's a lot of juice on the car. The semifinals of Rima Go beat Ruki Hiroshi Atakura, and nobody could believe how much Erika bled. His forehead was said to have been like a water faucet. Well, results from Kofu Civic Hall. Carl Pope over Mitsukata. Welton Wilkins Jr. over Kazuko Matsuzaki. Mike Miller over Nobutaka Araya. Bart Sawyer over C.W. Bergstrom. Ryuma Go over Roshi Takura. And the Bruce Brothers, Ron and Don Harris over Jesse Barr and Masahiko Takasugi. Sure. So the Portland relationship's in full force here. And Wellington Wilkins for some reason. Yes. Says Oriental Pro. All right, UWF, Universal. <clears throat> yes, Universal Lucha Libre. Rocky Santana won the UWA lightweight title on September 6th at Corican Hall in Tokyo, being longtime champion Lasser. But Lasser regained it back on September 9th at Sapporo. Santana's hardly a lightweight, as even though he's only about 5'3", he must weigh in the 180-pound range. Santana got his foot on the front page of Tokyo Sports on Monday, not only for winning the title from Lasser the previous night at Corkin, but mainly since he not only looks like Onita, but wears the same exact kind of ring outfit as Onita. Our results of the Corkin show from 1,800 fans. We have Masa Michinoko over Super Tigrito. Kendo over Black Magic. Norma Smiley. Santana over Lasser. Shua Guerrero retained the UWF Super Middleweight title over Cooley SZ. Then the UWA UWF Intercontinental Titles is Bulldog KT and Pat Tanaka retained over Lightning Kid and Dynamic Lynn, Jerry Lynn. And Gray Sasuke, Dos Carters, and Grand Hamada be Super Dolphin, Viano 4, and Power Slam Johnny. Was Black ever, Power. Was he ever actually called Super Dolphin, though? I think in the early days, that was kind of the translation of it. Okay. I, well, I never really understood if that was wrong in the first place. But, yes, this <laughs> is the early part of uh, 
Rocky Santana dressing like Onita when he comes to Japan. Which became kind of a cult thing for him. But if you ever want to know why Patsunaka was hooked up with Ghetto and Jado in New Japan in the early 2000s, here you go. Yes. There's a, this relationship from this era right here. Yes, probably also one of the reasons that when he tried to scam wrestlers by saying he'd get them licenses to work in Japan, probably one of the reasons he named Mishinoku Pro was he actually knew those guys. Yes. So it seemed vaguely plausible. Um, but they're still drawing okay at this point. They're not bringing in as many big-name luchadors, but they've developed their own native roster more, and they're bringing in some interesting, you know, non-Mexican foreigners, too, who are fitting in well. Like, you know, if you've ever seen it, like, the stuff with, you know, Waltman and Jerry Lynn, I don't know if I've ever seen any of the Ricky Rice stuff. They both did great here, you know? Probably better than you'd expect, given how little, you know, how they would have had no real, like, lucha lucha experience. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's the Mishinoku Pro guys leaving, I think, that really weakens this promotion more. Cool SZ when the UWS Superman off from Shua Guerrero with a double arm DDT on September 9th for Sapporo. Right, and as a reminder, that's Jado, <laughs> Bulldog, KT, Ghetto. Sapporo Tyson Hall. Super Degrito over uh, Otska. That's what it says, Otska. Alex? It's possible. Dynamic Lynn and Jerry... Dynamic Lynn and Lightning Kid over Power Sam Johnny and Leopardo Negro. Last over Santana to win the belt. Cooley over Shu to win the belt. Then we have an elimination match. Kendo, Doscardus, Grand Hamana, and Grace Sasuke over Super Dolphin, Bulldog KT, Pat Tanaka, and Viano 4. So there's UWF. Yes. Wing! Um... Uh, for what it's worth, Alexander Otsuka, the earliest results listed for him are uh, PWFG. Wing ran Cork and Hall on September 10th for a cage death match with Mr. Pogo, beating Gypsy Joe in a loser must retire match. Well, good luck with that. In 1508. Rest of the results Ryo Miyaki, Masoshi Mategi, Masaru Toy, and Jason the Terrible over the winger, Hirofumi Yura, Hiroshimana, and Yukihiro Katamura. Then you had Jason the Terrible over Yukihiro Katamura, Masashi Mategi over the winger. And then Pogo over Gypsy Joe in the cage match. Hmm. Manager of Heavyweight Bosses Mitch Blood Green, James Bonecrush Smith, and Buster Douglas are interested in Japanese mixed matches. Douglas turned down a $300,000 offer to put Antonio Noki over last year, but apparently has more interest in doing so now. Only problem is, Buster's well over 300 pounds, probably hasn't spent more than a few minutes in the gym since beating Mike Tyson in 1990. He turned that down because he thought he could still have a, a legitimate boxing career. Well, that didn't happen. Yeah. And plus, he beat Mike Tyson in Tokyo, the Tokyo Dome, so there's that hook. But none of this happens. And all Japan women. They take TV on September 11th in Morioka before 2450 as Bull Nakano kept the CMLO title over Yuka Hota. And Triple WA, UWA World Tag Champions Toshio Yamano and Manami Toyota lost an on-time match to Aja Kong and Sakashigawa. All right, results. Mima Shimoda and Escomita, LCO, over Miori Kamiya and Karaito. Akira Hokuto over Bat Yoshinaga by Countout. Kyoko in a way, Takako in a way, Mariki Yoshida over Suzuka Manami, W. Malenko and Sinta Moreno. Anj and Hashigawa over Toyota and Yamada, and Bull over Hota in the main event. Interesting seeing them running that part of the country. Since it's not like the major men's promotions ever really went there, right? They did. Just not went with off any the- real regularity, yeah. Because that's northern Japan. That's why Mishinoku Pro starts there, because there's a void. 
Yeah. So, perfectly good looking uh, All Japan Women card, although you can see how the the interpromotional thing that's about to start is going to beef up the cards. All right, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So it's a great 1992 commercials with 15 and a half times salmon. We will begin some of our Patreon. We'll um, hit the plugs. We'll talk about our streaming friends. And then we'll come back. We're going to Mexico where AAA and CML were at war with each other. And for talent and buildings and all kind of stuff. And a whole lot more. So all that more after the break. <laughs> American Tales will return after these messages. Wow, what is this place? This is Fern Gully. Now on video cassette. It's a miracle! It's a world of magic. You frank me? Catches on quick, doesn't it? A world of adventure. <laughs> and a world that you can bring home. Isn't this great? And for a limited time, get your forest adventure set free with a purchase of the hit movie Fern Gully, rated G. $24.98 or $5 less with rebate. Additional video purchase required. Details inside Fern Gully. Okay, great reasons for scarfing Captain Crunch cereal. Our favorite celebrity spokesperson is on the red box. No unnecessary letters, Cat Pen. Convenient bite-sized morsels. And it's a crunchy crunchy part of a balanced breakfast. And excellent toys, huh? Neat cartoon book. Yeah, and it's magic. Now you see it, now you don't. Hey, you got the last Captain Crunch toy. That's fine. Okay, but it's just blank pages. Aw, never mind. (laughs) One in specially marked boxes of Captain Crunch cereal. Her name is Starla. When you talk into Starla's magic microphone, she says what you say in her own voice. Let's sing a song. You can sing along. I like to sing with you. Nobody sounds like you, Starla. We like to share our Starla. Like it, Starla? Love it. Hey, she's talking. She's Starla. Wherever we go, we put on a show. Starla comes with a magic microphone, so you can give her a voice all her own. Battery's not included. And now back to American Tales. American Tales will return after these messages. What a fun. Hawaiian pun. Wow. It's not just red anymore. Fruit juicy yellow, orange, green, and blue. Wow. Hawaiian pun. Nothing else has the pun. Keep it going. Juicy pun. How about a nice Hawaiian punch? Sure. Nothing else has the pun. Kellogg's Max. Let me have those sweet little pups and eat. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm back. Now for Kellogg's Max. Going down, huh? You can't help falling for Kellogg's Max, part of this complete breakfast. I did it. Hold on, Kit! Some landing glue? Yeah. Back where I stuck! You can get Kit, Baloo, Wildcat, and Louie unstuck with these reusable yes. tailspin stickers. One free in these Kellogg cereals. Magic potty baby, your bottle's all done. At potty training time will be so much fun. I help you with your training pants, you make me so proud. Your potty feels like magic, then it flushes out loud. It's fun to help Magic Potty Baby learn to use her potty. Flush, and you're ready for next time. Magic Potty Baby, I'm so glad. 
Magic Potty Baby and her Magic Potty. No water, no mess. Batteries not included. Next Saturday, my friends call me Marty. I'm nobody's fool. Watch Back to the Future. It's majorly cool. Next Saturday on CBS Kid TV. There's three shrimp out of water. Fishing for excitement. The all-new Amazing Live Sea Monkeys starts next Saturday on CBS Kid TV. And now back to American Tales. Whoa! All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 1992 commercials as we pivot to the halftime seven of the show. We're going to talk about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And we're going to start recording our new Patreon show until we record this segment right here. As we go to part one of our two-part look at Todd is God, Todd Gordon's autobiography with Sean Oliver. And uh, that should be quite the show as it's going to... Uh, be a nice companion to all the ECW shows that we've done so far, but now we'll be getting it through the voice of Todd Gordon. So that should be an interesting look into the history of ECW that way. Well, and we will hear from other voices as well, but yeah, but, 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 but Todd, you know, Todd's somebody who, I mean, we always hear Heyman's perspective on things, but now we're going to hear Todd's perspective yes. on things. And it's probably usually so, Heyman's perspective on things, even if it's not said to be Heyman's perspective on things. <laughs> so, um, the, the Heyman camp, if you will. Yeah. But you definitely want to listen to this. So, finals a month gets you access to that, plus all the other shows that we've done in our almost seven complete years of the Patreon. This show, it will be, I think, show 84. Yes. So, this will be the, the, the closer of the seventh year. And we'll be getting our eighth year next month. So there's tons of audio content up on the Patreon for you to enjoy. It's well worth your $5. Yes, and I should add, by the way, they've added a thing for uh, – I mean, you can look by tags and stuff too. But they've added a thing where we can set up like collections of themed collections of shows. So I've started doing that. Um I did, I think, okay. I did one for the Paul and Eddie Cannon. I did one for all the WCW shows. I did one for all the startup shows so far. Well, that that's a good thing to have for folks. Yes. And also, I forget if I mentioned this. Maybe I did a few weeks ago. Regardless, I'll mention it again if I had. Um, did turn on the Spotify integration. So if you mainly listen to your podcast through Spotify – now you can sync up your Patreon account with your Spotify account and listen to the Patreon shows through Spotify. That's another plus. That's the first time you mentioned that. I don't think you mentioned that on here. Okay. I don't remember hearing that. That's the first I've heard of that. So Yeah. So it's, yeah, so it's a thing you have for to all opt you Spotify into folks. For whatever reason. Yeah, for all you Spotify folks, so, I mean that's a great thing for you to make it more convenient for for what you uh what you do. Yes. So yes. five dollars a month gets you access to all of that at patreon.com slash twenty sheets. Dollar a month gets you access to the Discord thanks in this segment. $25 I should pick a show for the week. Now, have a couple of shows in your mind just in case the show that you may want us to do could be something that we've done already or it could be something that somebody has picked on the calendar. We got to, um, you know, we've been doing this a long time now and sometimes people forget about what we've done in the past. So if you have any questions, let us know and uh, we'll get with you on that. Make sure we get your show on the air. Follow the protocol on the Patreon website to do that. Remember, there's a 30-day rule, 10-year rule, Wednesday, Tuesday, and the timeline, all that good stuff. 
And then you do that, you should be good to go. $50 in for each segment of that show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. That's patreon.com slash between the sheets. And let's go, hey, come on, let's get some new people in there and in the mix on this. I you see know, some new people lot. on this week's list. Not about on the on the, the Patreon pick list. Oh, the yes. 25 yes. and 50. Yes. The 25 and 50, you know, and even 100. I mean, well, there is a new one I need to talk to you about after we're done. Okay, but I mean, but, but uh, you know, we have a, we we have the ones that normally do it, and we love to have them, and love love them every time they pick. But we love to have some new people pick. Don't be scared. You know, if there's something that you want us to talk about, I know we've been we've done a lot of these shows now, but there's still a lot of stuff that we haven't talked about. So if there's stuff you want us to talk about, stuff you want to hear about, twenty five dollars, I mean, at the very least, can get that for you at one shot. So um, yeah, think about that. All right, uh, Bix. All right, so who we have this week as our new and/or returning patrons? All right, we'd like to thank Mark O'Brien. Thanks, Mark. Ultra fan. Thanks, Ultra fan. Two words though, so I don't think they're going for the pun like Ultraman or Ultramantis or anything like well, that. Thanks, Ultra fan. Yes, like kickboxing. Thank you, uh, Brandy Jeffries. Thanks, Brandy. Uh, Luigi Thirty. Thanks, Luigi. Yes, Joe Larson. Was a Bruno, Bruno San Martino with a Luigi? <laughs> Luigi Thirty. I don't. I mean, it, with, it, his, it, with his pizza. More on that later in the show. I mean, judging by Luigi Thirty's Twitter account, the na- the name is taken from Mario's Luigi. Yes. I know, but more about Bruno San Martino and his affinity for pizza later in the show. Yes. So, uh, Joe Larson. Thanks, Joe. Andrew McDonald. Thanks, Andrew. Not to be confused with the other Drew McDonald around wrestling. Ben Doom McDonald. Yes. And Joel Robinson. Excuse me, Joel A. Robinson. Thanks, Joel. So, we take all you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have been there from the beginning, patrons that have left and come back. We thank all, all of you patrons, patrons, that, uh, all you patrons for supporting us at patreon.com slash twin sheets. All right. We have our streaming friends. We always like to talk about as uh, they got a lot of cool stuff going on there. So let's go into uh, that universe now, Bix. And what's going on in the world of IWTV and Fight TV? All right. IWTV. I have not watched this yet. I am planning on it, though. Uh, this week's, excuse me, this month's The Life Of went up. Uh, you know, last week, and it's the life of Manders. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. winner, Manders. Yes, yes, yes. Good brother, friend of the show. Yes. And their friend John Philip Havage, of course, this is his baby. Yes, yes. I mean, Dylan is technically a producer as well, but it's IWTV, so what do you expect? Uh, So that is up. I see a bunch of older Dreamwave wrestling just went up. Um, might as well take a look at just one to see what's on this. It's all like 2012, 2013. I'm just going to pick a random one here. Immortality 2013. And, oh, what do you know? Vic Capri. <laughs> Vic, it has a Vic Capri versus Marche rocket match. Uh, the opener has Mustafa Ali when he was still Prince Mustafa Ali. And, uh, oh, Samurai Del Sol versus Lince Dorado before they ended up in WWE as a tag team and more. So, 
some interesting looking stuff there. Oh, Arya Davari too against Christian Rose. So various well-known Midwest names on here that have gone on to fame and, or in the case of Vic Capri or independent wrestling legends. So people might want to check that out. Now coming up on the live streams, much less crowded week than usual. You know, of course, on Thursday night, as always, there's going to be wrestling open. But, you know, as we're recording this, the previous wrestling open has not happened yet. So it's about to start. So we don't know any matches for that. But as far as other live streams coming this week, Remarkable Wrestling has a show on Saturday at 8 Eastern. They are, I think they're in New England, right? Where, where Does it say where they are exactly? Not on this graphic, it doesn't. But, uh... Few name, you know, some name talent in the mix against mainly locals, I think. But, you know, few people that'll be recognizable. Main event, Desmond Cole defends their title against Kevin Blackwood. Uh, Marcus Mathers defends ETU's title against Percy Ryan. Alex Shelley takes on Tristan Ty. Matt Tremont against Gabriel Sky. Chris Saban against Kono Capu... How do we spell it? Kono Kappa... Capu- Capuchia, I guess. I don't know why that took me so long. And then uh, defending both the Remarkable and IWTV tag titles, Miracle Generation taking on House of Glories, Ken Broadway and Michael Fain. And then on Saturday at 8 Eastern, first time with a live stream for them in a while, LVAC has uh, Steel Stack sh- Smackdown 2 from uh, somewhere, I presume, in the Allentown area. And that show includes uh, Speedball Mike Bailey against LSG, uh, Alpha Jr., Rex Lawless, and I don't know who Havoc is, against Ultimo Ant and the Batiri of past Chikara fame. Uh, Max the Impaler against Elmi Exo. And a main event of Sidney Bacabella's Bacabella's Army of Avery Good, who I thought retired, but I guess is working this because it's one of Mantis's shows. Becca, Channing Thomas, and Jay Kammermeyer against Ultramantis's mob of Big Dan Champion, Wheeler Yuta, Edith Surreal, and Cheeseburger. And I presume that uh, Joe Sposto will be on the call for that one. Probably. Yes. So if you're not already an IWTV subscriber, go to independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay at paid subscribers. That's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. You want me to transition to fight then? Yeah, I thought you were going to go straight to it. Okay. Yeah, I guess I have the last few weeks. Um, so something popped up that uh, I guess it w- they finalized or only just added since we recorded last week that is, you know... As we record, this is airing live tomorrow, but, you know, we'll be available on demand subsequently. And, you know, and when people hear this, it uh, looks like Fight has made a deal with All Japan Pro Wrestling. And they're live streaming. So I don't know How if it's just that? for the one show or what, but they've got uh, what I believe is the Giant Series opener. And that includes the uh, Kento Miyahara 15th anniversary match, taking on uh, Yuma Anzai. And, uh, you know, various All Japan regulars on the show, but there's also DDT recommend, blah, not recommendation, representation, uh, with the uh, Junakiyama and 
Sanchiro Tagagi and uh, Yusuke Okada on the card. Kyrie is doing her biding her time thing uh, with a match on here where all Japan is currently her home, apparently. Um, some of the wrestlers from Gleet are there. So, interesting looking show. So, I, I'm curious if this lasts because they do have their own streaming service, right? But. Yes. I mean, if they keep putting All Japan up on Fight Plus, you know, I'll definitely make a point of trying to watch it. You know, I always hear such great things about Miyahara, but it's, it, I just, I don't know if I have it in me to pay for another wrestling streaming service at, that, at this point. So. <laughs> it's a problem. There's a, there's a, a glutton I'm of just, streaming services all in together. I'm just glad I subscribed to Fight when it was Fight Plus when it was still five bucks. Because as long as you don't cancel, they keep charging you the five bucks. I think it's eight now. But anyway. Ooh, three dollars. It's still <laughs> better. Ooh. So, okay, what else do we have coming up on? Uh, so we have on the 16th. So that is that Saturday. This, okay, so Saturday at the, wait, I have the VPN on. So I just realized the times are off. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so wait, is you okay? Is mm. is UK five hours ahead right now or four? Thought they were six. Uh, okay, let me check my phone. I thought it was always six hours ahead. Although wait, I actually—I mean, I don't. I think it's the same zone. I think it's the same time zone, but I think I have the VPN on Ireland right now. Actually, wait, let's see. What time is it in Ireland right now? The time in Ireland is eleven forty-five p.m. Okay, so. It is five hours. Okay, so it's five hours. You could have just test Rover. No. All right, so yes, yeah, so uh, Saturday at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Melbourne City Wrestling has Ascension 2023. And do we have a lineup here? We do not. We just, But it still says line. Oh, no, okay, they have a little blurb that mentions a couple things, including a uh, ladder match. So that'll be there. IWS in Montreal's got a show at uh, 8 on the 17th. Oh, no, wait. So the 16th, excuse me. So the same day. Uh, so Saturday. And what do we have announced here as I zoom in? Uh, yeah, mainly your locals, it looks like, including Green Phantom. Who, he's the promoter, right? I don't even know who Green Phantom is. You don't remember Green Phantom from IWS? Uh, no. I, I mean, I, I know the name, I That's guess. That's what I'm saying. You remember the name, at least, right? Yeah, Green Phantom. Remember seeing Dean, the name. Generico, Sexy Eddie, uh, PCP, Crazy F and Manny. I never really watched that stuff, though. Beef Wellington. Just, I mean, but you were so, watching those guys in CZW and stuff. It's been almost 20 years. And what podcast do we do, Chris? <laughs> yeah, but shit, I'm getting older. Shit, I mean, uh, fair enough. stuff that... <laughs> I'm not like you who, you know, somehow, some way remembers, you know, shit when you were two. <laughs> you know, I got a lot in my, my head. Well, and uh, let me see, are these. I'm trying to figure out where they are. I know the GCW Australia shows went up at some point, but I have not watched them yet. I heard that they're, one of them, I heard that one of them has a very good uh, Janela versus Caveman. Caveman, I can't talk. Caveman Ugg match, which I've always wanted to see more of him. Whenever I've seen Caveman Ugg wrestle, he's 
really quite good, despite the gimmick. But anyway, that's that's what's up on Fight Plus. If you're not already a subscriber, go to tinyurl.com slash btsfight. That's B-T-S-F-I-T-E. And we'll get a referral fee if you subscribe, or if you use that URL to get a fight uh, iPay-Per-View. So that's indep- not independent. Uh, tinyurl.com slash B-T-S-F-I-T-E. Today's episode between the sheets is sponsored for private internet access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet search provider storing your browsing data many times even selling it. Private internet access can help. Private internet access encrypts and routes your internet traffic to one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes to easy to use apps and browser extensions for all devices. A rock solid privacy policy, open source security events, customization settings, is just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign up for private internet access right now, you take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's talk about that, shall we? We have three packages available. You get a monthly package of eleven ninety five a month. You get the yearly package, which gets you down to $3.33 a month or thirty nine ninety five a year. Or you can go for three years plus four free months. Get it to $1.98 a month. $79 for the first two years usually thereafter. 83% off. The best damn deal in the game. And why is that? Because it's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you take advantage of private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it out for 30 days. See if you like it. If not, just return it for full refund. How do you get that, you ask? We go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back to 1987, where we got uh, Jim Duggan making his return to the World Wrestling Federation after his long suspension. So we'll talk about that. And other notes from the TV tapings that took place during our week. We got uh, news on the Survivors series, house shows, uh, house show results, interesting stuff going on there. Million Dollar Man tortures children on television. We'll talk about that. We got news on Richard Belzer's lawsuit against Hulk Hogan as well. Then in Japan, we got uh, on Japan, New Japan going uh, to on tours. Got stuff going on there. Some interesting looking matches there, and uh, some other international stuff. We got some Canada stuff. AWA possibly coming into Canada. We'll talk about that. We got Stampede featuring the debut of Corporal Kirshner, or as he's known as Colonel Kirshner, and the Zodiac. And we got an anniversario show at Arena Mexico to talk about. We got Puerto Rico. We we got all kinds of stuff in that, that section. We got Robert Fuller crowning himself as a new Tennessee stud in Continental. We'll have that video and other sort of Continental results and stuff. We got Memphis and Dave Meltzer's concerned about the Memphis territory. We'll talk about that. And uh, we'll have gang wars going on in Memphis during this time period. Iron Sheik is now in world class. So we'll talk about that and some of their attendance woes at the gate. Buddy Landell makes his AWA debut. We'll talk about that and other assorted stuff from the indie scene. And then Crockett, a small Crockett session because they're on vacation. That's pretty much the whole crew went to uh, St. Martin for the NWA convention. So we'll have news on that. But we got a lot of issues in the CWF, UWF part of the Crockett uh, television universe. As CWF has a new uh, host, 
And UWF has a new Total TV show, which Dave Meltzer is not too thrilled about. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. Should be a fun show. All right, you follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper BT Sheets pod, Big Set David Bix. And Bix, since the last time we recorded, CM Punk got fired. And they still got fired. So the two big parts of one, of that uh, side of things in the whole brawl out saga of the past year and brawl in are now gone <laughs> and brawl in, but brawl out to begin with are now gone. Now here's the theory that I want to bring up. Um, and see, see what you think about this. Do you think that Tony re-signing the elite and Adam page to those big, long contracts got punk even more riled up and made it even, you know, pretty much a, a, a fait accompli that he was going to be gone from that promotion. Just a matter of time. Yes. Because be- it, it doesn't that come off as Tony, say, you know, basically saying I'm siding with these guys in a way in punk's mind that, you know, if, if in punk's mind, if Tony was on my side, that, he wouldn't bring these guys back. I'm saying from Punk's mind and Punk's line of thinking. I think that's entirely possible. And, re- and I was going to say realistic. Realistic that he might think that, yes. Um, I mean, there's other stuff that's happened too. I mean, you know, we'll see what the next couple weeks of Collision do. But... Well, <laughs> they've now gotten into the competition thing because college football is back in full force yes and, and you know that, that that previous saturday you know you had college football and payback up against them so you had a wwe ple and college football going up against them yeah so that doom right there i mean for the average on that one though i thought it actually did about what i expected because unless you go with the idea that well SummerSlam and money in the bank are bigger deals I figured it would at least be down to a point one three, and then with the first week of college football, it's probably going to be a little lower. So, well, this uh, is going to be a, this is going to be a test this week. Well, the big because, story I mean, was more the quarter hours anyway. But well, you, you're going to you're, you're still going to have the college football competition, but you don't have any of the wrestling competition, right? So we're going to see what like a normal college football week is going to be going forward, right? Um, and then you know, as far as everything else, like. It's. I mean, what, if nothing else, it's clear that they are very confident in what the video of everything from backstage shows. I, I think well, that's obviously. obvious. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm not entirely clear on is Punk, quote-unquote, lunging at Tony, which now Dave, is, Dave Meltzer is saying he was being too charitable in saying lunging, although he's not saying what word he should be using. Maybe that'll be in the Observer, you know. Uh, tomorrow as we record this was the lunging after the jack perry fight in gorilla or was it during the closed door thing with tony supposedly it was before the whole jack thing even started the lunging was the whole thing i guess well no the thing that the first thing i thought was was him complaining about the travel but i don't know how he did that guy they said whatever that was heated stuff that happened before 
the whole Jack thing happened. Right. My impression was the lun, the quote unquote lunging was after the Jack Perry thing, but I don't know if it was right after in Gorilla or if it was in Punk's, Punk's, you know, room. Um, but regardless, like, I mean, we need to keep in mind it's possible they have even have video of whatever happened behind closed doors too. I mean, especially if they do, then. Again, they seem very confident in what it shows. Now, does feared for my life seem like legalese? Maybe a little bit more than the rest of what Tony Khan said in his statement at the beginning of Collision? Yes. But we still don't know exactly what happened, too, especially if lunging is being charitable. I mean, the thing is, is that 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 is semantics that the people that are pro punk in this will definitely use the, the you know against Tony and AEW, hmm. but it doesn't hide the fact that this this guy was doing these things no matter what no matter what how how serious it was he still was doing things that was completely unprofessional and apparently he actually signed some things that said. That if he got into another fight, he'd be fired anyway. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's semantics. Yeah, everybody can have a good laugh, whatever. But still, he put himself in this position to get fired. 100%. And I again, mean, there's no way around. Even his version is not that he is not that Jack Perry started any physicality with it. It's that Punk started that. So it's like, like, Dude, you're 45 years old, you know, dealing with someone that's, what, 20 roughly years younger? Like, and you're just getting into, you're starting a fight with this guy over really is trivial bullshit? Like, especially, and hypocritical in a way, because it's like, what, punk can take shots at whoever? Like, I'm not saying Jack Perry should have, I think it was unwise, but, well, both both were in, both were in the wrong, in what in things that they did, you know. I mean, and the promotion should have never allowed any type of glass breaking on that show, knowing what that was going to do, knowing that that was going to set that motherfucker off. And right, it's entirely and, possible and it, Punk still gets pissed off even if Jack Perry doesn't make the comment to the camera. Yeah, I mean. He was. You knew he would have done something stupid. Um, I mean, who knows if it would have got as serious as it got? But still, there would have been a problem somewhere, somehow, some way. So the fact that they allowed that to happen was a huge mistake on their part, and escalated it even further than what it could have been. And it's just, you know, he's gone. Ace is gone. So now, now we're gonna see. You know, and. We're going to see what happens. And there's people that still say that, well, there's still a, uh, you know, a, some, some, a bad environment because the, the Bucks, and, 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 you know, aren't the uh, greatest bo- EVPs and stuff like that. Well, they that don't really on. do anything actually as EVPs anymore. But still, like, it's not like they're the most likable guys to a lot of people. And I don't want anyone to be mistaken that we're saying they are. Or, or even the easiest to get along with. No, there's but, a lot of questions, a lot of question marks going on here. Right, but I mean, you and I have both a lot, even the, with Punk gone. 
when you and I have both heard specific stories of people who put the decline in locker room morale squarely on Punk's shoulders, though. He's not the only one that was had, had issues. No, he's not. But it's but it seems like people point to his arrival, and then especially all the stuff that went down last, like late winter, early spring last year, as being really when things took a turn. Because I mean, think about all the stuff that happened around March. Okay, Regal showing up and Punk getting into it with him. Um. Ace getting hired right before that, and then Cabana coming back from Australia, and then being sent home, and initially not having his contract renewed, and that whole thing. Um, the MJF stuff that led to him walking out started in March, I believe, or shortly thereafter. Um, the Whatever the miscommunication was in the Britt Baker-Thunder Rosa title switch in the pay-per-view match uh, were in March. You know, like, am I forgetting anything? Because there's a, I mean, there's one or two other things I can think of that aren't public, that I don't have reportable, that I won't share. But, like, I've heard at least one or two other stories, too. It seems like, for whatever reason, just a lot of shit happened in a short period of time. And I can see how that made things much worse. It's going to be interesting to see where they go from here. I mean, we'll see. I mean... Collision is a show that's now going to be uh, basically dual brand, dual brand show, everybody available. And uh, we'll but it is also going to be the Brian Danielson show as well. Yeah, but still, it's going to have everybody on, basically. So we're going. I mean, honestly, they need. I mean, even if the ratings aren't going to be that different from Rampage, they need a show that they can spread people onto that they treat like a big deal that isn't just dynamite. They do with the roster they have. And like, I mean, collision just being, you know, the punk camp or whatever like that. It was clearly limiting the show way too much in the last few weeks with all the question. I still, the question I still have though, what is WBD going to think about all this? I mean, we know they were informed of the punk thing in advance of it going public, and presumably understood why it had to happen, so... Yeah, but still, they didn't say, well, this show's not performing up to our expectations. I mean, what could their real Um, expectations have been, though? That's the thing, like... I don't know. And then you got punk, you know, what his future could entail... Yeah. I mean, folks, I mean, that WWE merger with Endeavor, Endeavor, you know, Punk has friends there, of course. So it ain't going to happen, I don't think, right now. But don't be surprised if he doesn't show up in the future. And honestly, Uh, I just hope things are different enough there if he does go, because, I mean... If it was still the Vince day-to-day WWE and all that, like, for his own sake, I would not want him to go there. Well, I mean... Knowing what a number it did on him emotionally. But it's out there that Vince Vince didn't want him back back anyway. So, he was a guy that went higher back. Well, and also right now they have no need for him either. No, but... 
In, it, it's gonna, who knows? Who knows what Punk's future is? But yeah, so that chapter is closed in one way. Of course, we still could have legal things that come up. So that you never know. And so. my gut is with the video and everything, and how much the previous lawsuit stuff affected him financially and everything. I don't know what kind of place he would have to be in to try to sue them. I really don't, because they can outspend him, he knows that, and he knows that they have a position they're very confident in because of the video. So, like, if he's... I, honestly, to God, I would be worried about him if he... Like, just in general, like, if he decided to sue them. It just seems like a bad idea. Well, it is CM Punk. It is, though, and he's done a lot of things that are bad ideas lately. So, speaking of bad ideas, well, well oh, I was going to try to say on that, the joke. Yes. Well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. Let's go to North America now, as uh, we start with uh, Mexico and Triple A. Everything's back to normal when it comes to this group running weekly shows in small Mexico or city arenas on a promoter Raul Reyes. The SNL Union, comprised of CML and UWA wrestlers, threatened to strike any arena that booked non-union AAA wrestlers, but federal arbitration settled that issue. Okay. Um, I mean, this was a big deal, because all of a sudden you have this idea at a point where the union is still a real union. It's not till the following year, maybe a little after, that SNL is basically dissolved for the CML company union. And they're saying, hey, these are scab wrestlers. We're going to pick at these shows. The thing is, though, weren't all these wrestlers already members of the SNL? Yeah, I would say so. Mm, so how does that make it a non-union show? <laughs> exactly. Because they're working for AAA. And the other showing one, that the union is really in with mainly Luteros. Well, UWA and Luteros. CMLL, yeah. yeah. They're not in with AAA. Obviously but not AAA getting the, ends they're up starting its own union, though. They're obviously not getting the cut of the money. Right, but AAA does end up starting its own union, basically, to solve the problem. Because remember, this is all about money. Well, it's at all this point, money. they don't know it's being embezzled, but yes. It's all about money. All right, AAA take TV on uh, September 11th in the, at the Auditorio Benito Juarez in Veracruz. We have Falcon, Hawkon 78, and Super Hawkon. Over Nuevo Angel Blanco, Io de Angel Blanco, and Ricky Boy. Put no Angel Blanco La, Jr. Yes. La Briosa, La Marquesa, and La Venus over Montevideo Lobos, Pantaros Araña, and Wendy, by disqualification. Misterioso, Rey Mysterio Jr., and Volador over Roca Valente, Tony Arce, and Volcano, Destructores, by disqualification. Fantasma, Mascara Sagrada, and Tenebus Jr. over Angel Blanco Jr., Jerry Estrada, and Rambo. And Conan, Nismar, and Pedro Aguayo over Cien Carlos, Mascarenas Mil, and Universo dos Mil, dos Hermanos Tinamita. Now, Anibal, Lismark, and Io de Lismark all jumped this week and have already debuted. While the country's best known women's wrestler, Lola Gonzalez, also agreed to jump, since most of the regular women's troop jumped a few weeks back. Lismark debuted on this show. We have Conan, Macho Man, El Barbaro, who wears a duplicate ring outfit of Randy Savage now. And Pedro Aguayo being the Dinamitas when these were Universal Queen, cleaning the third fall of the main event for the 18th with Universal putting up his Mexican National Lightweight title. And Liz Mark is here for, what, about a year? 
Yeah, kind of. But he, uh, fit, he fits better here than Satanico did. Yeah, Satanico felt very out of place, even when they were feuding with each other. Yeah. Well, come, speaking of coming in, Love Machine, our bar could be headed in by the end of the month. While Rirena and Pepinado Escalada, who does a cross-dresser act, but many consider him her the best young wrestler in the country uh... and a future Negra Casas. It is 1992, Bix. And Mayflowers are set for an October 2nd starting date. Well, Jumping I guess you could say that Pimpernella Escarlata, if you think it's a, if you think the gimmick is a drag character, that the drag character would be her. So it's, it's, it's not that bad in that sense. Chavo, Mondo, and Eddie Guerrero also expect to be jumping by the end of the month. Chavo works as a Rudo and probably be a booker as well. Mondo actually starts two weeks ago in Tijuana. Under the hood is a as Tercera Dimension, while Eddie has told the office he'll come in after he completes his current Arena Mexico commitments. Others this group is negotiating with the jump are Sangre Chicana, Fabuloso Blondie, Ken Timms, and Bestia Safaje from CMLL, and local Zonicon and Transform UWA. Savaje's jump was probably put on hold since he won the similar World Middleweight title last week. He never jumps. Yes. Now, as far as some of the others, Ken Timms ends up there, but is not there long and basically is done with in Mexico for the most part after that, right? Uh, he still works on. But not as anything like a full-timer <clears throat> after. No. He's in and out. Um, Mondo ends up becoming a psychopata. Under a mask, right? Uh, yes. And, you know, Eddie is still... At this point, he's Mascara Maika in CMLL, and then he does the thing where he comes to AAA, and he takes off the mask, and he says, I'm a Guerrero, I don't need this mask gimmick, basically. Um, so, there you go, as far as that. And yet, like, that, like, I feel like, even though Pimpy was clearly the best worker of that Exotico group, I don't think people realize just how good Pimpy was in his prime. Well, I mean, he's still good. I mean, he's still good, but I mean, it, when he was young and athletic, I mean, you could say the same for Cassandra, too, to a degree. Like, but especially Pimpy was like that next Negro Casa stuff. That was not an exaggeration. Like, just as a pure worker in the ring, it was incredible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, by the way, we right. should, <clears throat> before we move on, I do want to make the distinction. Like, the Exoticos are never supposed to be in drag, though. They're supposed to be. What even is the correct term these days? People would have said cross dressing or whatever in the past. Transvestite. People don't use transvestite now, though. I know, but that's the, that was what they were called back then. Right. I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to think. I don't even know what the right term would be now because I don't think crossdresser is used anymore either. But it it's they're never supposed to be in drag though. They're not supposed to be drag characters. But anyway, the biggest news is starting in December. This group will have Televisa Channel Two Mexico City for the weekly TV show. This equivalent to a weekly NBC Times on U.S. as its most powerful station in the country goes on cable throughout South Central America, and this group plans on touring many foreign countries in '93, including the United States. They do. Tony Arce and Valador are headed to Guatemala. Run some shows there, worship yeah. shows. Always this wish we had more uh, footage of Guatemala and Blue Chick. Little we have is fun. 
This group's winning a major television taping from El Salvador, which doesn't happen. I don't think happen. that happens, no. The Galavision TV should aired over the weekend. Tension on September 4th in Cancun was pretty hot again. Blue Panther started defense because Angelos Teca was a three-star match, four-star match, with fans cheering the Rudo Panther and chanting his name like crazy. Panther's champion reminds Dave a lot of Dory Funk Jr. in the early 70s as a heel NWA champion where it's totally scientific. Like Funk, he isn't really flashy, and even though he works against Technicos, he's totally respected by everyone and has a solid core of fans. He differs from Ric Flair, who was similar when he was NWA champion because Flair was so flashy. The second fall of the six man with Rey Mysterio, Mysterioso, and Rey Mysterio Jr. against the Cosas, Ice Killer, and Huichol was one of the more incredible falls you'll ever see. It has some of the best dives to be seen. Rey Jr.'s invented move of the week. He came off the top rope well, like it would be a drop kick, but it was a Frankensteiner on Psychosis. Think about that one. Ice Killer's gimmick is hilarious. They build him from Vancouver, Canada, and he wears a hockey outfit with a goalkeeper's mask and uses a hockey stick as a legal weapon. It went for the great WF gimmick, except they don't go for mass wrestlers. Hmm. Dave still can't get over here being one of the leaders of the AAA Union as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the thing about Ray makes me wonder... <clears throat> Is Ray the first wrestler who to do the diving Hurricane Rana? Because I can't think of anyone else before him. Probably on film. Right, it's possible someone else did it. But that we have video of, I can't think of anyone earlier, can you? No, not really. And, you know, it's, I mean, I guess it wouldn't even, it doesn't even become that common. It's really, it's like a particular kind of undersized flyer that ends up doing that kind of thing. You know, it's not like there are tons of guys doing, you know, springboard Urk and Ranas and whatnot. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's very much like a Ray thing and a Ray-sized guys thing. You know, like Dragon Kid or even to an extent someone like Commander now, even if Commander's bigger than Ray. In the We Spoke Too Soon department, three weeks back when discussing JWP wrestler Borshoi Kid, as they call it here, who wrestles in a clown costume? Dave wrote a good thing. Miss Man or Tony Pena didn't see it. Well, they may not have seen it, but hearing about it was enough for, since Pena is bringing in a wrestler wearing a clown costume to be the 1990s version of Super Muñeca. Oh, just wait till Dave hears about Doink the Clown. <laughs> didn't Matt Warren just have his tryout at the tapings? It's Where they did the title change. Yeah, it, it was coming. Yeah. So. Okay, by the way, real quick. What? Actually, no, wait, we have talked about this before, but just as a refresher, what is your feeling on the whole, like, Road Warrior Hawk who wasn't there or someone saw a match? We talked about it. We talked about this. I don't I'm feel just I trying to remember what your assessment was. I just don't feel I rehash it. I, would, I just, whatever. It's At this point, I think there is a story that happened that was similar, but there's no way it happened the way it was told. It's just, we talked about that when they the dark side. Yeah, so... And, boy, so how does he spell your Borshoi? Like, what do you think it is? Come on! Do you really think it's actually Borshoi? Dave? <laughs> what, what seems more likely, Dave? That it is Borshoi Kid? Or someone transliterated it wrong and it's Bolshoi Kid? A deal was struck between this group and local Los Angeles WA promoters to send a town on a regular basis. The first show will be on September 19th at Cal Los Angeles with the scheduled main event of El Dandia, El Brazo, and local wrestler Pelota Suicida against MS Uno, Negro Casas, and local wrestler Loverboy. Silva is also sending La Fiera and Brazo de Order work a six-man semifinal. Follow-up show is set for October 10th in CSLA with Canadian Vampire Casanova in his U.S. debut and Lanti Silver King El Tejano and Perata Morgan. 
There's a major counterattack to AAA going on. Chava Luderov, the son of Salvador Luderov, the founding promoter of both this promotion and the Lucha Libre itself, has come back into the office to work with Paco Alonso, nephew of the late Salvador Luderov. Luderov was furious at how the current crew in charge had allowed the group to lose so much top-name talent to AAA in such a short period of time. In their first move, they fired Juan Herrera, who handled the business, and it was the number two man in power. Herrera, Herrera, Alonso, and current AAA promoter Antonio Pena were the three men in charge when CML overtook uh, UWA to become the country's high promotion. To show where the power really lies, their next move saw Paco go on vacation. Luderoff has been in a lot of new rules, such a lot of Bill Watts, including being arrested misses a car without a legitimate excuse that so he suspended without pay for a week. Luderoff has also asked for a meeting with Pena and the AAA wrestler by coming to a truce. But until that truce comes, he's also going all out. He offered Lupanthor, Ciancaros, Universal de Smil, Moscow, Año de Smil, doubled their current pay to jump back. Alonso called up Pedro Aguayo, who with the session maybe vampire, is one of the most charismatic wrestlers in the country. Paco offered Pedro a blank check, the CML World Heavyweight title, and a win over Vampire in order to come back. But Pedro reportedly told Alonso he could be booked through Pena, and he ended his career with Pena. Hmm. Wow, these dudes, I mean, they, they're serious at this time, man. On both sides, this is a serious promotional war. I mean, and you know what it says, given the history and everything? Especially with all of the, like, the tenured names that jumped. Those guys must have had a lot of faith in A, the Televisa backing, and B, paying you as a creative. More more of the uh, the latter than the former. Absolutely. And like we said before, like, I mean, I've said it and I feel like you, even if, I don't remember if you agree, but you at least agree enough. Like, he is singularly the most creative person in the history of pro wrestling. Um, he's, he's on the short list. Just because he, he's not just the booker, he's designing the costumes and everything, you know? Like, and, you know what, you can see why, like, especially, you know, like, the story uh, Ultimo Dragon tells. Where he's talking to Pena about jumping to EMLL, and Pena draws up what the Ultimo Dragon costume is going to look like on a sketch pad right in front of him. You can see why something like that and the way he is about presenting those gimmicks and stuff, you can see why that would speak to the talent. And also, he's the booker when business gets on fire anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I had forgotten that Paco was just a second-generation Lutero. Yeah. We're only on the third generation. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of impressive when you consider that the company's been in business for 90 years. Yeah. All right, September 6th, call sales double title show with Negro Costa defending the UWA middleweight title against Oro, where he won the match. It was a good match. When the finals of the Civil Midget Tournament had Orito beating Felinito. All right, results of that show. Guerrero Papuro and Natalia of Mishjana and Sinin. Damiano Guerrero, Guerrero de Futura, and Guerrero Mayo over Dick Angelo Jr., El Vencedor, and Solar 2. Triton, Urdokan Sevilla, and The Love Machine, our bar. Over best of all, he says that this and Emilio Chalice Jr. by disqualification. Then we have Orito, Miki Segura, over Filinito to win the, the CML Minis title. And Negro Costa retained the UWA World Middleweight title over Oro. Black okay. Magic. Oh, wait. What? I have a question real quick. So, 
uh, Mickey Segura was not there as a Rito until after Pena and company left, right? I guess. Does Pena leaving with the quote-unquote actual minis have anything to do with why the CML minis division becomes so much more heavy on on dwarves? Like, did they figure he just had a monopoly on scouting those guys? Uh, I don't know. Anyway. Black Magic, Norman Smiley completed his Rudo turn on September 11th at Arena Mexico in the main event. A six-man with him, Vampire, and Aurelisco Jr. Against Negro Casas, best of him put off. Magic kept breaking up the brawling between Vampire and Casas the entire match without taking sides. The Rudos won the first fall. During the second fall, they brawled again. Magic attacked Vampire, which left Royal against the remaining two Rudos, while Casas and Magic beat up the Beat up Vampire, and Arroyo lost the match. Why is he the one wrestler whose name Dave translates? Because he's not Mexican? I guess. All right, uh, full results. Uh, well, some all full results. Fierro and Lynx went up against Filoso Metallico. No result. Sicon Ramirez, Mano Negra, and Herga Mendoza with Io de Gladiador, Supremo, and Felino by disqualification. The Brazos, Oro, Plata, and Brazo over Amelia Tales Jr., Lafayette, and Titan. In finales, MS1, Perotto Morgan, Satanico over Lanti, Sadandi, and Ultimo Dragon. And Bessis Vahid, Negra Casas, and Perotto over Black Magic, Royalisco Jr., and Vampiro. In my results. Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah, Dave doesn't do that for anyone else. And. You know, eventually he just starts calling him Vampiro, and Vampiro Canadiense, but. I gotta think that's the reason, because, like, the other Americans that have, like, names that are words, you know, it's like Love Machine, who has an English name. Or Black Magic, who has an English name. Yeah. Who knows? Well, wait, he doesn't, tra- he doesn't translate Fabuloso Blondie. <laughs> Maybe because that's, he feels that's obvious? I don't know. Anyway, let's move on. Monterey on the 6th was headlined by a rare steel cage match in Mexico, where Latin Lover... And Canadian Vampire Casanova and Mil Mascara, so I'm Panther, Fabloso Blondie, and Valete Fernandez. Weird to see Panther, a AAA guy, work a show with the CMLO wrestlers on it, where all the feuding going on between the groups. Yeah, that is weird. Todd Taylor debuted on this show as well, at Plaza de Toros La Monumental, where we had Prince Frankie and Tigre Universitario against Bill Guerrero and Mr. Dollar. Estudo and a Ninja against Bluefish and Carante. Hector Garza and Ruben Juarez Jr. We're against Demonio de Tasmania and Gato de Ring. La Piera, Sangre Chicana, and Tug Taylor. We're against Atlantis, Ohio Jr., and Ultimo Dragon. And then the cage match, which we talked about. Did he actually work as Tug Taylor or did he work as Ciclope? He worked as Tug Taylor here. So when and where was it that he was Ciclope? AAA. Okay. And in this era, there ends up being a decent number of Texas guys going back and forth that work Monterey. Well, it's close. There's Tug, there's Chaz, John Layfield, Scott Putsky. Am I forgetting anyone? Those are the main ones I can think of, at least. Oh, no, whatchamacallit, Lucha McKinley actually says he's just Cyclops. He's not Cyclope. Whatever. All right, um, UWA. Canet defended the UWA heavyweight title against Enrique Vero on September 6th at Torreo, winning when Vero missed a knee drop off the top rope, but Canet pinned him with a figure four. 
So now Kanaku's Ric Flair Metzko is even doing Ric Flair's finisher sequence. Vader did a stretcher job after the match. Just set up a technical in Ruda versus technical in Ruda main event on August 30th. What? Oh, this was set up in the match where Vera and Nikita beat Kaneka Dos Caros with Vera pinning Kaneka to clean the third fall. They ran an angle again in the semifinal with the technical teams against each other. It's Pegasus Kid, Silver King, and Tejano with Miss Vianos, three, four, and five. With Viano four getting pinned in the third fall to a power bomb and doing a stretcher job. These two teams were rematched on the sixth, so this time Viano four missed the show, still signed his injury, and was replaced by Viano one. And the Vianos took two after falls this time. Also on the show, UWA Trios champions, the Missing Adios de la Muerte, Signal Negronovar and Black Power, two, lost a bloody non-title match to fellow Rudos, um, Santana Perez and Scorpio Jr., which would be Ricky Santana, Miguel Perez, and Scorpio Jr. All right, full results, Irma Aguilar and Irma Gonzalez over Satanica and Mujer Savaje. Aeroflash, Dragon Lee, and Ojo de Tigre over Babyface, Crazy Star 2, and Scorpio. Coloso... King, the King and Tigre Candidense over Crazy Star number one, Dr. Wagner Jr. and Locos Undercon. Miguel Perez Jr., Ricky Santana, and Scorpio Jr. over the Missionarios. Vianos over Pegasus Kid, Silver King, and Tejano. And Kanek over Vera in the World Tana match. And it's noted here that PN News is headed in as the next big foreigner to challenge Kanek. I need to That's see that. I mean, I doubt there's video, but I still need to see that. So would he be? Was he PN News or was he Cannonball Grizzly? He would be Cannonball Grizzly in Mexico. So who knows what he would have bombed? Oh, there, are, there are a few results on Cage Match, and it's at least on Cage Match they say he was PN News. So there you go. All right, Double Double had a couple of shows on September 10th and one of the Oz at the Colosseum Municipal. We have Rock and Rebel over the Fly, El Exotico over Ciclone Salvadoreño. Rex King over Randy Rhodes. Regazos over Mohamed Hussain with Fabiano. Lale went to double disqualification with Vigilante. Dick Murdoch over Bronco number one. And Abdullah Bush went to a double DQ with the Iron Sheik. Okay, real quick before you move on. Are Murdoch and Randy Rhodes aligned at all? I'm not sure. Okay. Randy Rhodes is leaving after losing his loser to fall least town match on September 12th of Carolina. Team with Elizondo to lose to Succo Salvadoreño and Vikingo. Tag Tiles are vacated when Steve Dahl walked out to return to Portland. So Red King and Ray Gonzalez, who jumped back here from the rival AWF, are feeding with solid gold. Jose and Julio Estrada for the vacant belts. All right. Uh, results from Coliseo Guillermo Angelo de Carolina. We have a lo- the Lose Leave Town match with Vikingo Salvadoreño over Randy Rose and Exotico. Rock and Rebel over Sabu. Is Terry Brunk or, uh, or Coco Samoa? And Coco Samoa, I can tell you that. I don't remember anything about Sabu working in Puerto Rico in this era, though. Mohamed Hussein over Richie Santiago. Vidya Jovico over Vigilante about qualification. Solid Gold and uh, Regazos Rescue went to the no contest in the title, World Tag Title match. Barocco number one over Dick Murdoch. La Lea over the Iron Sheik. And Abdul the Butcher went to a double cannon when Invader won in an Universal Title match. Invader retained his title. Hmm. So interesting lineup there. That's that's got. I think that's got to be Sabu. For what it's worth, I know, and I know a lot of, I know a lot of stuffs missing on Cage Match for Puerto Rico. They're, it's the only result they have from around this time, at least. Um, after this, they don't have anything for him until 03. 
Um, but yeah, I would think that's him. It just, I didn't realize he worked here at this time. But it also makes sense because what's his main job? FMW. Where he just started. Who's a liaison to FMW? Victor. Who's still working for Double Double C? Victor. Right? Or actually, wait, or is Victor working for AWF? I guess he's still Double C at this point. I'm not sure. I don't remember if he worked for AWF or not. But that's interesting seeing him. I mean, honestly, with his gimmick and everything, you'd think almost that he'd be more than a prelim guy. Losing to Rockin' Rebel. You know? But, and uh, this has to be the last time uh, Shiki gets a real push anywhere, right? I mean, other than the Indies. I mean, in an actual, you know, territory, whatever. Yeah. That's Latin America. All right, let's go to the uh, indie scene here in the U.S. And we start with Jim Crockett news. Jim Crockett sent Terry Funk to represent him at the NWA convention in Las Vegas over the weekend. And there are many rumors of Crockett starting to promote in November 93 when his no-compete deal with Turner runs out. Well, that was the, when you listen to patreon.com slash twin sheets on the uh, WWN shows. Well, the, the Paul Heyman 1993 shows, yes. Paul Heyman 93 shows, yes. Which, hand in hand. I mean, that is, that, that's the date. November 93 was the original date, but things happened before then. Right, and also, he, I mean, at various points before that date, Crockett also just straight up admits that it's happening. <laughs> yes. Um, and yet, like, one of these days I'd like to check to see if there's, like, much of anything about WWN after the end of 93 besides the stuff about the one TV taping to see if there's anything else we would want to cover, but... Terry Funk, and Terry Funk does not really end up involved with any of this stuff further. In 1992, Terry Funk is basically retired. Um... He's been announcing at different places. Um, he makes some some appearances and stuff, but 92 is one of those years where you don't really get a lot of matches from Terry. No. Um, I think he's, he doesn't start FMW in 92. Um, Maybe towards the end of the year? Uh, 92. No, he only works one match in 92 on record, and that's for Otto. Against Rambo on July 11th. It's two. He also has a match for Dennis against Eddie Gilbert on November 14th. Okay. Well, that's Cage Match. So Wrestling Data must have the other one. Yeah. Well, Cage Match has both. Um, Not what I just looked at. I'm looking at Terry Funk's results now. They only have one match in 92. I just put 1992 in the search on Cage Match, and those two came up. I I did those matches where it has the year-by-year timeline. Oh, you looked at the number. Okay. Okay. Well, here it is. Okay. They didn't list that in the other one. So I see it now. Odd. That's weird. But yeah, it worked 80 for Dennis. So two matches. That's the lowest. Well, 88 was he worked none. But um, two is the lowest amount he ever worked in a year on record. Hmm. So, yeah, 92 is when he's really out of the business, basically, for a while. Yeah. Now, so for what it's worth, because, you know, WrestlingTitles.com has an annual NWA membership roster listing. 
And citing the Observer for the 92 meeting, it says, New Japan uh, with C.J. Sakaguchi as the NWA president, WCW with Bill Watts as board member, whatever Steve Ricard's promotion is in New Zealand with him as board member, Larry O'Day for Australia, Gary Juster in Pennsylvania, and Elliot Murnick in Raleigh, who are basically WCW affiliates. But I guess they're actual members at this point and not just affiliates. I don't know. And the, and Dennis Corluzzo, who's about to join in November. So nothing about Crockett actually being a member here. Hmm. But, you know, it's one of those things where he could, his, his standing of what it was in the NWA forever, he probably, you know, had the invitation to go, but sent Funk instead. But it doesn't mention Terry Funk here either. Well, I mean, he's not a member. Wow. He's just there as a proxy. No, but it usually mentions the proxies. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe something that was missed. Uh, it, it's. I mean, Dave's reporting. Dave's reporting that it's happened. So, you know, and, and you said that you know this report came from the Observer. Yeah. So who knows? Um, <laughs> and it's also just interesting to look back, like. Boy, Dennis could have made a lot of trouble for WCW if he really wanted to. <laughs> because the yeah. old bylaws are still in place. And the one of the reasons the drama really picks up in 93 is like... It, excuse me. He's like, I'm an NWA member in good standing. I want dates on the champion. Give yeah. me dates on the champion for 10% of my houses. And he's not wrong. They accepted him as a and, member. And here's the thing. In WCW 93... They ain't doing shit, so why not send the champion out, out there to Dennis, you know? He, uh, what house shows are they running? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a note. Let's see. Okay, I, I'm curious to see how many dates Ric Flair works each month when he's champion. Let's see. In 93. Um, okay, 1993. It comes back in June. He works seven dates in July, 14 in August, six in September. So he's actually fairly busy in August, but how much of these are TV versus house shows? So one, two, three, four, five. So there's actually a bunch of house shows in August, for whatever reason, where he's mainly working with Paul Orndorff. Which we talked about before on the show. The 93 show we just did last month. We talked about him and Orndorff at the Omni, remember? Yeah. yeah. But that's an interesting what if that he didn't try harder. You know? Yeah. But, you know, in in the end, it ended up bleeding to them being like, okay, this isn't worth it. Which is, yeah, not too long after this. Yeah. So, anyway, let's move on to the NAWA. Well, <laughs> sort of. Tony Capone's and AWA canceled the TV taping on September 12th in Meriden, Connecticut, apparently due to a lack of ticket sales. Not a good sign for them. Uh, I've watched some of their TV from this era recently. It's definitely interesting. Interesting mix of talent in, in this group. Uh, the young Northeastern guys like a Tommy Dreamer and Taz mixed in with guys like Hercules, um, Lightning Kid. Brooklyn Brawler. 
Yeah. Interesting little group here. Tony Tony Mara headlining, too, of course, Tony Capone. And and, and you have Hercules working as Hercules here and on WCW TV as Super Invader at the same time. Yes. (laughs) There's that. You have the Condor, who I don't remember seeing anywhere else. Yep, the Condor. You have Joey Styles uh, in his Joey Styles and Craig gig. and Craig DeGeorge. Yes, Craig Minervivi. Well, as Craig DeGeorge, uh, yeah, yeah. But Joey Styles announcing as Joey Styles, which again, <laughs> that Craig Carton story, you know, about him, he was going to go to ECW as Joey Styles. Joey Styles was Joey Styles before ECW. So okay, I'm fairly sure I figured out what that deal was. Okay, he was just going to replace him. I think it's either that, and he misunderstood, or Paul had an idea that he ditched where they would do the Richard Belzer as the new Chevy Chase on SNL thing, where they would do a bit where it's the new. Isn't it Richard Belzer who does the new Chevy Chase sketch when Chevy Chase leaves? Oh God, I don't remember that. I thought you were talking about uh, Charles Rocket being the new, like trying to be like Chevy no, Chase. There's a sketch where they literally are like, and now the new Chevy Chase. I don't know if was it Bells that did that. <sighs> I think it was. Yeah, you're right. I think it, I think you're right. So that, you get what I'm saying, what I'm saying. especially since. Especially since Styles' replacement when he leaves briefly is a black guy named Willie Watts. He filled in for Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase had surgery, so he replaced him on an episode. But they call him, but there's a sketch like a weekend update or something where they call him Chevy Chase. Yeah, but yeah. Go. It's on NBC.com. Yeah, but he, but Chevy was still on the show. Actually, uh, he appears, but he's not a cast member anymore. It's from October 76. Yeah. He's the only cast member for the first season, isn't he? Yes, he was. I think he was supposed to be the host that week. Yes, but he was ill. Yeah. Um, but anyway, NEWA um, was it? Was it one of the mailbags where we ended up reading from the Tony Capone torch talk? Oh God, it's been so long since we've done one of them. I can't remember. I know, but it, that, one of uh, one of the old timers. Yeah. You know he uh, he had some lofty ideas for what he's his promotion could become. Yeah. And every, everybody's doing, everybody's doing, uh, whatchamacallits though. Doing startups. Yeah. You know, still. And, you know, he had Sports Channel America for a few weeks. Yeah, he had the TV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is though, no one, no one was ever going to be successful off Sports Channel America though, because it's not like Sports Channel America was available in that much of the country. It wasn't available here. I wish although, it was. Although one thing I I have a little bit better understanding of, and we'll end up talking about on the Todd Gordon Patreon show a little. Sports Channel America was also the name of the programming service that was used to fill time on the regional sports channel stations. So we never had one of those either. <laughs> but still, you could so you could get Sports Channel America programming in theory without having the network Sports Channel America. So it's very confusing. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's if you have a Torch subscription, it's well worth finding that one. It's I forget exactly when. It's from some point in the summer of 92. 
And he talks about, oh, I'm going to price my pay-per-views lower than the WWF. You know, my guys are going to be with me for years and pick, pick stars. And, da, 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 da. and It's like, no, you're, you're a money mark who's booking himself on top against Hercules. Yes, he was. Okay, now, quick question, actually, since you've been watching the TV. Well, it's been a minute, but yeah, I have watched it late, recently. Recently, yes. yes. So, from what I remember, I forget which order it was. It was like the first week of TV has a Hercules Toady Capone match for either the heavyweight or the super heavyweight type. Where uh, it's Hercules is the babyface, right? And Toady Capone wins by cheating. Yeah, and... the last the last episode I have watched was the August the eighth. Featuring Tony Capone against Hercules for the NWA Heavyweight title. Okay, so here's the thing, though. What From what I remember, I don't know if it was back-to-back weeks. I don't know if it was a few weeks apart. They basically reshot the same match and angle, except it was just in either it was the heavyweight title instead of the super heavyweight title or the super heavyweight title instead of the heavyweight title. Just redid the whole thing they did a few weeks earlier on national television just with a different title name. Yeah, the, matches on, the matches on this show is Condor against Mike Bell. Tony Capone against Hercules, a battle royal for the TV title, and the Hater versus Cash Jackson. Yeah, that's the first time I ever saw the Hater. And you had promos about the Godfather, Lightning Kid. You had there was all right, one. Oh, two, you got Carmine there as Hubie Marks too. Th- three Hercules promos in the, in this one TV show. So how many episodes do you have? I got all of it downloaded, but I haven't watched all of them. No, I mean, how many are there? Uh, I think it's like a month and a half, two months. Okay. I remember it being less, but I know it's more. I I, I know it's more like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was not long, and it was just a very... Again, it's like we still got this stuff going on. We still got, like, Eddie Mansfield trying to make someone with the IWF a little longer. It's, yeah, that's not in our week, but it's what's talked about in the in surrounding weeks, yes. Yeah, it's just... it's. It's insane how nobody's having any success with this. This goes on for the first few years of the 90s. That's what I'm saying. You know? 90 was probably the most out of any, you know, anybody. Yes, because you 90 especially you have people trying to restart territories, too. Yeah, so Along with the national startup attempts. But then you have so much. That's a lot, a lot going on. I mean, there's the, uh, there's the other IWF or whatever it was called that shot at, uh, Disney MGM, too. The one that used, like, the Alabama indie guys with, uh, like, Bob Armstrong and Mike Jackson as the hosts. Yeah, I got that, too. I think I sent that to you, or at least I made the DVD, but. No, you didn't. I got, I downloaded that one. Okay. It's just one episode, yeah. right? Um, I've watched one episode. I think it may have been two or three. Okay. But yeah, Tretch Phillips Jr. and the like. It's just insane how much of this shit's going on. Uh, people just trying to do what they can. All right, let's go to Eastern Championship Wrestling. Mm-hmm. They're in the Aztec Club in Philadelphia on September 12th. Um, I don't know what, if this is the right order or not, but it's the order of the results. East Bay Way title match, Jimmy Snooker retained over Super Destroyer number one. A handicap match, Fatu defeated the anchor, Mr. X. Dino Casanova and Rip Sawyer over HD Rider and EZ Rider. Rasta the Voodoo Man went to double count with Super Short number two. The Samoan Warrior defeated Tony Stetson. JT Smith over Mr. Sandman. 
Glenn Osborne over Max Thrasher by disqualification. Larry Winters and Jimmy Gennetti over King Kalua and Scott Summers. And Tommy Cairo over Damian Stone. It's this the 1992 ECW show. I mean, this is the early days of ECW. This is like Dick Graham announcing ECW. Of the stuff that's on video from their initial pilots, yes. Yeah, this is way early in Todd's run here. Yeah, I believe, uh, I forget if the other one's still on YouTube or anything. I believe three of the four videos they put out with 1992 stuff are on WWE Network. The one that is not on the network, and what I'm sure is just a complete coincidence, is the one that has a Jimmy Snuka match where the crowd is chanting very loudly, you killed your girlfriend at him. It is amazing to me. I've in recent research that I've been doing, and I've been doing a lot of January '83 research lately on different different things. That story, the original Nancy story, yes, the, in, it in was Syracuse. In, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. It was in all these newspapers, everywhere and around the country, all around the territory. It got picked up everywhere. And, you know, I, yeah, like when I, when I did that Snuck and Nancy Argentino story for Mel during the pandemic, um, one of the things that really struck me, besides just how shitty the coverage was, too, and how it's just focused on, like, LOL, this wrestler is staring down and fighting police dogs. It was everywhere. Like, this was... Like, I'd be curious if any local TV news anywhere covered it, or if it was strictly a newspaper story, because it was everywhere. Like, they carried it widely. And and then I, I watched a TV not too long ago from early 83... Where Snooka's out there and Snooka's beating the hell out of somebody, a job guy, and McMahon's on commentary is like, huh, Snooka's been going through some hard times lately. <sighs> this is before of the murder, too. So, yeah. I mean, it is crazy. It is crazy how that, that story was so many places, but it had no effect on him. And, you know, as I found out, you know, when I got more of, like, the police... He got more popular as it went went after the fact it happened. It, uh, was it, we got the police records, like, it was worse than even the reporting let on at the time, though, because, like, it, worse in the sense that the police saw him assaulting her. Like, this was not them arriving strictly after the fact. He resumed attacking her in front of them. That shows you he knew he can get away with it. I guess. I mean, one of... I'm Jimmy Snuka. You know, from the cop who I interviewed, who was one of the arresting officers, like, one of the things I thought was really interesting was he remembered... What was it? He said, like, a shorter, older man in a hat, I think, coming and saying he was Snuka's manager. He may have said promoter, but I think it was manager. And I think... Phil Zaka. Would it, it, I don't think it would be Phil Zacco upstate, though. So I'm thinking Scotland. Scotland. Um, and whoever was asked what the bail would be so he could make his bookings, it was going to be 5000 but uh, 
the officer, it was a uh, Romanenko, set, is pissed off and says to him, 25,000. And keep in mind, this is 1983. And the guy, Skoland, whoever it is, is like, oh, that won't be a problem. You know, and then... You know, but with bail, but bail too, that's 10%. For, so well, no, I want to say it was... I, I want to say he said he could, do, he could, he would be able to do it cash even, but it, I know, but bail is usually ten. You pay ten percent bond, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just but it's it is wild. Though. Like this was, uh, I'm trying to remember if the ECW match where that happens is before or after the Penthouse article comes out, but which is, I mean, it that would have just come out a few weeks earlier, so maybe it's one of these shows even. <laughs> Um, but one of the things, you know, Meltzer will talk about with Nancy Argentino is that, um, for some reason, it, like, it was a thing mainly talked about, like, at least in New York among, like, ringside MSG fans, but, like, somehow it got confused into her being Puerto Rican to the point that all of, like, the Puerto Rican fans were turning on him. Is a thing I remember. Anyway, getting back to 1992 and ECW, which, which by the way, it's something I'm very proud of. If people have never read that article I did, I would suggest reading it because it's probably the just. And I'm not saying this to my own horn. I'm just saying because there's a lot of research and it cites all the previous reporting. Uh, probably the best overview of the whole situation, besides you know that and the Dark Side of the Ring episode that they should check it out. But getting back to 1992. Um, Max Thrasher, I believe, who is providing the ring for ECW at this point for free. He's getting booked. Well, that's the idea. It, you know, because as we'll talk about when we do that Patreon show, like, and we talked about a little bit in the past, like when we did the Good Heart show, more on him in a minute. The idea was basically the TWA guys wanted a local promotion to wrestle. And, well, and of course. Um, and what else? I think it's like Stevie Wonderful, I think, was providing the sound system. I mean, also, the Max Thrasher thing makes me think of, aside from maybe one or two people you and I know personally, when was the last time you've heard of a wrestler using owning a ring to get booked as a way to get experience and stuff? Not much. Aspiring <laughs> wrestlers, if you have the money and storage for a ring, think about it. I'm just saying, think about it. But Yeah, but these days are different. In what sense? I mean, these days guys can get booked for various reasons, you know. Yes, it's just it's just a different it's a different time, I guess. But anyway, let's let's move on to Joel Goodhart, where we are now. What seven eight months after the fact, as far as him shutting down? Pretty much. Joel Goodhart's uh, fans who purchased advanced tickets to his wrestling shows before Goodhart went out of business only received 30 cents on the dollar in reimbursement. This was because uh, there was a $30,000 of ticket stubs returned to the commission and just $10,000 bond required by the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. Promoters like Goodhart and Herb Abram seem to make a strong argument that sub-performance bond and regulation is needed. Do you know what's really interesting about this? Based on the figures we heard about the Gates' show withdrawal, I don't know if this is a sign of how many of his readers or observers, subscribers, are just savvy enough to know to send it to the commission. $30,000 would be pretty much his whole gate, if not close to it. 
So I'm actually surprised Dave doesn't even mention that here. And you know, I've, you know, when we did the Patreon show on Goodhart, I didn't skip ahead to September to see if there was anything else we could, you know, talk about with him. But what do you make of that? Because the thing we always heard was that like a well-drawn Goodhart show would do like a thirty to thirty-five thousand dollar gate. That's what this is. What do you make of basically the entire ticket buying audience knowing to send in their ticket stubs to? Well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a, they're a smarter group, but they're also word of mouth travels and stuff, so. Fast, other fans do that. Well, also, you know what? I just realized it's Goodhart. He had the radio show. In the way everything's intertwined in this era, it's probably a good number. There are probably enough of the fans that know each other and or read The Observer and are maybe even are going to Dennis Corluzo shows and finding about it from him, finding out about it from him. The word was just able to get around. Yeah. But it's probably also that a healthy percentage of the ticket-buying audience is Observer subscribers, too. Yeah. All right, let's go to Florida. ICWA, they're in Tampa. It's probably Sportatorium on September 10th. We only have three matches of this card. Johnny Ace and a Master Blaster, Al Green, over the Stormtrooper and Gary Nice. Lou Perez over Cuban Assassin, Dave Sierra by disqualification, and Kevin Sullivan over Kenny Kendall. Hmm. So there's your little Florida guys there. And is this so, uh, Knoxville Nazi Stormtrooper? Oh, I don't know for sure, no. All right, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, the Rock and Roll Express appearing on the Jerry Lewis Telephone on the Clarksburg, West Virginia affiliate. The phone rang like crazy as they were they raised a record amount of money in a short period of time while they were answering the phones. They also were at Labor Day in, at the Smoky Show in the same city and were over like crazy. Well, that was a good idea by the local affiliate. They put them on there, wasn't it? Yeah. So is this Beckley Show, is that Labor Day? or No. no so wait, Beckley's what day would, would Labor Day have been? Wait, uh, we, I don't know, on the 12th. The so... 7th. Okay, yeah. The 7th. Beckley's the day before the Sunday show on the 6th at the Raleigh County Armory. We have Brad Batten going to a draw with Danny Davis. Dirty White Boy retains the Smoky Mountain title, beating Brad, uh, Bart Batten. Heavenly Bodies and Killer Kyle over Bronton Brown, Lee, Tim Horner, and Dixie Dynamite. Paul Ondorf went to a no contest with Ronnie Garvin. And the Rock and Roll Express won a stretcher match over Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. You know, we, we did that Fan Week episode a few weeks back from 93. And you really see what Dave was saying here about the roster getting so much younger in a year. Oh, yeah. Because the Batten twins have been around basically for 10 years. Danny Davis has been around for, you know, 14, 15 years almost. Dirty White Boy, of course, still around, was still there in 93. Uh, Stan Lane, gone, replaced by Jimmy Del Rey, a younger version. Uh, Pritchard and Killer Kyle still around. Brian Lee still around. Tim Horner still around. DC Dynamite was still around. Orndorff in WCW was, you know, long veteran. Ronnie Garvin, been in the business for... 30 years, basically, by this point in time. Yeah. He's gone. And the Ghost Rock and Rolls were still around, and Fuller and Golden were gone. But Fuller and Golden had only left a few months earlier. Yeah, and so, but you look at this, and this is a definitely a more southeastern territory-type show. Yes, and town. also a just more experienced roster, and like really your only... Your only less experienced guy. The, le- the least experienced guy on this roster is Killer Kyle. I was going to say, it's it's Killer Kyle and Brian Lee. 
Yes. And Killer Kyle still, though, he's not super green, though. Like, he's been working TV jobs regularly yeah. for a few years. He's been he, working he, indies. He's like, a three-year veteran, in, I think. What do you say, three-year? I think he was in the business for three years by this time. Yeah, and Brian Lee's maybe a little less, but he's been on national TV. No, Lee started in 88. Okay, but still, he's been on national television a little. He's been in other territories. You know, it's not what it is a year later where you have your Candido, Bobby Plays, etc. Where this is a little less for Candido, even if he didn't really get a push in Memphis. It's really their first break of any kind. And really the first opportunity to get full-time work um something else i wanted to say or now i don't remember um and is it so is this basically the last battens the last time the battens have like a real run anywhere yes like i know we know they wrestle later like for Bo, but and do tv jobs for wcw a little bit not that much after this yeah but still they're still around Right, but this is their last real real run. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I get it to a point, but at this point, especially since if anyone had seen their work in Puerto Rico, those guys were so much better as heels. They're so miscast as baby faces. I don't care how stunningly handsome they are as twins. Like, (laughs) And this point in time, they're like silver foxes, too. They got the, the silver in their hair. But, I mean, for real, anyone listening who has only ever seen them as, like, bland baby faces here, Memphis, or even, you know, wherever, watch them in Puerto Rico. Watch their stuff, even with Bo, a decade after this. Well, they were in Central Stage, managed by Bruno. That was their first heel run. I I don't know if there's any video of that around, though. It's around. Is there any online? Not, not much. Um, It used to be. I don't know okay. if it still isn't. But yeah, it's like those those guys were natural heels. And just because they're the handsome twins, it seemed like most promoters did not think to take advantage of that. No. But, I mean, yeah, you, you, you could definitely tell the difference in Smokey here. You know, it, it, as we talked about on that family show. You know, the, the, the aesthetic of the promotion. Yeah, I mean, also, just one more thing before we move on. Let's just count how many people here have worked Southeastern Continental. So, okay, first, how many people are on the show? So we got four, ten. So, okay, we've got a 16 wrestler show. Okay, and that this is pretty much the whole crew, right? Basically. Fantastics are there. Um, Stompers around. There's other ones that are around. But that's about it. Okay. So had oh, the Battens about to come in. Had the Battens worked Continental or Southeastern? No, they okay. never did. They were Poffo in Memphis. Okay, so we've got one Danny Davis, two Tony Anthony, three Stan Lane, four Tom Pritchard, five Tim Horner, Brian Lee. He had worked Continental, yeah. Okay, six Brian Lee, seven Steve Armstrong, Scott Armstrong. Sorry, Scott Armstrong. Yes, I know that. Uh. Eight Paul Orndorff, nine Ron Garvin. <sighs> Either Robert rock and roll work the territory. What? what? Robert Gibson grew up in, in you know, in the southern half of southeastern. But had he 
Yeah, he must have no. wrestled there. Had he wrestled in in Knoxville though? No, not really. More neither. Right, they had only wrestled on Crockett shows in the area. Yeah, they, that's that's their experience in that area is there. So what they did I say? Worked, nine. They, they they never worked for uh, Fuller and Knoxville. So what did I say? Nine with Garvin. Uh. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine with Garvin. So then Fuller and Golden are eleven. Good lord. So yeah. So eleven of (laughs) the sixteen eleven of sixteen on this card. So that's what percent is that? So that's that's more than two thirds yeah, it's more than two thirds of the wrestlers on the card. Larry Sharp canceled his debut car on September 19th in Tampa with Jerry Lawler versus Eddie Gilbert as the main event. And I don't think he ever actually ends up running anywhere in Florida, does he? Um, yes. He does run shows. Okay. Yes. WWE does have Florida shows. Because I used to have the tapes of, like, the TV he started airing in Florida type it up, but I had never seen, like, any results or video or anything. Well, it's not much. It's not long. That's another thing that's going on in this era. All these promoters are deciding, I also want to run in Florida. Well, they're mostly from Northeast. Snowbirds. They want to run yeah. from the Snowbirds. All right, let's go to Memphis. September 7th, the Mid-South Coliseum. We have Billy Joe Travis over the Hornet, which is uh, the fake sting, Ron Oaks. Miss Texas over Moondolph Fifi by disqualification. Diane Von Hoffman, yes. Yes, Mike Samples over Eric Embry by disqualification. Reno Riggins retained the USWA weight title, beating Brickhouse Brown by disqualification. Then the Texas weight title match, Brian Christopher defeated Dutch Mantell, retained his title. Tommy Rich and Buddy Landell beat Junkyard Dog and Bill Dundee. The Bushwhackers beat the Moon Dogs, Spot and Cujo by disqualification. And then USWA tag titles, Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett retained over Eddie and Doug Gilbert. Don't you just love they had the Texas title for over a year after they stopped running Texas? Yeah. <laughs> um, what else do we have here? Um, Bushwhackers here because of the WWF deal. Yes. Very early in the Southern title being renamed the USWA heavyweight title, right? I think it's actually at this point still called the Southern title, but that's about to change. Okay, so that's that's a cage match error. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's on the verge. Yes. Um... I feel kind of bad they couldn't call the Bushwhackers, or as Cage Match calls them, Bushwhacker Butch and Bushwhacker Luke, um, be the sheep herders if they're going to wrestle the Moon Dogs. And I'm kind of curious what that looked like, regardless. Um, well, they're still. I mean, they're doing the Bushwhacker shtick and everything. They're baby faces here. So okay, yeah, right, they're not really doing the USWA feud yet, and the Moon Dogs are still heels. So yeah. Um, or USWA WWF feud, I mean. And then I guess the other thing of note is this is right at the end of Eric Embry here. Because he's about to move to Colorado to book and wrestle for Korchenko's new uh, Colorado Championship Wrestling. And that's where he has the car accident that ends his career. Yeah. Um, his last official match um, was in October. In for CW? USWA, October, okay. October 12th. October 12th is the last match in Memphis. Okay. So, yeah, we're about a month away. Okay, so for what it's worth, Cage Match has a Big D show 
in March. We're talking about him and Big D as well during this week. So no, no, no. Ooh. But I'm talking about in March. Oh uh, well, he's not. I looked at Cage Match and he's not listed on there for '93. If you go to his results page, the last match is March 28th, 93. Lose the Leaves Town. Chris Adams, Eric Embry, and Terry Sims defeated Bill Irwin, Gary Young, and Ian Run. <sighs> yeah, that the way the cage match counts those year by year matches is very weird. Yeah, I don't know, man. So yeah, and yeah, good luck finding results for Colorado Championship Wrestling. I had no idea it even existed until I, I had a little bit of video of it and. Very weird promotion because you have Korchenko on commentary as Korchenko, but not doing the Russian accent or anything. Of course. Well, it's not like he ever talked previously as Korchenko. No, he did a little. He did in Memphis, but... He did, he did, he did, yeah, he did in Memphis, yeah. But he tried to use an accent in Memphis, at least. Well, I, if you want to say that, yeah. Tried. I didn't see he succeeded. But anyway, let's continue now as... <laughs> Uh, the next Mid-South Coliseum card is outside of the re- our week, but they are promoting it on TV in our week, and the way they are doing it is curious. September 14th at Mid-South Coliseum has been billed as Pro Wrestling Illustrated Night with them advertising this card as being taped for a video by the magazine, which Dave doesn't believe to be the case. Eddie Marlin talks about how it's the greatest card ever in Memphis, how great it is that WF and WCW are cooperating with them and sending talent. Of course, WF sends talent they have no use for, like Sergeant Slaughter, and they get put on top, while Tracy Smothers and Mr. Hughes are both fired by WCW, and Smothers was a TV jobber there, and they put him on top for their tag titles. So yeah, personal Australia doesn't know anything about this, basically. <laughs> and yeah, 15 matches. So, okay, who are your outside? I'm looking at the results to see if there's anyone else. Um, Yeah, Mr. Hughes, Tracy Smothers, Eddie G- I mean, Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, there's... Yeah, okay, it doesn't look like anyone else has added that wasn't already active in the USWA at the time. So what what is the idea of this hook that it's being taped for a home video that doesn't exist? Who knows? But there's got to be a reason they're running almost twice as many matches as usual, though. Maybe they were trying to get a video for Australia. I don't know. Like, I'd be curious to see, like, if the Colise- from the Coliseum clips that end up airing the following week, like, if there's, a, you know, if it, the, it's dressed or lit different no. or anything. Oh, no. you, okay, you've seen it, so it's not. Yeah. Strange. Okay. All right, they're doing an angle where Mike Samples claims he's buying up stock in the USWA. Samples claims he now owns a majority of the stock, while Eddie Marlin claims he only owns 10% right now. Samples was mad because he said Marlon has okay the cards through him, and this lineup wasn't okay. It wound up with Marlon shoving Samples. Eddie Gilbert held Marlon, and Samples beat him up until Jeff Jarrett made the save. This led to Marlon saying he was going to join Burt Prentice as referee for the Jarrett Samples match on Monday. All right, well, let's uh, check this out, shall we? Yes. Let me make sure I have my little filter gimmick for the VHS noise on. There we go. That's not the only match of the night in which world title is going to be at stake, though. The unified world title, hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert, will be going against Sergeant Slaughter. You know him from the WWF, and he will be in here to try to take the belts away. They're using a Sergeant Slaughter promo photo from the AWA in roughly 1986, by the way. Yeah. 
You hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. I am not going to be wrestling Sergeant Slaughter and Mr. Mike Samples. You can tell him why. He's already promised me this. I'm not wrestling Sergeant Slaughter. First off, you better stop advertising this or you're going to get arrested for false advertising. That match will not happen. And let me tell you why. Now, everyone knows that I own a major portion of this company. That's right. Wait, 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 wait. You may, we, have, we don't even have proof, you may own 10%. 10% is not major. Uh, Dave, it doesn't surprise me that you're a couple of weeks behind. There have been some major acquisitions this past week, but I'm not prepared to tell you about that. What I am prepared to talk about is the fact that Eddie Marlin has formed an alliance with a man by the name of Vince McMahon and the WWF. Now, they're sending people down here trying to do away with my associates, Eddie Gilbert, and nice people like the Moondogs, and, and that makes me mad. I'm not going to stand for it. Steal my title. Now, by the way, just real quick, this is after he had initially showed up as the alleged global official, right? Yes. So he's transitioned yeah, they're, they're into that this. now. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're past that now. Okay. Sergeant Slaughter is a former WF World Heavyweight Champion. If they would bring someone down here, a preliminary wrestler, it would be okay. But not a former champion. Eddie Gilbert has other things to do. That match will not take place. I'm not going to stand for... Now, here comes Eddie Marlin. Yeah, Eddie. Here comes Eddie Marlin. I come out here to tell you that that match is going to take place. Uh -uh. It's been signed, and the match will take Uh -uh. place. I don't care what you say. Uh -uh. Well, you can come out here and talk all you want. You have to confer with me before you sign any more matches. I have good ownership in this company now, and you're not just going to have carte blanche to come in here and sign up match after match after match after match, because you come see me from now on. You understand? I've signed the best card that's ever been in this city, and you're out here trying to run it down. I'm telling you, your 10% might allow you to sweep out the ring or something, but it does not allow you to sign the matches. You're behind I'm signing the matches, and the match will take place. Sergeant Slaughter against her. Sergeant Slaughter, he may come down here, but it won't do him any good. He can get back on the I'm plane and go. The match will take place, and you need to get out of here. I'll throw you You come see right me now. when you want to sign a match. I'll you for you nothing. You oh, oh, come on, Eddie. Uh-oh, Eddie grabbed Eddie. Turn him loose. Yep. Samples punches him. Now he's choking him. I'm not going to have to wrestle Sergeant Slaughter. Now I have a... Here comes Jeff. Look at Eddie. Look at Eddie. It's Jeff. Oh. <laughs> well, there they go. Samples and Eddie Gilbert. Jeff Heppin out of here. It's Jeff, though. It's not Lola or Dundee. He probably didn't feel anything. <laughs> I don't care how many sucker punches he can throw. That match will take place. Sergeant Slaughter's got a word to say to him about it. And he will pay for that. Yeah, we've got some videotape on uh, Sergeant Slaughter. Let's let's take a look at that. Thanks, Jeff, for helping. Do we want to hear his uh, green screen promo? Yeah, might as well. Attention, hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. You Stop. scum. You slime. <laughs> you maggot. My name is Slaughter. Drill Sergeant Slaughter. Have you ever heard of Drill Sergeant Slaughter? Well, it's your lucky day, because my orders just came down, and they say that I had to go to Memphis and face you at the Mid-South Coliseum 
this Monday night. <laughs> Your worst nightmare. Hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. I am Sergeant Slaughter. And when I come to the Mid-South Coliseum, my mission is to seek out and destroy. Destroy you. I'm going to kick butt and take names. And speaking of names, why do you call yourself hot stuff? Are you some kind of a pretty boy? Well, I don't like pretty boys. Do I? Do I, hot stuff? Speak up. Speak up, you rat. I can't hear you. Hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. Consider your days numbered. Consider your hours numbered. Consider your seconds numbered. Because I, Sergeant Slaughter, and coming to defeat you for the USWA Heavyweight Championship, and I will—that's a different I title. will destroy you. It's I so take weird. no prisoners. Now that's that order. Eddie Gilbert not happy about it, but he's going to have to face Sergeant Slaughter Monday night, Mid South Coliseum. That's the main event of 15 huge matches Monday night. We'll be back after this. It's just so odd. Yes. Now, who's the booker at this point? Is it Eddie or Lawler? It's not, it's not Embry, so it's probably... Um, it's maybe... It's, it's either one, you know? Do you know why I'm asking? Well, it calls it Sergeant Slaughter, and it's Eddie booking himself against Sergeant Slaughter. Against a WWF guy who we would have known in the WWF, yes. Yes. Because as we see the following year in ECW, that's a thing he likes to do, to show them what a big shot booker he is now. Yes. Okay. Oh, they were the top stars when he was there, but when he was a young guy. That punch by Jeff there. <laughs> lit him up. I mean, he sold it great, though. I know, a good guy just lit him up. No, look, though, he's really touching him. I know, but it's just the way it looks. It looks fantastic, but that's what I was saying. It's Jeff. It's not Lawler or Dundee. These ain't lottery punches. These are... This is Jeff. Remember, he's the one that Austin complained about working so light he barely noticed him. To the point <laughs> it bothered him. Yeah. Alright, also on television Saturday. Alright, so we... Um, yeah, also on television Saturday, Brian Chris from Billy Travis had a match. We saw Eddie throw a chain in which Brian used to KO Travis to win. Reno Regas came out, told the referee, but while this was going on, Brian threw the chain back to Eddie. So when the ref checked Brian, he couldn't find the chain, so the decision stood. They had a clip from the 7th in Memphis where Tommy Rich and Buddy Landell beat Bill Dundee and JYD when Rich hit Dundee with a chain. So Landell fell on Dundee. Oh, we got to watch Buddy Landell's promo. So, so yes, Landell Buddy Landell on the couch in – is that his underwear? I don't know. So so Landell fell on Dundee for the pin. Rich and Landell both blessed, so Dundee and JYD demand the first blood match for the 14th. Oh, yeah. Let's watch Let's watch Bud Road here at home. Yeah, I'm queuing it up. All right. Who's the ref here? Kevin Christian. That is Kevin. Okay, I wasn't sure. 
With his mullet. Yeah, I was about to say, this is not the usual Kevin Christian haircut. Dell has to say. Ah. You just about run through all your favors. Yeah, he's in his tidy whities on his couch at home. <laughs> yes. For dog this time at hand, let me tell you something. Yeah, I got my head busted open so bad that I couldn't even do my interview with Tommy Rich. Had to come home and get sewed up, and then I got to come here and sit in my living room with my kids seeing my head busted open. Let me tell you something, Bill Dundee, junkyard dog. I got time on my side, like Mick Jagger said. So it don't make any difference to me, baby. Wherever it is in the USWA, I'm coming after you. Tommy Rich is coming after you. Run, beat him. <laughs> As Aaron during the match, just a rarity. Planning and headed for the corner to yes. tag his partner. Dundee had one parting shot. Here's the uh, shadow. Uh, Dundee, what? Only the shadow knows. The shadow's gimmick appears to be that he's an actual shadow because he's wearing black from head to toe to fingertip. And I think he is black. So Why? Who's that under too? the gimmick? Oh, no, that's, that's the hand. No, I think he's wearing gloves. Okay. Yeah, I just look, look a black guy the there for a minute. He's teaming Rich to be fine. Bill Dundee, he's been handling it all for his team. Tag JYD. That's another oddity. JYD in the studio. (laughs) Soon to be unified champion. But, uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, Tommy Gilbert, who managed A and Doug last week. Lauren Davenport and Mike Miller, the latter whom's in Japan. And Danny Davis all seem to be gone. Well, Lauren Davenport's still around. So, and Bill Dundee has opened up a lounge in Corf, Mississippi called Dundee's. Is this the strip club? Uh, yes, I think so. The one that he would later advertise with a card that had a picture of him on it. Yes. Do we want to hear Wildfires promo? Too? Might as well. This is Tommy. Yes. Okay. He's bl- he's busted open. Tommy Rich. But he's bandaged. <laughs> Bill Dundee, you and me rode the roads together. We chased women, and we did it all together. Them days are gone. You went out. I fought you one-on-one, man-to-man. You couldn't carry the load. You went out and got the big black stud, JYD, that eats dog biscuits. Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> Monday night. They won a first blood match. Yeah, they busted my head because Junkyard Dog had a dead gum chain. We don't cheat. A Bill Dundee picked Buddy Landale up. He couldn't hold him. Fell back. He lost the match. That wasn't my fault. I'm telling you, Memphis, Tennessee, Monday night, I'm going to cripple Bill Dundee. And when Buddy Landell and myself get through, we're going to take Junkyard Dog, the big black superstar he is, and we're going to take and shove dog biscuits down his throat. The first blood, Dundee's going to come on you. I'm glad we didn't have O'Connor on with that closing line. <laughs> All right, so uh, there's Memphis. Let's go now to the promotional war in Dallas. We'll start with the GWF. Uh, the promotional war in Big D. <laughs> yes, well, we'll have Big D coming. Big D is coming and coming hard. All right, GWF, the out of work, aka the out of work Dallas area actors promotion. <laughs> 
ran the Bizarre Angle City Show on September 11th at the Sportatorium. Skandar Atbar appeared with his lawyer, Gaston B. Means, a local actor, playing the role, saying he's filing suit against the GWF for not allowing him to hang the Iraqi flag on the Sportatorium wall. Means threatened to put GWF out of business if they don't display the Iraqi flag. Unfortunately, the reaction from most of the crowd was indifferent to all this, but the ringside regulars cheered Means' remark about putting Global out of business. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know that Gaston B. Means was a local actor, Bix. I mean, everyone on this show at this point who's not a wrestler is a local actor. What do you expect? Yes. That's why they're so good, I guess. All right, Tribal Nation, the Youngbloods, beat John Tim and Rob Price when Price grabbed Sebastian, another local actor, briefcase, and tried to hit one of the brothers, but hit Tatum instead and got pinned. After the match, Sebastian tried to sign Tribal Nation to a manager contract, offering them fire water, <sighs> and they got mad and tore up his jacket and chased Gary Hart, pulled out a razor, and shaved off Gary Hart's hairpiece. <laughs> Probably the only time in pro wrestling where someone pulled out a razor on Gary Hart, <laughs> as opposed to vice versa. Maniac Mike Davis doing well, his Well, no, wait, life. there's more. No, it's, remember, Sebastian's not a local actor. Well, that's what he's, Dave He's said. a local PhD candidate student. <laughs> it's much weirder than that. <laughs> Mike Davis doing his new Michael Worthington Davis gimmick came out with yet another actor, Dr. Dietrich. Davis is now being billed as a former Harvard valedictorian. Isn't he Michael Worthington Davis III? Yes. Commissioner Joe Castellini and his two female companions, all three more local actors, did a four-minute interview. Basically, it was about Atbar throwing fire in Butchery's face the previous week. Castellini said after what happened, he originally decided to permanently ban Atbar from the GWF for throwing fire. However, after he had a view of the incident analyzed by his experts... His experts determined that Atbar didn't throw fire at Reed. Instead, he claimed Reed was drinking heavily before the match, and a spark from Atbar's cigar ignited Reed's breath, causing a huge fireball to appear. <laughs> because of the huge quantities of alcoholic beverage consumed by Reed prior to the match, which Dave says that's a new way to try to bury someone who quit the promotion, it's a wonder that John Atbar wasn't killed in the explosion. And that, other than the Dave aside, that is a qu- that is a quote allegedly. And that Dave aside, and Butchery quit to go to work for uh, WCW. He's gone from WCW in two weeks. Um, he then announced a $1,000 fine on Reed for drinking before a match, a $500 fine for referee James Beer for allowing a drunk man to wrestle, and banned Sam Houston, who also quit the promotion, for life for no show in the previous week while on probation. Castellini also fined himself $10,000 for his decision to criticize Atbar without reason and gave it to Atbar to give to his favorite charity. <laughs> I mean, I know a few promotions that uh, Joe Castellini could clean up. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Oh my so, so, yes. I, we've talked about this before, I, but oh. a little. So, Joe Castellini. <laughs> the character of Joe Castellini is that he's basically a mob captain in the pockets of the heels who somehow became the commissioner of Global. He eventually disappears from TV. Yes. Only to return with longer hair, a beard, and messy clothes, explaining that he had been arrested for racketeering in Sicily. <laughs> and after uh, serving his time, I guess, was now homeless, 
implied to be living at the shelter down the street from the sportatorium and taking out the trash there for minimum wage for however many hours he spends on taking out the trash. Yeah. Ray Pearson's GWF, everybody. Oh, it is amazing. It sucks that it's not on YouTube like it used to be. Yeah. Oh, it is something else. Yes, if the Ultimate Classic Wrestling Network is listening, uh, please put this era of global up on their uh, video on demand and uh, Plex TV channel. But yeah, <coughs> uh, uh, this the, <laughs> what a turn this promotion has taken in the last few months. We already thought it was bad when. You know, all the Atlanta people get fired, and Eddie Gilbert goes off on Max Andrews on the house mic, and mysteriously the Observer doesn't cover it while it's the cover story in the torch. Uh, and all that, Max Andrews sells to Gray Pearson for however much money, and turns it into whatever this is. We're not done. Uh. Booker T had a match with Johnny Mantel, which ended with Black Bart, At Bart, and Reginald Manny Fernandez interfering. And Bart branded Booker's butt with a branding iron. Manuel Villalobos and Mike Lane uh, ended with Manny winning by DQ when Fernandez interfered with Mantel, Bart, and At Bart with a sombrero and pinata, which they put on Villalobos' head. Fernandez then put the pinata with Bart's branding iron. So where is this in the Manny Fernandez, Manuel Villalobos feud, though? I don't know. Because, I don't know. Uh, there was so this was the storyline where uh unlike uh, Joe Castellini Manuel Villalobos was just in danger of becoming unhoused and uh <laughs> he uh announces proudly on TV that he has secured uh public housing through HUD I am not making this storyline up whatsoever and shows off a picture of, which if Chris remembers this, he'll know I am not making this up. Shows off a picture of his new home that he's very proud of that basically looks like an outhouse. Yes. And then, uh, as a promotional thing to help him get back on his feet, the, uh, what's the dealership? Westway Ford, right? Yes. That had sponsored world class and stuff locally for years and had the wrestlers do commercials. They give him a brand new car, which is then destroyed by Manny Fernandez. <laughs> this is insane. And we continue. Announcer David Webb still pretends he's got amnesia and thinks he's Elvis. So he had been hit in the head uh, with a microphone by Manny Fernandez, who uh, also was the booker at this time, I should know. Yes, yes, that's why shit's crazy as hell. Yes, John Tate, wait, John Tate... <sighs> When was John Tatum Booker? After or before Manny? Probably after, I think. Okay. And oh, from watching that, rewatching some of that stuff on the Savoldi streaming thing, holy shit is the announcing team of David Webb and, and Doyle King terrible. Or David Webb as Elvis doing the announcing? No, regular David Webb. <laughs> oh, because... <laughs> David Webb as Elvis is something else, too. Good God almighty. I mean, honest to God, I'd probably rather listen to the David Webb as Elvis Doyle King combo than the regular David Webb uh, Doyle King combo. What about Martin Nolte and, and uh, Doyle King announcing a combo from the dying days of GWF in 94? <sighs> that sucks, too. All right. And then there's uh, this one. Minority stockholder Wayne Whitworth was fired 
by Majority Starcoder Gray Pearson since Whitworth lost his cool in a backstage argument with Joe Castellini. <laughs> Wait, for real? Or I guess so. I don't know. I'm assuming it's for real since Dave does not say another actor. <laughs> Can I just say what wonderful comfort food it is that there is now a free linear streaming channel that is largely uh, Savoldi and global footage? Yeah. It's on Plex, everybody. It's apparently going to be on Pluto and some of the others soon. But it needs to be. Yes. Um... And Plex, I think Plex is on Roku and stuff too, but I but the the interface for the uh, free channels is better on Pluto and Freevee and the others than it is on Plex. <sighs> what what the f- so also I mean we should know too. So now that Great Pearson's taken over, the business model of this company, besides whatever money they're getting from ESPN is basically to try to give away as much, many comps as possible with the idea that you'll make money on the concessions. Yes. Which apparently he did okay at, so... <laughs> okay, I had to look this up real quick for read the results <clears throat> from the torch, because I didn't put it in there. A mother and daughter who have been going to the Sportatorium virtually without fail for seven years asked Joe Castellini in a question, in a, a question during a question-and-answer session. He didn't like the question and told them they both dress like tramps and they should go hang out on Harry Hines Boulevard on Friday night with the rest of the hookers instead of coming to the arena. Well, they don't, they didn't go to Harry Hines, but they took the rest of his advice. (laughs) Oh my God. What? Uh, Oh, Joe Castellini, my God. Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember, in this era, the torch often has Dallas stuff that's not in the Observer. Uh, and which, almost surely because of Freddie Fargo. But Well, actually, Freddie Fargo's mad during our week. Actually, yeah, I should probably pull up that thing we mentioned in our DMs that's not in the notes to talk to you once we're done with talking about that. Talk about once we're done talking about that. <laughs> well, I'll read the results while yes. you do that. My, all right, so the results of this show, Mike Lane over Larry Green... Tribination over Dusty Wolf and Nick Golden. Stevie Ray over Black Bart. Chaz over Dusty Wolf. Tribination over the California Connection. Kendo Nagasaki over Buffalo Barnes. Manuel Lobos over Mike Lane by DQ. Mike Dahl over Manny Fernandez. Booker T over Johnny Mantel by DQ. And in a TV title match, Nick Golden beat Mike, Michael Worthington Davis III by disqualification, but Davis retained his title. So... Well, let's, let's go to the other half of the Dallas Wrestling War. And Big, Big D, D Pro D. Wrestling, starring top, top babyface Big D. All right, so they ran a few days earlier, September 6th. The main event of their show saw Eric Embry and Terry Sims, both working for Big D, against Sean Stevens and Gary Young, with Embry's hair at stake against Embry getting five minutes in the ring with Freddie Fargo and no referee. Embry pinned Stevens when the match. When Fargo held up a chair and Stevens tried to whip Embry into it, but Embry reversed the whip. However, before Embry got five minutes of Fargo, Young and Stevens gave him two spine pile drivers on a chair. Fargo then destroyed Embry with chairs until Embry did a major juice job. With 45 seconds left, Embry started his comeback and gave Fargo a low blow at the bell. Next week has Embry against Fargo with all the wrestlers bar from ringside. Well, I mean, 
Thanks to thanks to McFoley, we know that Eric Embry was truly the greatest headliner in Big D history. Well, alright, so uh, earlier in the card, also Kong squashed a wrestler named Wayne Pearson from downtown Dallas, which was a spoof on Global's head promoters, Wayne Whitworth and Gray Pearson. <laughs> I mean, we should probably also point out that Gray Pearson was Kevin Von Erich's lawyer. Yes. Um, and the one who... <laughs> was his lawyer when he tried suing Jerry Jarrett in what turned out to be a terrible idea. So they're doing the old jobber routine and after the rival promoters. I love it. All right, results of the big D show at Rocket Fiesta Palace. Ray Evans over Jimmy James. Also Kong over Wayne Pearson. Big D over Johnny Angel. Miss Texas over Dirty Die. Eric Fontaine over Scott Braddock by disqualification. Oh, really? <laughs> well, there's big D's. Eric Fontaine's around. Eric Embry and Terry Sims defeated Sean Stevens and Gary Young. And Eric Embry went to a five-minute draw with uh, well, five-minute no contest for Eddie Fargo. Now, this was done in retaliation. Wait, we're not pointing out why Eric Fontaine is there? <laughs> well, because uh, Bert Prentice is wrestling in the office. Well, he's working that, in the office at the time. Well, I'm, I'm about to get into that. Okay. This was done in retaliation. Since Eddie Gilbert versus the Dark Patriot for the Global Wrestling Federation North American Heavyweight title was scheduled on this card. Both Gilberts no-showed the card. With Eddie saying he had a message Sunday morning on his answer machine from Gray Pearson saying he and a few Texas Marshals would be waiting for Gilbert when he arrived at the DFW airport. And if Gilbert got the plane, he'd be arrested for stealing the GWF North American title belt. So Gilbert didn't come to Dallas. Dave always heard the belt was on the property of Global, but of Carol Lindsay, <laughs> the original financier behind Global, who's no longer affiliated with the group, and that Lindsay had given Gilbert the okay to use it since she left the group on bad terms with Max Andrews. Oh. <laughs> Promoter Chris Love, Bert Prentice, when he made the announcement that Gilbert wasn't going to be there and offer refunds, nobody asked for him said he could make up a story about travel connections problems or make up that Gilbert was injured in a non-existent match, but he said he wanted to tell the story and basically told what was written here to the fans. Bill Dundee will come in on September 13th and with Danny Davis and Jeff Jarrett scheduled in the upcoming weeks. That doesn't happen. Now, Bird is not the promoter, though. Gary Sturdivant is, a.k.a. Big D. It's just that Bird is basically running the office for him. Um, yes. whatever office there is since they only run one. He's the Eddie Marlin, so to speak, of uh, <laughs> Big D. But kind of a shoot, Eddie Marlin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And of course, yes. So we have Eric Embry headlining Big D with <laughs> with Zebra Kid Eric Fontaine around along with Bert. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, ter and Terry Sims. Why? Wait, why? Terry wait. Well, Terry Sins was known for the cut of his jib. So. He was? Yes. Well, only why? because he worked in Global in trunks? Very small trunks, yes. Well, well so we have a side note. <laughs> um, so Chris, in wanting to get some of the more extensive stuff in the torch into the notes, was like, hey, can you do OCR on the PDFs? You know, so we can put this text in the notes. And I'm like, sure. And as I'm going through the stuff in the notes, I'm like, oh, okay, well, there, I'll, you know, we didn't end up reading it. There wasn't anything important, but I, like, linked it when I did the stuff for Chris. Oh, there's a uh, article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's the one in the WCW section. But I was like, okay, let me, I'll see this. And then I'm like, you know what? 
it, I was searching for something. I was like, let me see what Steve Beverly's column in the Columbus Ledger Inquirer was that week. Just for the heck of it. And the headline in our week on September 11th, 1992, Pedicino, a, quote, liar, factor, quote, opinion. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing because most of it rehashes things we've been over many times, including on the, uh, on the global shows. But there is something new in here. So this is, for those not aware, though, and we do, we do have that first global show up for free if people want to hear it. But Bruce Mitchell, a few weeks earlier, had written a column in The Torch called Fool or Liar about Pedicino. And basically, you know, alleging that it was much more plausible that he lied about Oluoliami and all that. Uh, I believe it was a week later, all of Joe's friends, so Steve Beverly, the Atlanta Boys, etc., uh, etc. being Freddie Fargo, all wrote letters in that were pretty illuminating about, you know, extra details of what happened. And, you know, Joe Pedicino couldn't write money on the G- write checks on the GWF accounts. So, like, he he was not... If there was a scam, he couldn't have enriched himself from it, blah, blah, blah. But there's one thing in here that is not uh, in there. And let me make sure I'm finding the right part, because I don't want to scroll through our DMs. Uh, oh, here we go. I'll read the paragraph. Well, I'll read the preceding one, too, because it's short. The column's author, Bruce Mitchell, suggested that Penasino lied in 1991 about his prospects of raising $25 million to fund Global and his potential of staging a Global show in a large stadium in Nigeria. Some of Penasino's statements were made an issue of Matt Watch last year. It was actually two years ago. But those comments were made on the basis of what his principal financier, Olu Oliemi, as I clicked away from it by mistake, um... Primary financier Oluyemi, a Nigerian pedicino, had investigated by both private, a private agency and the IRS. That doesn't sound right, but whatever. To certify his legitimacy as an investor, had told him, and that was in the letter, though, or at least the gist of it was. This was not. I know. I, along with four other key people later affiliated with Global, were at Pedicino's home in 1990 when Oluyemi made the proposals. Mm-hmm. Look, you and I both like Steve Beverly a lot personally and think he did a lot of good work in Matt Watch, too. And Absolutely. I don't want that getting clouded. But... When it came to his friends, what the fuck? Uh, well, we've talked about that with Eddie. Yeah, I mean, what was it, two weeks ago? Yeah. House, or- House organ Freddie Gilmer. But he... He always covered for his friends. Not... So not only is he privy to this stuff, which is whatever, it happens, that's the game. He's at Joe's house when the presentation is being made? Well, you know, we always talked about he was going to be supposed to be an employee. He was going to be an announcer, yeah, which has never mentioned him out. No. So, yeah, that was that was interesting to find there. Um, just another layer to all this. So, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, also, when so when Steve's doing that interview with Pedicino, 
he is playing dumb to a degree that I don't think we realized previously. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um, let's go to Portland now. Sandy Barnes Portland show on Saturday night has been drawn just under 200 each week since the return of Steve Dahl with the September 12th card draw more than 450. With Dahl and Sky the Body, Sky Flamingo back for one night, beating Alberto Madrill and John Rambo by DQ on top while most of the crew was in Japan. The crowds always seem to increase when the top guys are in Japan because it forces them to bring in new faces. They're doing a weird gimmick with wrestler Damian Knight, who's practically albino and wears thick glasses outside the ring. They say he can see better in the dark than in the light. And before the finish of his matches, Alberto Madrill hits the switch. Lights go out in sports arena. When they go on, Knight has his opponent pinned. <laughs> sure. Gray Pearson oh, these... here, too. <laughs> Speaking of Portland, Billy Jack Haynes' boxing career only lasted 12 minutes. About six weeks back, Haynes had his first match of four-round exhibition against local heavyweight who once fought Leon Spinks to a draw in Eugene. Haynes knocked the guy down once and gave him two standing eight counts when the process also broke one, a rib and broke a finger, and the injuries convinced him that 39 years old is too old to start a pro boxing career. Haynes had a 31-3 and record as an amateur, but that was many, many years ago. I expect Haynes to resurface in pro wrestling, although somehow I don't think he'll be in the WWF, Dave said. Why, Dave? Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Uh... <laughs> Practically an albino. <laughs> What a what a string of words there. Now, if it was Bruce Hart, he would have named him Captain Lou out by now. <laughs> I mean, just like, uh, practically an albino. So is he supposed to be Either you are, you aren't. Either you are, you aren't. <laughs> yeah, so is he an actual albino, or is he just someone who's really pale? I mean, is he Johnny Winner or Edgar Winner? I mean, what is he? I mean, come on. Jesus Christ. Okay, I feel like I have to Google this person just to see if there's anything. I've never even heard of him. Damien Knight wrestler. I'm sure there are other Damien Knights, too, is the thing. Uh, uh yeah. It's such an indie name. Uh, let's see. Could be a porn name, too. Okay, wait, let's see if I search Damien, uh, Damien Knight wrestler albino. Uh, wait, I had a typo there. Uh, show results with albino. Yes, of course. Okay, yeah, there's nothing. Well, there you go. Oh, wait a second. Wait, there is a unified championship wrestling. Okay, no, this isn't from the same era. That had a Damian Knight and also an albino rhino. But that that's within the last few years. So, guessing that this is uh, someone else. All right, let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. And we start with Pros Torch. WF is showing some confidence that WCW is not a major threat to them, or else they're just becoming nicer guys. As Steve Plenamento told Mike Mooneyham of the Charleston Post-Courier. There's enough to go around. There's enough for everybody. I think what is needed is for different organizations to be different from one another. 
there are towns we can't get to as far as live events. And I really feel there's enough to go around as long as it's a quality presentation, as long as the fans receive and are confident they're getting value. Whatever you call it, sport, entertainment, what have you, as long as you're giving the fans their money's worth. And it's good for everybody. We've always run our business our way, and we wish WCW ought to look as we do all our other organizations. Bill Watts is going back to the old days of more athleticism and less of a focus on personalities. We wish him the best of luck. There's nothing wrong with these organizations being being a completely polar opposites because it gives the fans a choice. Now, regarding the WFUSWA alliance, it's really an evolving relationship. I don't even know how, what to call it, except an arm's-length agreement. It's not a merger. They're an independent organization, as we are. They're not going to be minor league for WWF. They'll be a developmental area for WWF. I don't think you could call a guy who's been in the business for 30 years like Jerry Jarrett and survived, the minor, and survived a minor leaguer. It's not our intention to make it seem like they're a minor league. We don't look at it that way. I don't think Vince would take on a business partner who he thought was a minor leaguer. Jarrett's been in this business for a long time and succeeded, so he must know what he's doing. I don't think Vince would trust someone with our talent for a talent exchange if he didn't have confidence in that person. Nor would we depend on that person developing talent if we didn't have all the confidence in the world. And what this relationship becomes is for all of us to wait and see. I don't know where it could lead. But they don't send talent to develop for them for talent to them to develop for years. No, it's not them sending talent. It's for talent that's there to be developed to go up. Well, yes, and that. But the thing is, though, is that doesn't happen either. I mean, it happens, but it does. I mean, Mona Mission comes Gets out of there. there. Yeah. Um, Brian Christopher is whatever the hell he's doing. I mean, Jeff goes up at the end of 93. I mean, it's more later, but this early run, yeah, it's mainly the relationship is mainly the WF guys coming in. Mm-hmm. And Vince, you know, doing his thing. So, And also, we should know, too, as far as, like, that we can't run enough dates for every city thing, like, one of the reasons they're doing the USWA thing and sending guys to work those shows is that they don't have enough dates for everyone. Yeah. Well, at least Steve Planament is over-talking about something not that serious for once. Well, how about the Bill Watts stuff in, WC- in WCW? Less of a focus on personalities. I mean, there's enough room for both of us. What do you make of that being an official Titan thing? It's definitely interesting to hear, you know, coming from a, the official representative of, of Titan Sports, not yeah. combative at all. No, I'm, I'm not sure what I make of this. Very, very different. Well, I'm, I'm kidding. Unless Bill Walsh is sabotaging it for them. Nah, of course not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Bill Watts hated Vincent Man probably at this time still. So it's only three years later that he works there. Uh, three years is three years. One <laughs> well, also All right, uh, is there. So. Uh, yes. Bruce Pritchard was rehired by Titan to work as JJ Dillon's office assistant. He won't do any work on the TV side, where there are enormous heat on him, which resulted in his being fired last year. That would change. As far as him going back to writing TV, and I mean, he's never back in—he's never back in TV production specifically. I don't think, though. Right? I mean, he's involved, but he's not like 
he's not hands on with technical producing the way he was. No, no, no. Um, but he's back on the phone. And John Filippelli is still there, right? About to leave, though. But the re- that's the reason he has nothing to do with TV, though, was that his heat was with John Filippelli. Yes. At least the way it was always explained at the time was that he got pissed off that Vince hired an outside TV big shot when he had been doing so well. Yes. And, I mean, there Some- is a... Uh, on the Something to Wrestle With YouTube, there is a seven-minute clip about John Filippelli. SummerSlam will take place on Thanksgiving. SummerSlam on Thanksgiving weekend is at Richfield Coliseum. <laughs> Dave means Survivor Series. Suburban Cleveland. Top two matches will be Ultimate Maniacs, Warrior Savage against Razor Ramon Ric Flair, Big Boss Man and Nails with a nice stick on a pole. <laughs> and Razor Ramon getting the super push at the house show is going over Savage every night in just under seven minutes. Also, Bret Hart will be in Richfield. Sometimes with a foot on the ropes. Well, he, he went over Bret Hart in Richfield, actually. Usually, Flair's interference. Dave's kind of surprised with them using Richfield as a live side since the house show there on September 12th drew just 4,700 paid. WC ran head to head in Cleveland, drawing about 2,000 paid. Although the difference in gate was 4 to 1, 72,000 to $18,000. Richfield's already hosted two Survivor Series, and the second one saw them heavily pad the place, and they still have 5,000 empty seats. That was also when business was a whole lot stronger. Yeah, it was the home of Survivor Series. Basically, but yeah, Survivor Series ends up drawing pretty well, though. Yeah, it does all right. All right, Stu Hart was in Bret Hart's corner for a match in the building, cheering Ric Flair's win big time, but on Calgary on September the eighth, but it drew poorly. That's not good. Now, regarding the title change, it airs during our week, the Flair title change over Savage. Apparently, there were a lot of problems with the post-match crowd scenes for Flair Savage title win. Everyone on television, they wanted to portray a negative reaction from the crowd, so they went to the careful editing and piped in cam booing. All right, let's watch how the, they we go, we go had the finish of the match and post-match, and watch this presentation compared to all the other presentations we've ever seen of a WF title, heavyweight title change. So let me make sure, yeah, make sure I'm screen sharing the right thing. Okay, there we go. Till finally, the walls caved in with the arrival ringside of Razor Ramon. Razor Ramon! Oh no! Ramon takes Savage's leg right out from under him. As Ric Flair applied the figure four leg lock, even then, the macho man Randy Savage could not surrender. Despite the severity of the pain, the Macho Man would not consciously submit. However, the longer Ric Flair applied the figure four, the more the Macho Man slipped away into a state of unconsciousness. And so, too, did the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt slip away from the Macho Man Randy Savage. Four leg lock, the pain of that hole, 
after Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect concluded their celebration in the ring, Razor Ramon returned to a helpless, a hapless, and a defenseless Randy Savage and began to publicly humiliate the Macho Man and began to strip Randy Savage of the only real thing he had left, his dignity as a man. What's Razor Ramon trying to prove there? Razor Ramon coming back to the ring, hammering away, pummeling a macho. Hammering man. away. Randy Savage defenseless, just trying to hang on to the leg a moment ago. Finally, officials coming in to move Razor Ramon away. But look at this. What kind of a man would do this to Randy Savage? What kind of a man is Razor Ramon? But speaking of a man, a man that Randy Savage would later say was his only real true friend in the world. The ultimate warrior liberally carried the Macho Man out of harm's way. Warrior in street clothes, by the way. Carrying the Macho Man, Randy Savage, back to the dressing room. The ultimate warrior, still in the street clothes, just arriving here at the arena. Look at the bond between those no two. No face paint. Hey, Savage. You're not too macho now, man. You know WWF champion. You know machismo. You know what you are, man? Tu eres tierra, man. You are the dirt underneath my fingernails, chico. with Paul September recap video that is going back and forth between what aired on primetime and what aired on syndication. And, and, and this is a this is the version without the Gene monologues, what we just seen, the, the Razor attack. Oh, Razor's about to attack here. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, again, this is so different than any presentation, you know, of a WF title change ever. Well, there are, I mean, the first and there's reason. Well, the first thing I noticed was after the finish, 
there are so many weird, like, zooms and cuts to weird... Oops, didn't mean to play that. Uh, handheld camera angles and stuff to try to obscure that the fans are cheering and applauding. And this was the second take. So I don't think they did a retake of the whole match. Not the whole match. But as they were getting towards the finish, Vince was like, this is terrible, started throwing a tantrum and sent Heenan out to get work. I mean, I think they had the earpieces by then, but still, Heenan was part of it with the idea being like they started to do a schmoz and they told the fans they were halting the match to restore order and then continuing it. Yes. That's exactly what they did. We talked about this on the on the show that we did that week. So just that's that's what was going on. Yes. So just a weird weird deal here. The fact they're doing this title change like this in general. I mean, just see none they've ever done before in this type of way. Yeah, and they do air the cobbled together match on primetime. Yes. Uh, the first post uh, SummerSlam house show on se- September seventh, Montreal. They didn't run any shows over Labor Day weekend. U.S. didn't draw well again. Undertaker and Flair's title match only one star, even though Flair did as much as possible considering the gimmick. Razor threw Flair a nod, and he had Undertaker with it, and then put a figure four on. As Undertaker rose in the figure four, Ramon in for the DQ. Razor earlier pinned Savage, who sold his knee big time using the ropes. Also, not a good match. All right, results: High Energy Owen and Coco over Barry Horwitz and Skinner, Shawn Michaels over Virgil, Melanie over Matador. Uh, or is, is Montreal, so he's Jacques Rougeau. Uh, Typhoon over Blake Beverly. Rays over Savage. Brett over Papa Shango. And Taker over Flair by DQ. Now, as we mentioned, Owen Hart's back in action. We were told he'd be out a while. and had big cast on his leg at SummerSlam. But he's back working with a big knee brace. He tore up his knee ligaments and was told the operation he needs would keep him out of action for a year. So, of course, he's back on the road. But Coco's working 8% of the bout with Owen doing no acrobatics. And God. I don't think he ever gets surgery, right? And that's why he never wrestles like he used to. He yeah. changed his style. I mean, he still does it a little with the knee brace in 93. A little bit. A little bit. But it's he really, the la- the absolute last of it is the TV match with Bigelow where he does the work knee injury. Yeah. And I want to say he took a little bit of time off after that, right? Some. Yeah. So I don't know if he maybe did extra rehab on it or what, but this is why he never works the old Owen art style again. Yeah. Um, Interesting also that he flew to England with a big cast on his leg. Yeah. 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 And also just, I always found it interesting. They end up splitting up high energy... And I get what they were trying to do, but, and, and honestly, it ends up playing into the storyline in its own way later, even though it wasn't planned at the time. That new outfit they give him looks so, makes him so much like Brett's, like, lesser brother, that if they didn't end up doing a storyline where they could have borrowed that, but they didn't, it's such a mistake. Where he's like, he, it's Brett style gear, but, just with different, you know, designs and accoutrement with some different colors, but it's clearly supposed to be Brett style gear. It didn't actually look bad. It looked better than the higher energy and new foundation gear, but yeah. As we continue, 
there are two, one or two ne- very negative banners directed at Pat Patterson at the Montreal show. Yeah. Um. One thing I regret not actually wait. Did we? Did we have? Did we have the Mark Madden promo? I mean, pro column about the return on the to close the Titan Gate shows, or was it something else? Uh, it's possible. I feel like we might not have, but yeah, there was a column about this like a week or two before, and yeah, even in Montreal. I mean, I guess probably also knowing he'd be there is part of the reason. There were the signs, and like, you know, Steve Planamenta said they investigated it, and I did look this up, because I think it was in the Madden thing, like, they found, they said, like, most of the allegations were unfounded, they didn't say all of them, which is a hell of a way to handle that, and it's like, look, as we go over on those Titan Gate Patreon shows, what's the best way to put this? Yes, it turned out Murray Hodgson was not credible. Yes, it turned out that Billy Graham, in terms of what he said he witnessed, was not credible. The problem is that even though there were others that were more credible, those two were the most visible. So whether at this point you still think those guys are credible or you're savvy to the other allegations, this is not surprising that this is happening. The first show Madison Square Garden several months on September 11th drew 9,000 fans at $106,000 gate. While there were a lot of long faces in this day and age, that gate figure can't be considered negative. The call wasn't taped for MSG Cable, and they believe that deal of the MSG house shows being put on a little cable has been dropped. So this would be the first show in six months then, right? Yeah. Man, was the first one without MSG. All right, uh, the results. High energy over Skinner and Barry Horowitz. Mountain over Matador. Uh, natural disaster train tactiles over the Beverly Brothers. Sean over Virgil, Razor over Savage, Brett over Papa Shango, and take over Flair by DQ. You know, it's really interesting given the timing, and I had never thought about this before, because I don't think it ever really hit me that they just stopped running the garden for six months. I'd have to check how much they're running the Meadowlands in Nassau. Um That sure feels to me, besides whatever issues they're having with MSG over the fact that they're not getting any money from MSG for the broadcasts anymore. That makes me wonder if they didn't want to run the garden while the scandals were so hot. So, out there. I don't blame them. Because it starts, because the last show's in March, right as everything's about to heat up. I mean, literally, like, maybe even the week everything's heating up, and then they come back right after everything's cooled off. You know? I, I mean... I gotta think that's related, right? Yeah, it's possible. Okay, so real quick, they ran January 31st, February 23rd, March 23rd, and then not till September 11th. So yeah, they were still running monthly, but I can also see them being disillusioned because they were getting paid for the TV, and now they're not. Yeah. So yeah, the first show in 19 years that was not even taped for broadcast there were some that were not aired but this is the first one that's not taped for broadcast <laughs> um so let's see real quick nassau so nassau nassau they did still run a regular schedule they ran february may june august october and meadowlands meadowlands was just was july october that's it 
But, right, they also hadn't been running there because of the WCW thing, mainly. So that's interesting, too, because, I mean, MSG is the most visible, but maybe since they're running NASA regularly, maybe that gives credence to that they're just pissed at MSG. Which happened. It happened multiple times, and, I mean, if I'm them, especially with business being down, and MSG being... I mean, even then, I'm sure it's still more expensive than the other arenas to rent. I'd be pissed that after all these years, all of a sudden, you're not getting that money from them anymore, right? Yeah. <clears throat> all right, uh, they ran Los Angeles on the 11th as well. So we have split shows in the two big markets. They ran a sports arena. We had Jim Powers with a Brooklyn Brawler. Crusher with Bob Bradley. British Bulldog retained nice title of a Repo Man. Nasty Boys Money Inc. went to a double count out. Totalka over Rip Bartel. Nails in a steel cage match beating Boss Man. And Ultimate Warrior over Kamala. And that sounds like quite the show. Sucks we don't have this. Riffler Mr. Perfect was on reach Kathy Lee on September 10th to push the title change and then she matched Undertaker. Henning basically stole the show and Flair was so low-keyed he was almost like simply background music. Regis brought up Elizabeth once or twice, and they seemed uncomfortable answering the question, although they did admit Savage's marriage had broken up. Huh. So wait, did he say that the reason the marriage was broken up was because she was mine before she was yours? It sounded like they did not want to touch that topic. I just, know. And just said that they broke, they broke the marriage. Yeah. Oh, even if he did that shit, he probably would have pissed some people off. Now, did you check the Regis Philbin wrestling interview collection on YouTube? I mean... in there? I mean, it's not on there's an isolated video. True, and the, I believe the person who puts these collections together only does it with stuff that's already on YouTube, right? Yeah. That, that uh, what is it? That Wrestling Club account. So it's probably not on there. Then. I've never seen it before, so. I'm trying to remember if I saw it at the time. I feel like I might have. But... Crush will join Animal to form New Legion of Doom, starting on the European tour. Hawk is talking about touring Japan and working indies. He claims to be free from any contractual commitments with Titan to work anywhere he pleases. In the case of those two, it always seemed the day that some of the parts was far stronger than either as an individual. So now I guess we'll find out. No, he won't. <laughs> well, and also, it turns out they may not have ever actually been billed as the new Legion of Doom, right? I don't know. That never happened. They team up on the European tour, yes, and I believe the aftermags call them New Legion of Doom when they run stuff from it, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, but that also, it's regardless whatever he's hearing and seeing in the magazine stuff, Hawk does get pissed about that, and if I remember right, that's also a catalyst for Hawk being willing to do the Hellraisers. Well, I've been watching that too, in the whole beginning of that. Which, that pissed off Animal much more than the Crush thing pissed off Hawk. Yes. For understandable reasons. And they end up having their weird business split where they're kind of in business together, but not exactly. Yeah. But they all make nice later on. So. Oh, Chris, it is on this compilation. Oh, it is? Yep, I oh, got well. Mr. Perfect here. I mean, you want to play it? Uh. <laughs> oh no, let me see how long this thing is. 
It starts at about 104. It goes through... Uh, one, I mean, that's including, like, the recap videos they show and stuff. Like, it's like, it's like six, seven minutes total. <clears throat> but if, yeah, if I skip ahead to the actual interview, it's more like five-ish minutes. Alright. I mean, you would have put it here otherwise, you know? So, that's the thing. And, wait, is Kathy, yeah, Kathy Lee is our, is our host. It's not, uh, it's not a sub-host like Regis's wife who had the same haircut or anything. Joy. Mm, Joyce, not Joy. No, it's Joy Philbin. I thought it's Joyce Philbin. Mm-mm. Okay. Yeah, well, in any event, here he is. Ah, even he's saying in any event. With his executive consultant, Mr. Perfect, here's the new champion, Ric Flair. New champion, Ric Flair. He's in his prime. Well, it's Ric Flair in the WWF. What do you expect? <laughs> oh, by the way, this is driving me crazy because he was in the celebration, too. He's holding the belt on his shoulder the wrong way. Yes. With the where, with No matter which shoulder he has it over, he has the top of the faceplate facing out. Yes. Which is not normally how that's done. Or at least if it's not how you do it if it's on the left shoulder. Whichever side he's doing it on, it's the opposite. He keeps doing it the opposite of how people usually do it. I thought the Donna Karen fashion show had started early. <laughs> wow, got his boots isn't on. that the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen? What did Mr. Perfect just flick? <laughs> what did gum. You do? Gum? Mr. Gum. Perfect flicks gum? Why do you want to chew and talk at the same time? Yeah. Where is it? <laughs> he flicked it into Robin Leach's pasta. <laughs> Probably doing some good. <laughs> anyway, welcome, guys, to the show. Congratulations on the belt. And this is what it looks like right here. We're huh? not going to let you see that. Oh, really. come on. Is that the most coveted belt in sports or not? Yeah. You've had it before, right? You had it before yes, and you lost it. Yeah, you second time. Yeah, you, you, when, when did you win it last? I won in January. When did you, lost, in lost in April. Lost in April. Lost in April. But Macho Man looked like he was out cold. He was. In that, pain. Did you and do pain <laughs> price. Did you do something to him before or during the match? Or? Well, actually... Because uh, the crowd was kind of booing, Rick. I mean, they we heard some booing. Well, he's a, he's a, a fan favorite, and he's uh, you know very well received around the world. Yeah. But, uh, it's a tough sport, and we play to win, and that's... Uh, uh -huh. So you don't care what the fans think? Nope, I'm no. the dirtiest player in the game, day in and day out. And proud, proud of it. Yeah. All right, now, hey. but here's really what happened. You heard what he said, we play to win. Yeah, they sure do. Here's what really happened just prior to uh, Rick winning that belt. Here's... Okay, I'm going to skip ahead through this. The summer. Okay, they showed the SummerSlam clips, basically. Now, what is your role with Rick? I am the executive consultant to the real World Wrestling Federation champion, Ric Flair. I consult Ric Flair. We talk over strategies. We plan out our matches and our strategies. And what we did there with the Macho Man at SummerSlam. Yeah. Well, that was a buildup now. Knowing that he has that bad leg, Ric Flair had the title match with him in Hershey. It was yeah. like a cakewalk for us. <laughs> <laughs> Be nice. Be nice. Oh, she can get me. Unfortunately, mean. the title shot at SummerSlam was mine, but Jack Tunney, for some unknown reason, yeah. tried to slide me aside and put the Ultimate Warrior in the title yeah. shot. 83,000 people, London, England. Yeah, went over real big. I had to be there. Now, last year, 
It seemed to me that there was a big slap huh? about you and Elizabeth. We have well, probably not paid. <laughs> also, I don't think that's even what they announced it at. I think they announced it right at eighty, didn't they? Flair has his no- internal numbers, I guess. What is going on here, too? Even perfect seems off, despite what Dave said. Flair's doing flair on these types of shows. He's doing reserve talk show flair, yes. Although whoever did his makeup also made him look fairly old. <laughs> yeah. You noticed that, too? Okay, good. Yeah. That wasn't just me. Macho Man here. We showed him some pictures, those pic- those revealing photos you had. Tell me about that. Did you? She's never returned. She's never gotten over it. Really? But did you really have You a... are a sweetheart. I am? Yeah. yeah. You know I'm all there is. Yeah. Boy, yeah, you broke up the, their marriage? I mean, well, actually, I you caused problems? I no, 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 he knew her. I know that, but showing him the pictures was very upsetting him. Could have broken up their marriage. Have you no shame? Have you no decent... Look at Hedick's face. <laughs> He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> Rick, too, but especially yeah. hurt. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? <laughs> These days, they would actually have PR people explain to them what to say under such circumstances. <laughs> oh, savage, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at the. <laughs> Flair's eyes. And Hedig is just also like very. He is just making the uh, Joe Bluth, I've made a huge mistake face. Yes. Amazing. I guess, well, you could say Savage doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore. <laughs> <laughs> These guys don't care. These are ruthless guys. Care. They really are. They don't so care. So where do we go from here? Are you going to defend your belt like a I'm real champion? I'm defending the title against uh, the Ultimate Warrior in uh, weeks to come. This Friday night, as a matter of fact, you're taking on The Undertaker, That's right. right? Madison Square Garden. Now, The Undertaker awful. is about as tough. We had him out here one time. Look at this face. Look the at this face. is a real pussy cat. Oh. <laughs> That's Frank Gifford after five more years of marriage. <laughs> the Undertaker's tough. Yeah, awesome. Jack Tunney, the president of the World Wrestling Federation, signed this. This was a non-title match when you signed to wrestle The Undertaker in Madison Square Garden. Unknowingly in Hershey that Ric Flair was going to be the world champion. Now Jack Tunney turns around and makes it this Friday night a title match in Madison Square Garden. That doesn't sit well with me because I'm the consultant. You are the consultant. This is my business. Well, he should be consulting with you, shouldn't he? Yeah. Well, so what happened? He overlooked you. He Went did. over your head. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I don't either. Meanwhile, this poor guy wants another shot. Bad knee and all. Understand? Ah. Look at the crowd loves him. There's nothing the no, the macho man. There's no feeling worse known to an athlete than a feeling of being a loser. <laughs> waking up the next day, being an ex-champion. Your husband will tell you that. When you've been on top and you've been the man, it's very hard yeah. to walk out that door and say, hey, I got beat. Let and me let me let me ask you guys some a real personal question. <laughs> Do you both go to the same hairstylist? <laughs> I was going to ask you two the same question. Who is, no, we don't. Who is the real blonde here? Well, I am. What? No roots. No God, roots. he is a real blonde. What about you, Mr. Perfect? You're not going to get close to me. <laughs> Go ahead, Reed. Mess up his hair. I want to see what he does. Yeah. 
<laughs> but he is a, he really is. Look at these. See, other guys, look at that. I just have plain black things here. But how about this the guy watch? right here. Uh, how about that? the watch? Yeah. Big Rolex. You better watch out walking around New York with that. Huh. Oh, who's going to take it off him? You yeah. know, another big problem, you know, we're talking about a lot of things, but the ultimate warrior now is the number one contender. Yeah. And that's one of our major concerns here because the Trying to keep everything on the rails. Yeah, well, he's trying to push the, push the agendas and stuff here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. True professional. Yes. Ultimate Warrior is a former World Wrestling Federation right. champion as well. That's right. And he's got all the little warriors all over the country yeah. that back him and support him. We know in the future we're going to have our hands full, but with Mr. Yeah, Perfect. If he wants to keep on dancing, he'll walk the other way. You've seen him when he's I've seen him with that Indian dance. Yeah, it's very effective. Yeah. It scares the heck out of a lot it's of people. It's been effective in the past. All right. We well, I guess Harley's not the only one who thought he was a Native American. <laughs> I will not repeat what he said beyond that. <laughs> well, it is Harley. Yeah. Really, don't think it'll work with us. But we got to get. They're all business. I We're all business. Yeah. Said we got the executive consultant. We got to get past the Undertaker Friday night at the Garden, yeah. right? And then we'll get on with the with the uh, ultimate warrior. Thanks so much, Mr. Perfect. My pleasure. Really good to see you, buddy. So one more time. Woo! I love it. We'll be right back with Donna Carroll. Tomorrow on Live, our very own Fabio returns with his very own calendar. He's our very own Fabio? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was worth it just for the looks on their faces with the Liz thing. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't the Reeves didn't bring Gelman. Gelman, can you believe this watch? <laughs> I don't think he's wearing anything under the robe, Gelman. <laughs> Gelman, of course, Regis is a producer, but uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Nate is Nate. I mean, that's I mean, watch him on that solid just Raphael thing. I mean, that's basically what he is. Mm-hmm. You know. All right, uh, Bob Acklin began to push, although at one point, the Backlund-Titan deal had fallen apart. He was talking with any promoters, but he stopped calling, and the deal apparently was solid. So, uh, yep, Bobby Backlund on his way back to the WF, and that was a weird deal, too, at the time. Yes. Because, I mean, they show the vignettes and stuff, and that's the first time that they really use that old footage like that. Yes. Acknowledging the past in that way. Mm-hmm. Very weird. Money ain't going to be broken up as a tag team in the not-so-distant future. Well. <laughs> not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> T- TV ratings this past weekend are unavailable since All-America was moved from its normal slot and didn't run nationally while primetime was preempted for tennis. Wait, didn't run nationally? It's on a national network. On cable, what does that even mean? I think uh, maybe USA Network was possibly doing some US Open stuff, but that wouldn't be market I specific. Know. I don't know, Bix. I don't know. I don't know. That's just what Dave had. Okay. Brutus Beefcake's opened up a Gold's Gym in Watertown, Massachusetts. Oh, you skipped something. Oh, don't know the story on this, but double trouble. Val and Tony Puccio will be replacing the Nasty Boys on all dates for the near future. They were still working Sunday night, so it could be due to an injury. He means Sunday night, I presume, 
Well, wait, wait, wait. What still work? What is he even saying? Wait a second. Because they're going to be replacing them due to an injury. Or oh, no, no, no. Not they're not replacing them due to an. Oh, so the Nasty Boys are still working Sunday night. He means on another tour. That's very confusingly written. It is very confusingly written. I'm not sure what he's saying. Regardless, this is the Puccios. Who knows if they got money? But they made noise about being the Undertakers when they started doing the Undertaker. And they get these occasional house show runs out of it. Yeah. So, they got something. Oh, uh, Dave has some free advice to the wrestlers, like you had earlier in the show. Free advice to all wrestlers tend to have a great idea for a gimmick and want to propose it to WCWWF. Please trademark the gimmick yourself before for, first before contacting the offices. It's just uh, protection. It's not like gimmicks haven't been heard and the company trademarks it themselves. Put someone else in the gimmick, and once it's been trademarked, the guy whose idea it was originally can't even legally use it anymore. At Gimmick Attorney on Twitter if you'd like to speak with Mike Dawkins about trademarking your gimmick. And this is in regards to the Puccios. <laughs> Did he have this right after the Double Trouble thing in the actual? Um, basically. <clears throat> I mean, it's interesting, though, because if they didn't have a trademark, what was it about... Uh, what was it that made WWF want to at least settle with them in some form? Or is he saying they did have a trademark, so that's why they got something out of it? I guess. The Corporate Legal Times, an article on Titans licensing, but in the article talk about the various scandals came up. Response from House Attorney Margot Levy. Titan itself has had a problem in ascertaining exactly what the controversy was, which is being reported in the press. Concerning the steroid issue, contrary to several inaccurate reports in the press, Titan's in the forefront of drug testing. We have had a substance abuse program in effect since 1987. When steroids became illegal in 1991, WF acted swiftly and on its own volition by instituting what is regarded as the most comprehensive steroid testing policy in existence today. As for other issues that were most trumpeted in the tabloid press, once the WF was able to ascertain the source, we acted swiftly, conducting our own criminal own internal investigation, and taking appropriate action when necessary. Many of the charges were found to be frivolous. Many, quote unquote. Um Okay. Where do we start with this? Who the hell's Margot Levy? She I think is like the main in house lawyer at this point. Okay. Um, okay, let's, let's read the key sentences here again. Tyne itself has had a problem in ascertaining exactly what the controversy was, which was reported in the press. What does that mean? <sighs> well, I just settled with Tom Cole if you couldn't ascertain what the issue was. <laughs> yeah. Why does Tom yeah. Cole allege uh, in his lawsuit the following year... That you basically locked him in Titan Towers and made him sign uh, various sworn statements against his will that you planned to use against him. If you were unable to ascertain exactly what the controversy was. As for other issues that, okay, so as for other issues that were much trumpeted in the tabloid press, once the WWF was able to ascertain the source, we acted swiftly, conducting our own internal investigation, taking appropriate action when necessary. And he has were found to be frivolous. Okay, so knowing what comes later and how they frame the lawsuit against Phil Mushnick in the post, 
This sounds like maybe they're trying to lay the groundwork for the whole thing where they claim it was all Lee Cole's idea. I guess. You know, able to ascertain the source, I feel like, says a lot. Because it does go with that later stuff in the lawsuit, which was just a whole bunch of bullshit. Uh, so, yeah, well, a couple more things before we close. Lots <clears throat> of talk of different things and about the folding of the WBF. Joe Weider's Flex had a very snide rub-in-your-face article on the failure and claimed the Enterprise losses of $15 million. It was reported that the losses per month on the magazine alone were $200,000 in another magazine. Now, despite it being the most publicized bodybuilding mag because of the visibility and wrestling broadcast, it remained the poor selling. Contest reports ran the gamut of being very favorable to being ripped to shreds with no real consensus. The heavy drug-free advertising of the contest competitors was laughed at by many, but praised by at least an equal amount. Okay. I'm shocked the weeders finally mentioned it. It's just the globe. Well, that's know what why? Vince would do. Yeah, that's what Vince would do. Yeah. All right. Want to know why Titans so strongly reversed their field on the steroid issue? And despite what you might think, they really have. It's been made abundantly clear to certain superstars who one would think are juice guys <laughs> that are contemplating making the move they want to come in. Their juice days are over. Quite frankly, this could have become a legit negotiating disadvantage to the WF. Some guys adamantly don't want to give the stuff up, and Dave thinks there are a few who would rather take a far less paying job because they want to stay huge. Oh, they don't want to give the stuff up? They don't want to give up the juicy, juicy, juicy juice? Uh, no. Probably if you already have. The only reason it has it is because WCW is much less of a negotiating competitor, now more so than ever. The only other choice is to make big money. It's all in New Japan. Which, in the most ironic choice of all, may become the refuge for a few Roy monsters since they have enough time off between tours to keep their sides on. But there are so few spots open and all, but a few who were Japan, stuff to augment their income with indies. Except in a few cases, Titans to the prime alternative to make money today. It's not only a felony at the five years in prison to use or possess steroids, but also simply putting pressure on someone that would encourage its use. This law was specifically aimed at coaches and athletic trainers. But if you think about that law, what if it was just one year ago, some very important people could have been trading on legal thin ice. Well, someone's talking to Anthony Valenti. (laughs) Yeah. Right? That's sure what that last part sounds like, isn't it? Yeah. That he knows where maybe the grand jury and DOJ investigation is going. But wow. I mean, the thing is, though, like... I mean, New Japan does stop bringing in... Your weirder, random, big guy foreigners not long after this anyway. Hawk's still there. I said weird, random people. Like, people, not the type of people they would bring in to try out on, like, mid-cards and maybe not use on TV, is what I mean. As far as, like, new spots opening up for people who might not be established yet. Obviously, Hawk is already a big star there. Um... Like, and then, you know, as far as all Japan, like, the only new like, push 
really heavyweight who ends up going there is the Patriot. And at first, he's still very jacked up, but he ends up getting off steroids at times during his run there. Very obviously. So it doesn't seem like this really happens in any real way. You know? Yeah. So. Interesting stuff, though, regardless. So. That's it for 1992. What do we got next week? Next week, on Between the Sheets, we're going to go back in time a little further as we go back to 1987, where we'll have uh, news on Jim Duggan making his return to the World Wrestling Federation hey. after, being, after being gone. And uh, we'll have some also some people that's been suspended as well, including a couple of interesting names on that list. We have other news for the TV tapings during our week, which is uh, really getting the Macho Man Randy Savage babyface turn going. Uh, also, we have uh, house shows, and we have some clips, including uh, Savage and Million Dollar Man and all that stuff, as he's uh, getting his gimmick going. All right, uh, Japan, we got uh, some interesting stuff going on there. We got... Um, some Canada to talk about, including uh, Stampede and the Zodiac. We mentioned him. We have stuff in Mexico as we have uh, Dia de Independencia on during our week. So we have some shows there. We got Puerto Rico. We got the new Tennessee stud in Continental and the ceremony to crown the new Tennessee stud. Memphis and Dave Meltzer is not pleased with the current state of Memphis wrestling. So we'll have news on that, and this Memphis Gang Wars is still going on at this time as well. So we'll have that. Iron Sheik is in world class. So we'll talk about that, and world class doing some horrific business. Buddy Landell debuts in the AWA, and we'll talk about that. And then we have Jim Crop Promotions, which is extremely light on the JCP side of things because they're all on, on a vacation, basically. We'll talk about that. But we have a lot on the CWF and the UWF side of things in Crocker Promotions, including Dave Meltzer going off on the new UWF TV shows. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. All right. Big thanks as always to the rock of the show. This is Chris and so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chiefs Patreon Special Edition number 83. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time for part two of our look at the WCW racial discrimination lawsuits. Yeah. And if you thought part one was a lot, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, we got a lot more going on here. And a lot more details about things people said and did. Yeah. All right, well, let's get started. So now we move on. So that was, what? what's our date on this deposition? This, it, so this is January 28th. Now we move on to an affidavit submitted a couple weeks later. All right, I'll uh, play the role of Moses Williams here. Yes, this is from uh, February 18th, and it's not the whole thing, but it's a good bit of the substance. Because this is just him talking. Yeah, it's just an app. Well, it's a written affidavit, but it's still sworn testimony. I work for World Championship Wrestling in various capacities. I was initially hired as a stage carpenter in October 1991 and worked as a stage coordinator when my employment was severed by WCW in March 2001. In addition to the work I did WCW, I have extensive experience in stage production and worked on many large events. Among other clients, I have worked with entertainment groups such as the Rolling Stones and Michael Jackson. I was also involved in Farm Aid. Even though I was always very dedicated to WCW, I observed many actions that demonstrated a racial or ethnic bias against anybody who was not a Caucasian. I, myself, am African-American. Although some of the WCW officials were more overt about their racial biases than others, I believe that there were many actions and decisions that were made based on a racial or ethnic bias. Over the years, I observed certain WCW officials make statements and take actions in order to protect the good old boy establishment. Unfortunately, the good old boy establishment was exclusively Caucasian. Also, in my experience, the favoritism and better treatment given to Caucasians and minorities was pervasive throughout WCW. And real quick, I do want to point out, just because we should be making this distinction at this point, Moses Williams is not a party to this lawsuit. He stands to make zero dollars from this. He is just a witness. But continue. During nine and a half years of WCW, WCW never had an African-American worth security in any capacity. I even recommend as a qualified person for security, but they were not hired. The decision maker, Mr. Doug Dillinger, expressly stated there would be not a black security person at WCW. True to his word, there never was an African-American hired to work in security. As I indicate further in his affidavit, Mr. Dillinger made other statements showing his racial bias. Similarly, there was never an African-American hired to work lighting at WCW. The decision maker was Frank Santoro. Oh, Mr. Santoro overlooked many qualified African-Americans. I personally recommended several qualified African-Americans directly to Mr. Santoro, but he did not hire one for lighting. Just for the record, so, he did not write, oh, in his sworn affidavit. <laughs> no, but I'm not surprised that a man named Frank Santoro may have had these types of feelings. <laughs> Similarly, Mr. Santoro was also responsible for hiring truck drivers for WCW's tra- trailers. In the years I was with WCW, I could only recall one African-American truck driver, and it was a female. She was involved in a minor incident where she collided with a painted post or a similar fixture and did little damage to the truck. The truck had been leased, and I myself inspected the truck. I did not see any significant damage to the truck. The woman was crying, and she told me that Frank Santoro fired her for the accident. I did not feel this was fair because I was aware of at least two Caucasian drivers who involved in much more serious accidents. But none. But they were not fired. One Caucasian driver was involved in an accident in Nashville, Tennessee, whereby he took out a whole street light and the pole it was on. There was damage inside the truck and the pole was destroyed. Police even came and took a report. Yeah, she had two double whammies, female and black. 
<laughs> and so, a pro wrestling uh, company in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Driving trucks. WCW also never hired African American to work in audio. Al Smith was a decision maker for audio. I submitted many high qualified African Americans for his consideration, but he never hired an African American for audio. The production manager was William Bird. As production manager, Mr. Bird was ultimately responsible for staging, lighting, audio, and trucking. He was supervisor of Mr. Smith and Mr. Santoro. I'm aware Mr. Bird often asked if a prospective employee was Jewish. If a prospective employee was Jewish, Mr. Bird said to hire the individual. I felt that this bias was unfair because many minorities were not Jewish. Huh. Sounds like William Bird would have uh, been a fan of you, Bix. I also recall a statement that Mr. Bird made about the child of another WCB employee, Steve Small, who married an African-American woman. Mr. Bird stated, Steve's kids will have problems in life because they're half black. Uh, okay, before we continue, um, for more on William Byrd and his interactions with the Jews, uh, listen to the ECW on DNN series, where uh, specifically he uh, clashes with Paul Heyman over various production issues, but I, it makes you wonder if there's more to that. If this guy is just going around everywhere and asking every employee, like, are you a Hebrew? <laughs> You know, like, I wonder if Heyman either knew about this stuff or something happened or what, and uh, that led to Paul having more of a distaste for William Byrd. I mean, it seems quite possible, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Alright. Vince Russo often made statements demonstrating he preferred Caucasian persons, especially Caucasian males, over other persons for WCW management and control. I heard Vince Russo often refer to people as blacks, japs, spicks, or wetbacks. <laughs> Good lord. I heard Vince Russo make statements suggesting that whites were in control of WCW. For example, I heard him say, whites rule wrestling. <laughs> oh my goodness. I also heard him say that it was a white man's sport, and that is why we don't have many black wrestlers. I also heard him say, I am running things the way I want, and we are going to have a white champion because that's the way I want it. Vince Russo made it clear that he did not want Oriental persons, African-Americans or Hispanics, succeeding in WCW, much less gaining any position of management or control. It's a white man's sport. Whites rule wrestling. Whites rule wrestling. Whites rule, brother. See, he, maybe, maybe he and Hogan could have found some common ground. I mean, yeah. I mean, Russo. Russo's issues go back years. Look at the drawing of Dave Meltzer, even before he was in WWF. Which was not him, but was clearly directed by him. And, you know, also... Well, yeah, remember, though, it wasn't just Meltzer. Meltzer's the only one who looked in that that first newsletter that he did that was 100% him as Pro Wrestling Spotlight. There were, like, what was it, two, three issues that were just him without a resi after the split. It's the it's you know the whole issue is just him yelling at media, newsletter writers, newspaper writers, etc. But the cover, so Meltzer. Here's the thing: Meltzer is somewhat more recognizable as himself. He is not as bad of a negative Jewish stereotype as the depictions of Bob Raceman and Phil Mushnick that look nothing but like them. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the, yeah. I forgot about them. Yeah, I mean those were straight up protocols of the elders of Zion shit. Yeah, you know, so like, 
regardless of whether he directly directed his friend, bro, bro, make him look Julia, you know, regardless of whether it was that or did she work for uh, just approved it or what? Did she work in the United States this best weekend for the first time? Julia, no. (laughs) Wait, you said it as Russo man sound like Julia, (laughs) bro. Bro, all I hear about is uh, how this how how Julia New Japan got this weekend. <laughs> oh, I think I finally got, got a better handle on the Russo accent. See, the thing is, you just have to remember is that it's a guy from Staten Island pretending to be do a Brooklyn accent that actually sounds like a New England accent. <laughs> oh, good lord. All right, similarly, I heard Terry Taylor make statements demonstrating his racial and ethnic bias. Oh, really? Who were not Caucasian. Uh, Aldo thought he was somewhat careful around me. Aldo, I guess. It says Aldo. Aldo Montoya. (laughs) I've heard from another person who routinely used uh, the N-word. I did, however, hear Terry Taylor express his desire to promote Caucasian wrestlers. For example, I witnessed Mr. Taylor overtly push Caucasian wrestlers, but not push African Americans. I also heard Terry Taylor make statements based opinions of African American fans. I heard him say blacks don't buy wrestling tickets. More for the Terry Taylor file here. And we'll hear more about that study or whatever and WCW office people making comments like that as we go on, too. As for Sonny Ono, I am now aware Sonny Ono was not a full-time employee of WCW. It surprised me because Sonny had an office listed on the extension list of WCW personnel. It contributed greatly to WCW. In addition to serving in numerous capacities such as agent, entertainer, coordinator of talent, Sonny also translated for Hispanic and Asian wrestlers. Jimmy Hart's work was very similar to the work done by Sayono. Similar to Sonny, he was responsible for recruiting and developing talent. Although Jimmy didn't work as a translator, they essentially performed similar work. Although I am not taking anything away from Jimmy Hart, I believe Sonny was just as qualified or even more so given his language skills as Jimmy Hart. Okay. So to add with, to what we talked about earlier, where I feel like it was there was already a pretty compelling case that he was completely misclassified. Here you have someone who was an employee who's shocked to learn that Sonny Ono was an independent contractor. <sighs> well, it pays to be a friend of Hulk Hogan. Even more than Eric Bischoff's friends. And Eric Bischoff's the boss. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's why Jimmy Hart got, you know, got all that. I'd be curious, though, not that it makes Sonny Ono not misclassified. I am curious when, relative to becoming part officially part of the booking team, Jimmy Hart became an employee. Yeah. Yeah. Also makes me wonder, was Kevin Nash, or I mean, was everyone that was part of the booking team an employee? Like, was Kevin Nash an employee when he was the booker? Uh, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I do know that when Kevin Nash was the booker, the contract data says it has $200,000 a year for whatever allotted to booking service. And I wonder if that's classified differently, that he is providing a service as a contractor. But, it, but yeah, I do wonder about that. Like, people who are otherwise talent... So you, Bill Dundee, Robert Fuller, Kevin Nash, Randy Anderson, just whoever, you know, not people who had other office jobs, obviously, Cornette, Eddie Gilbert, whoever, were they employees when they were on the booking team? Don't know. 
Well, anyway, we continue. I did become quite upset over when WCB hired Caucasians to perform my task, but paid them even more than I was making. For example, WCB hired Trevor George, Art Shipley, and Scott Stevens, all Caucasians, to work on the props. I believe WCB paid each one of these Caucasian individuals more than what I was making, even though they were only doing one part of the job that I had done, and even though they did not have any nearly ex- excessive experience in stage management production. Similarly, WCW hired Ellis Edwards to do the stunts and props and also paid him more than I was making. And again, I was much more qualified for the tough work than Mr. Edwards, but WCW paid him more than what I was paid. Uh, okay. Maybe this is a nitpick, but Ellis Edwards was a professional stunt coordinator. He was not strictly like a stage manager or whatever. Like, it... it <sighs> I feel like if Moses Williams specifically had stunt experience, he would have mentioned it here. So, like, I, this seems... Alice Edwards specifically seems like an example where maybe he's protesting. Without more details, it seems like he might be protesting too much. It doesn't ex- It doesn't excuse anything else he's testifying to, but that that did jump out to me a little bit as a little weird that he's mentioning him. On the other hand, we just also happen to know more about Alice Edwards than we do these other people. <laughs> Yeah, there's that, too. So. As I indicated earlier, I did not confront WCB officials with my complaints about discrimination or from several individuals that I was known as the good N-word. I was best told that that, because I did not make any waves, called the Caucasian officials, sir and mister, and because I slid everything that was told, I was considered a good N-word. I think that was a did, and it got OCR'd weird. <laughs> um... In addition to racial discrimination against WCW wrestling employees, I also believe that WCW officials discriminate against wrestling fans based on race. I previously addressed Doug Dillinger. I also add that on numerous occasions, I observed Doug Dillinger, the chief security, providing promotional gifts and souvenirs to Caucasian children, but did not treat African-American children the same. I was offended by Mr. Dillinger's flagrant favoritism towards the Caucasian kids. I made my best effort to treat all the children the same, regardless of their race. Although I did go out of my way to take care of any children with apparent handicaps. As to, Mrs. D- Master Mis- As to Mr. Dillinger, I recall during O.J. Simpson trial that stating, yes, I'd use the N-word, and I would use it again. He didn't say it would not affect the way he would act in the workplace, but I believe that his actions speak louder than his words. And, of course, the context to this is that he was a member of the Charlotte Police Department for years. Uh, yes. That Which, was his main job pre-Turner, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, that's... But the fact that somebody that would have been in a law enforcement in the South had that type of uh, is not surprising. No, not surprising. Uh, you know, from that era. I mean, that was a common thing. I mean, he was the uh, he was early seventies is when he joined the uh, Mecklenburg Police Department. Oh, so he's Mecklenburg. Wait, is it Mecklenburg County or is it the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police? Uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department, early okay. 1970s. Mm. And he, um, that's when he started, he started, um, he started actually with Crockett, not in security, but he was cameraman. Like you watch some of those uh, right. early credits of JCP shows, and he's there as a cameraman. Doug Dillinger, Skeeter Brawley, Jackie Crockett. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, one of my favorite uh, cameraman credits of, of uh, Crockett Promotions in the uh, mid-80s was Marlornitis. Huh. Yeah. Also, just brother. it makes me think about it in the context of all this. Uh, boy, Os Coleman must have some stories. Ooh, I bet. All right. Uh, 
I recall Terry Taylor stating that they did not need to worry about the Spicks or brothers. They just need to get to the back of the line. I believe he was referring to African-Americans, the only person who would raise complaints about the treatment of African-Americans. He was indicating that they wouldn't be put in the back of the other person seeking advance of WCW. As to Terry Taylor, I was told by another person that when WCW signed Hulk Hogan, that Terry Taylor said WCW was bringing in Hogan, and he didn't want any blacks on the show to take away from Hogan coming back into the limelight. From my understanding, Taylor didn't want any black wrestlers to take away from his intended effect to bring in Hulk Hogan. Terry Taylor didn't have anything to do with Hulk Hogan coming in, but I, I and he I, wasn't. I don't think he was on the booking team yet, even. No, maybe this is after he signed a new contract or something. I guess it's possible, but overall, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah very, it's very damning because, like you said, Moses Williams is not someone that's got no skin in the game. He's not in this case. He's just telling you what he saw and what he heard. And also someone who was there for the vast majority of the company's existence and worked outside of wrestling operations. Yeah, this is not a money grab. He's just talking. And that he's talking about how pervasive it is, too, and the lengths it's going. You know, throughout the company. So. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.